Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 236. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Spider-Man No Way Home, directed by John Watts, written by Chris McKenna and Eric Summers. But before all of that fun begins, we want to let you know once again about Fan Show Plus. That is the podcast that we have for premium subscribers on patreon.com slash Sean Gerber and also on Apple Podcasts. If you search for the MCU Fan Show channel on Apple Podcasts or just search for Fan Show Plus, you can find it there. You can subscribe and get exclusive podcasts where in upcoming shows we'll be talking about the ridiculous box office results for Spider-Man No Way Home. We might even talk a little bit about that post credit scene from Spider-Man No Way Home that was really more of something else, which I think you know by now, and I'll wait to say it later, because even though this is a spoiler review, we haven't gotten into the spoilery stuff yet. So anyway, but you, if you've seen Spider-Man No Way Home, then you probably know what I'm talking about. And we also talk about non-MCU stuff on Fan Show Plus. So coming up, that will feature a spoiler review series for The Book of Boba Fett on Disney Plus. So again, that's at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on the MCU Fan Show channel on Apple Podcasts or just search Fan Show Plus and you can find it there. And then as always, make sure you are following us in all those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone who has already taken the time to share their thoughts. And now... Let's cure some ass. How you doing, Paul Herman? Man, it's been a long, long three, four days, man. I've been, I've been sitting on this uh, movie thoughts and and deep dives for for so long. I'm holding it all in, and for longtime listeners, they know that I just wait to see or wait to reveal all my thoughts on the podcast. I just think it's more fun that way because social media is, it, it's cool and all, but just to hear those thoughts on a podcast and hear them when you're driving on the work or something, it just gets, you know, for me, I always get pumped up when I hear people's thoughts on things, you know, especially if they're in line with mine, but even if they're not, I just want to hear people, you know, deep dive and explain why they may or may not like something. So with this movie specifically and any Spider-Man movie for that matter, it's always hard for me to keep my mouth shut because for those who you know don't know spider-man is my all-time favorite character of anything it is just he is the the be-all end-all for me and i just yeah it's it's hard i love i love this character more probably than any anything almost other than like my regular family out besides out besides them essentially so this is a big deal this is a big movie to review there's a lot to get into and i i mean buckle up people it's going to be a, a crazy episode it is, or maybe it won't be that crazy. I don't know. It might be a long episode. Who knows? That's I don't crazy. think we're going to <laughs> threaten the four-hour Avengers Endgame spoiler review, but then again, we're only a few minutes into this thing, and we haven't even actually started talking about the movie yet, so who knows? But I'm very excited about this show. I'm a little intimidated by this episode because there's so much to cover in this movie that we are bound to forget something. But don't worry, we have other podcasts. If we forget something, we will circle back to it because that's just kind of what we do here. But I'm really pumped, like you are, to talk about this movie. There is so much to get into. But before even getting into the specifics, I just I have to say, because this is just something that I, I think I have felt and I think a lot of you have felt out there. And Paul, I'm sure you did as well. Like We've had Marvel openings. We've had a few other Marvel movies this year. 
And this isn't to take anything away from those movies. Some of this is just the nature of Spider-Man being the biggest, most popular superhero in the world and has been for a number of years or decades at this point. So we've kind of established, I mean, based on the early days of the Spider-Man franchise, which circles back into what's happening in this movie, that's where Spider-Man really kind of established that in the 2000s with the Sam Raimi trilogy. So we've seen this character and, and these stories be so big in the past. And then, of course, being in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and everything that comes with the MCU and how much we love it. And I mean, I feel like you could we could wrap the podcast up right now. That's what Happy Hogan would want, because he would just say, you guys love the MCU. There's no new ground being broken here. And that would be accurate. But we're going to go ahead and continue with the show anyway. So what was different about this compared to the other three movies this year of no fault of the other three movies, but this one just felt like it had the event feel that Marvel opening weekends have. The crowds were as big as they used to be, or even bigger than they used to be in a lot of cases for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There was the enthusiasm, the cheering, and those things were there for Black Widow, for Shang-Chi, for Eternals, but it wasn't quite the same. This is the closest we've had to that Avengers Infinity War slash Avengers Endgame mega event type of feel and I wasn't even expecting to get that despite all the rumors and everything that we expected to be a part of this movie I still wasn't quite prepared for just how close they would get to that Infinity War Endgame mega event level feel and I'm not just talking about what's on screen because that's what we're going to break down in detail here but just in the room and that sort of community experience and that energy that was palpable in the three times that I have uh, that I have seen the movie. It's just been such a treat to be able to watch it and be part of that experience. It's been so awesome, and it has certainly heightened the experience of watching the movie that we will go ahead and begin to break down for all of you. But before we do that, Paul, just your thoughts on that as well. I'm sure you were part of some some pretty energetic crowds. Yeah, I would say the first crowd was was the best, and that was the the opening night. Um, I think they had one showing before the one me and Chris went to, and the crowd was pumped. They they cheered all the times they needed to. I mean, it was very energetic, and and it definitely echoing what you said, Sean. That to be a part of something that I think that movie theaters can give us as a community of people who all love something. When you're there. And you're all there opening night for a movie like, you know, Spider-Man or any Marvel film or DC film or Star Wars film or even to give uh, Justin and Chris a, a bone, a Star Trek film for just for you guys. Uh, anytime you're, you're in a theater full of people that are just like you or in some way or form and you're all cheer at the same time, it's just there's an energy mm-hmm. and you can't match that. And I definitely had a great experience and I can't wait to get don't talk about those experiences on the on the show. Uh, specifically when we get there be able to see that that end game experience like you said sean or star wars experience that i have it was great to have that on thursday night it definitely was and i i definitely can't wait to have more in the future yeah i i think it's a a tip of the cap to marvel studios and sony as well they're part of this right so it's uh, technically their movie right that they're distributing and, and tying some of their other stuff into but with everybody involved in this, it's impressive just how much this movie plays and, and feels like and rewards for the audience that's there and a mega event level, an Avengers level type of movie. And we just had one not that long ago. I know it seems really long ago to think all the way back to April 2019, but it hasn't been. Uh, they got around to a mega event feel much more quickly 
than I thought they were going to, although my mega event was slightly delayed. The one issue that I had seeing the movie on Thursday night, sat down, it's a brand new movie, so that means I'm going to have to watch like seven or eight trailers, and I knew once I got to the Morbius trailer, I'm like, okay, this will be the last one, because it's Sony's next Spider-affiliated superhero movie, this will be the last one they show us before Spider-Man starts, and I get to watch this new chapter of the MCU. Oh, how exciting. Except that Spider-Man No Way Home didn't start playing. Ghostbusters Afterlife started playing. So I'm sitting in the theater, and and Ghostbusters starts, and me and like three other people like run out of the theater to go tell the first person we can find that they are playing the wrong movie, which they fixed, you know, within a few minutes, so it was fine. But yeah, my wait for Spider-Man No Way Home was just a little bit longer, and then the movie finally started. And it picked up right where Spider-Man Far From Home left off in that mid credit scene, with Peter Parker being outed by Mysterio and, of course, J. Jonah Jameson, and not only being outed as Peter Parker as Spider-Man, but also being accused of murdering Mysterio and being accused for the drone attack in London. All of those bad things, and we pick up in the immediate aftermath of that. And I'm really glad that they made that choice, Paul, because I wanted to see that. That was a moment from that mid credit scene in Spider-Man Far From Home where you don't just want to know where the story's going from there. You want to see what happens next, like, immediately. How does Peter Parker respond to that? He freaks out like any 17-year-old kid probably mm-hmm. would. And there's also, like, it's it gets a little creepy in a, uh, for a second there. There's, like, some inappropriate touching where, like, the guy puts his hand on MJ's shoulder. Are you Spider-Man's girlfriend? Are you Spider-Man's girlfriend? He won't let go of her. And Peter has to, like, go down there and tell him to stop touching her. So that was a little bit weird, but it's also the sort of thing that probably would happen. Anyway, Spider-Man and MJ get away, and then he gets atop a bridge, and it's the dude, dude, dude reactions with Ned, and then we see MJ, who's been stranded up there. Um, but yeah, that first, uh, those first few moments, even just before he gets to his home with May, who's breaking up with Happy Hogan, just the, that first couple minutes of that reaction and Spider-Man just kind of being on the run, web-slinging away with MJ, and even apologizing to her because she's not really a big fan of web-slinging, but it's their only option to uh, to get out of there at that point. Uh, that Those first few moments I thought were just great. As far as it, it really sold the idea of just how overwhelming this experience immediately yeah. is for Peter Parker. Yeah, it, it sold on that. And I, like you said, Sean, the fact that it picked up right after you know Far From Home, it made sense. It, you want to see what immediately would happen because... You introduce the Daily Bugle and J. Jonah Jameson. You have, you know, what is it, the instant reaction going to be? Because he's right in the middle of New York when it happens. So mm-hmm. you ha- it's like they have no choice but to really kind of follow up on that, I feel. And and it gives you a lot of depth for, you know, again, it's this is where like, I think the, the writing is starts being like immediately clever. And I think that from the previous film, you got to give a lot of credit to, obviously. But the fact is you have to show – even though this movie's long, this, uh, we all know if you've seen, seen this movie, there's a lot of there's a lot going on. You have there's a lot of you know there's a lot of stuff that you got to get through, and they do a great job of, of going right off the bat of showing how insane it is that this mm-hmm. is happening, and you know it's a, a little amount of time, and 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 also during that time, instead of just being like you know not would say boring setup as far as like how chaotic it can be, Sean, it it has a lot of fun because it shows you you know in a very fun way of him right. going through the, all you know through the tunnel. It's critical for pacing. You bring up the point that this is a long movie, and how do you get over the idea? Because it's remember everyone, because there's always articles about million articles about runtimes. It's never how long the movie is; it's how long the movie feels. Does it play Mm -hmm. 
like because there are two and a half hour movies like this one that play like an hour and a half and then there's two and a half hour movies that feel like four hours because they're not good and they're wasting a lot of time that's not what's happening here and you're totally right paul when you talk about how fast it is and the chaos of it all it's so frenetic that when you get to as you're going through it or you're just being thrust right into it so because it starts so fast, and I think the way the movie paces itself throughout, you don't really feel that two-and-a-half-hour runtime. Everything is paced so well, and I think a key component of that is just how fast this feels, just leaning right into it, that this is going to be overwhelming for our main character, so let's kind of bombard the audience with a lot of visual information, including, by the way, Rogers the Musical, which is playing right now in Hawkeye. So I love the way that that was kind of syncing up and giving you another thing if you're an MCU fan who's watching everything right now and you're caught up with Hawkeye and where that is, giving you a lot of pieces of information, a little, not that it says exactly that this is concurrent with Hawkeye because Rogers the Musical probably has a long run on Broadway in the MCU. So who really knows exactly where these things sync up in the timeline, but a lot of information and really selling the idea of just how wild this is for Peter Parker. And I, I thought it was a great start to it. I like the intro more now. It was, it felt a little more, a little chaotic at first for me, especially yeah. when they get to the, the, the one, the one, like, or the, the, it feels like it's just one shot. We're just kind of following them around in the apartment. It with we have all that. It was fun. It's cool. But it just kind of, was so kind of just jerky for me. I was just kind of like, what's going on? It, it was hard for me to catch my breath, but obviously I think that's obviously the, the intention of the mm-hmm. filmmaker and the writers is like to give you that kind of feel because that's what they're feeling. Right. So right. mission accomplished that way. And I definitely, by the third time of watching it, I, I'm have no problem with it whatsoever. So I, if you if for those who have maybe only seen it once and they and I've seen other people say this online too that that intro is a little too like a little much for them after they watch it a couple of times if you're into that watching movies more than once which I, if you're listening to this you're probably watching it many times uh, right. if you have a kind of an issue with, with it you'll you'll get over it real quick it, it's something for me that kind of was a little bit of an issue but it's not an issue whatsoever now after the third uh, viewing. I would say on average at this point, listeners of this podcast have seen the movie two and a half times, just on average, statistically. Yeah, on I, average. I think yeah, that's yeah, a, yeah. a fairly good guess. Not that I actually know and, and not that I'm going to try to figure it out. I'm just going to work with what I ha- with what I guessed right. there. But I think that's a good point that uh, upon the first viewing, I don't know that I, I certainly found it a little difficult to settle into, but I think I was supposed to, but uh, very easy to settle right. into it on viewings two and three to to know that. and be prepared for it, that this is kind of how the movie starts. And I like that it sells the feeling to the audience that its characters are experiencing in that moment. And then we got some good stuff in the apartment. I mean, the the awkwardness of, oh, you know, did they catch the kids about to uh, hopefully practice safe sex or whatever, uh, and how awkward all that is, and with Happy being like, I didn't see anything. And also Happy just being not so happy that he's being dumped by May over boundary issues. I like Peter wearing his I survived my trip to NYC shirt that he got at in Spider-Man Homecoming when for a little while there he wasn't worthy of his Tony Stark uh, made and, and tailored Spider-Man suit. But uh, that whole sequence with the apartment, too, like I, I thought was uh, I thought was really, really great. And him trying to act like the topic of conversation was going to be the breakup uh, the breakup that he just discovered. And then it's live on the news and helicopters are surrounding their place and the walls are just kind of closing in on Peter Parker as Spider-Man, and they have no choice but to confront it because the Department of Damage Control comes to the door. So Damage Control, originally introduced in this franchise in the MCU, in Mm Spider-Man Homecoming, they're back, and they are bigger 
in Spider-Man No Way Home. We meet Agent Cleary, played by Arian Moayed, who I love in Succession. So my Succession on HBO fans will, I'm sure, recognize him just as I did. And he brings Peter in, and we see MJ and May. I loved them saying in sync, uh, not to say anything until they get until Peter Parker gets a lawyer. I know I didn't quote the line exactly. Um, and I loved uh, MJ knowing her rights and talking through Agent Cleary's tactics of why would you need a lawyer if you don't have anything to hide. So Zendaya was just great in that. Uh, was uh, was so awesome. And then the way Ned falls for it to give up information when Agent Cleary is talking about. So when MJ told you, told you that Peter Parker was Spider Man, and then Ned has to correct that, and he blabs, and then wants to have his words struck from the record, which is not exactly uh, not exactly how it works. But we have all of this crazy legal trouble. Aunt May is threatened with child endangerment charges. And then with all of this going on, at some point, everybody keeps talking lawyer. So when are we going to see them sit down and talk to a lawyer? We cut to Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil, just Matt Murdock in this scene. Here he is officially in the MCU which wasn't that much of a surprise based on the rumor mill and based on people sharing things online that they should not have shared that hopefully you didn't see before you saw the movie. With all of that said, even Kevin Feige acknowledging that if slash when Daredevil appears in the MCU, that it's going to be he's going to be played by Charlie Cox, which to me was definitely a sign that he was definitely going to be in this movie, because why is Kevin Feige even talking about Daredevil unless there's about to be a reveal, so there's no point in denying it. So here we see it, Charlie Cox in the MCU proper, and I was tripping out, with gleefully tripping out, Paul. The scene mm. is great. I, I don't want to take anything away from the scene. The scene plays beautifully, especially the brick catch, which we will talk about, but... Just seeing, because we never got this, right? We never got this during the Infinity Saga and when the Netflix shows were going on. We never got to see Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock on the big screen. And now here it is. And watching the movie in my second and third viewings were both in IMAX. So now it's a gigantic IMAX screen. And there's Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock. That was um, I, I, it was just the greatest. I, I don't I don't know. I mean, the Daredevil series was pretty much perfect most of the time on Netflix. Yeah. And, and you and yeah. I raved about that show every time we yes. got a new season of it. We loved that show. Most fans did. And to see that character now on the big screen in the MCU proper was so satisfying. It was again, I was spoiled on it. I heard rumor after rumor after rumor. And when it finally saw it on screen, even though I anticipated it, it was so magical. And I know for a movie we're about to go deep dive into of many magical moments. This was like, I think the first one for me, even Mm -hmm. though I kind of knew what was happening. Here's here's what I'm going to say about the scene specifically. First of all, everyone who knows me knows that I'm a huge Daredevil fan in general. I love the TV series. I read the comics. You know, that's that's one of the uh, series I've read consistently from 2005 to now from when I got back into comics and read a ton, a ton, a ton of old (laughs) Daredevil comics back in the day. So I'm a huge Daredevil fan and seeing, you know, Charlie Cox's Matt Murdock on the big screen talking to Peter Parker is just magical. It's a magical thing to see on the screen. And I'm going to give a lot of credit to, again, I'm assuming it's a, a very much a joint effort of Marvel and Sony. It feels like this, 
it was such a genius thing because when they left the movie off at the very end, they would need to have some kind of legal legalese or whatever when they're writing the movie. And so to have that idea of like, well, let's just put you know Matt Murdock in the movie because it's a good time. And now what's a genius about this is that you do that, you use it for to, to get all the legal stuff out of the way of the movie. And use it by automatically putting it visually a person that a lot of people recognize and Matt Murdock going, oh, I'm a good lawyer. Okay, you're good. You don't have to do much more than that, right? And have a little funny scene there, establish that. And then now with the brilliance of that, you, you take you move forward with the story, right, from that point because mm -hmm. Matt Murdock takes care of that whole thing. Then on the other genius part of it is the fact that with being in a giant Spider-Man movie, you've now told the entire world Hey, remember that that Netflix show you guys all love that kind of was loosely tied or not really or whatever? Well, now he's back and he's officially a part of the MCU and now you're going to get really stoked about it. And all these people watching this movie are all going to either remember or be super stoked that he's in it. Because I can tell you from, again, my second viewing wasn't as excited as the, the other three, uh, the first the first and the last. The first viewing, people went nuts at the, the, the Daredevil, uh, Matt Murdock reveal. I mean, they went crazy. I was I was taken aback by how people went crazy for it. And the third one was a lot more, uh, not as excited, but definitely people got stoked. And just to me, you're reestablishing the fact that this character is now in the MCU and we're going to see him going forward. And I've heard rumors and other different things. I, to be honest, I just want to see him in his own movie or, or TV series ASAP because right. I freaking love the character. So yeah, genius part on all the way around for the, for putting Matt Murdock in this movie. Absolutely. And even when he makes the comment about happy, he's going to need a really good lawyer. And then he catches the brick and how'd you do that? I'm a really good lawyer. I feel like Happy's legal troubles may not be over just based on what's happening here. And, you know, he took a machine from Stark Industries, the fabricator that I believe that's the machine they're referring to here that he ended up that we find out he did take and that they were using later on in the movie. And so there might be some stuff that comes up for Happy and he might still need an attorney in the form of Matt Murdock or another really good lawyer, Jennifer Walters. Maybe Happy Hogan is going to show up in the She-Hulk Disney Plus series. I definitely I definitely think that Matt Murdock is going to show up there at some point. But like you, Paul, I just I'm all about him popping up in all these other places wherever they want to have him show up. But I would also love to get back to Daredevil having his own stuff, whether that's a movie or a Disney Plus series. I would almost favor a movie at this point because and, and I was having this thought as I was watching it, especially after seeing the movie a couple times and watching it again today, thinking Maybe I really do want a movie because it's kind of nice seeing this character up on the big screen and I kind of want to mm -hmm. do that again. And we don't get to see the Disney Plus series on the big screen, at least not as of yet. And maybe one day that'll be a thing that we can do. But because we can't, I, I'm favoring the idea of a Daredevil movie, but I will happily take a Daredevil Disney Plus series, just more Daredevil solo stuff. And this isn't a Hawkeye Episode 5 spoiler review, so I don't want to talk about the other stuff when we get to our Hawkeye Episode 5 spoiler review. Maybe we'll get a little bit more into that. And we might even need to spend even more time talking about the possibilities of the Netflix series and that continuity, mm -hmm. these characters popping up and with the same actors. Does that mean the Netflix stuff is going to be canon in the MCU proper now? Is it not? I don't really know the answers to uh, to those questions, and maybe we'll examine those on another show. But yes. it would take us too far away from all the other things that we have to cover that are specific to this story right here in front of us right now. So we will keep going on talking about the movie. And, and again, the uh, the brick catch moment was was fantastic. And 
I think why I loved that moment and the way it plays in this movie is if you didn't know who that was, now you want to go find out. And mm-hmm. so, and, and I think a lot of the people watching the movie know who that is. Got a big cheer all three times that I saw it. But if you couldn't just guess or automatically know that something's up with that character and that that's a superhero, they show that to you so you can check it out and be caught up for the next time that character appears somewhere. So that was really, really awesome. And then the legal trouble is mostly resolved. As Matt Murdock says, none of these charges are really going to stick to Peter Parker. Maybe some issues for Happy, but nothing really for Peter Parker or May or MJ. They're not going to be in legal trouble. But as Matt Murdock points out, the court of public opinion is another story. And we had seen that throughout the film at this point, the division around Spider-Man, that Spider-Man's a hero or Mysterio was right, believe Mysterio. And I don't know how you could look at what's going on in the world today and feel like, yeah, that's kind of how it would play, wouldn't it? And that's that's just how it would play out. That, However they conceived of that originally only became more realistic and, and, more, and it only became that much, uh, it, it just felt so true and it's only going to feel even more accurate as time goes on, sadly. But um, I, I thought all, the way they played that and the division around Spider-Man I thought was really, really great. And then because of the brick throwing through the window, they need to move to someplace safe. And we go to Happy's Spiritual Oasis, otherwise known as his condo in Long Island. And I, I thought the uh, and we get a, a cameo appearance by Dummy of the Iron Man franchise, which I thought was so awesome. So I was happy to see Dummy back and happy that Happy has kept Dummy around as uh, as two pal, two old pals of Tony Stark living together. And uh, Happy's got a nice place in Long Island. He does. He does. There was, a, again, a nice, fun little scene. Um, again, I don't know if you noticed the uh, one of the Easter eggs. They had the boxing gloves mm-hmm. that they sparred with. Yeah, the, um, he had the, the headgear, too. Yeah, yeah. That's all. I, I noticed that the today when I watched it. I went, oh, Iron Man 2, underrated film. Um, so, yeah, that was really cool. Uh, it, was, it was great seeing, you know, dummy there. And I, I don't know if, we're, if I'm going too head, far ahead. If we This is past the J. Jonah Jameson kind of montage, correct? Yeah, we did. Okay. I think we might have mit- skipped over. I I love dailybugle.net with his green screen behind him oh and just God. his little pop-up table because you know that's totally how that guy starts out. And then you see the progression, right, as the months yes. go on and he's got a nicer, he, he gets a sweeter setup. Right. But well, that's it, right? He he just he rises to fame just kind of being a blowhard and, and capitalizing on yes. the situation. See, you talked about how, you know, you can see how this kind of mimics real life a little bit, mm-hmm. and how the the, the the public of court, uh, court of public opinion, and what's crazy is that J. Jonah Jameson, it shows you how he rose, he rises to power mm-hmm. through just writing one thing, one narrative, even though it's incorrect. Right. He just rides it. He doesn't care. And you see that. And again, I love the commentary on that. Yeah. It's like this guy started start off in a freaking room. Again, I love it's J. Jonah Jameson. And how he rises to power through, again, exploiting this one thing over and over and over yeah, again. And how powerful the that flames. is. Yeah, exactly. I love that. That was great. And I love to see, again, what you said. J. Jonah Jameson represents what's happened in the last, what, five, six years of, of people just exploiting things, this, this narrative, and just driving it home. Whether it's right or wrong, it just makes money. So I'm going to keep doing it. And you see it throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And again, it's subtle. 
and and I mean, it's subtle enough. I mean, you, it's obvious, but I think it's subtle enough that people will just blink and miss it and not think about it. But I love that it's there, and it's definitely a commentary to that. I think it's awesome. Yeah, the way they do that, it just rings so true to life in a very sad and frustrating and annoying kind of way that you look at yes, that and yes. you go, oh, well, that plays out kind of like it has. So it almost feels too familiar. I, I wish it didn't feel as familiar as it does watching the rise of J. Jonah Jameson, seeing the the division of the Spider-Man fans, but really the rise of the we believe Mysterio, Mysterio was right. And I love how many people immediately believe in Mysterio, even though they knew next to nothing about him. And he was a superhero in their world for like, I don't know, a couple weeks. But he's the guy they totally believe in. Never mind Spider-Man, the guy who fought alongside the heroes they honor, Captain America, Iron Man, who sacrificed themselves to save everyone. There's so many who were so quick to just dump Spider-Man and not question any of this stuff that's coming out. And J. Jonah Jameson just going right along with that and fueling a lot of that just because I'm sure on his dailybugle.net website and whatever YouTube channel and whatever else he's got that the clicks just kept on coming in, the views kept on coming in and that allowed him to rise to fame and obviously he got a nicer setup. So he's getting paid um, and he's just exploiting the entire situation. So that rings true of J. Jonah Jameson and, and some other people. Oh, my God. The yeah, only other daily so fix incredible. you need. Oh, just amazing. Oh. <laughs> and since, you know, it's and it's also, I don't think intentionally so. I think it's more of just making fun of it. But, you know, J.K. Simmons with his farmer's insurance as a uh, with his commercial ads. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. it, it fits in with that a little bit. But, no, the, yeah. the harder sell for the Daily Bugle supplements uh, was great. And even his face after that. Like, the only other daily fix you need. Just so smug. J.K. Simmons is a treasure. We are so lucky he is. Uh, that he is. he is brought back for for this. Not just not just what we got in Far From Home, but to see that continue here in uh, in No Way Home. And then the other challenge for Peter Parker and friends is going to be college admissions. As we hear from Andrew Rice's uh, Betty Brant, as we get to Midtown High, it's the start of senior year. And there is a creeper in the crowd asking MJ if she's going to have Peter Parker's spider babies. So really, inappropriate dudes are the arch villains in Spider-Man No Way Home. You got the guy who puts his hands on MJ asking if she's Spider-Man's girlfriend, and then this guy asking a high school girl if she's going to have her boyfriend's spider babies. But we move on inside, and we find Mr. Dell, Mr. Harrington, and Coach Wilson, played respectively by J.B. Smoove, Martin Starr, and Hannibal Burris. And two of them, Mr. Dell and Harrington, are big Spider-Man fans. They've helped put together with the students a Spider-Man shrine at Midtown High. But Coach Wilson believes Mysterio. And his little comments, just kind of under his breath, but not that far under his breath, uh, I thought were, were really, really great. And just represented that uh, the debate that was out there that we saw amongst the people of New York and, and likely elsewhere. But the big plan for the kids, college admission, And the way they can escape this situation and maybe start over, even though the Spider-Man stuff is world news, it'll be at least a little easier if they can get out of New York. And the plan is everybody goes to MIT, but they also will apply to the same backup schools and hopefully all end up in Boston together. And the only trouble with that is no school wants to be associated with the controversy around Spider-Man. And that includes Peter Parker and his friends. 
Ned and MJ. So we see denial after denial after denial until we get to the letters from MIT, which they open together and they are all rejected. And this is where I have to give the movie, start giving the movie credit for addressing one of the concerns that I had going into it. I've said a number of times for a number of different reasons that I generally trust Marvel not just to say that everything they do is automatically good and I'm automatically going to love it, but it's just a recognition of they tend to do a very good job in the movies they make, in the stories they tell, at least in my view anyway, that I find it very easy for me to enjoy these movies on multiple levels. So I pretty much trust what they do because they earn that trust over and over again with each new movie or series. But I have said that Spider-Man No Way Home was in some places testing the limits of that trust. And I wasn't totally in love with the way this whole multiverse thing was going to kick off as it was presented in that first trailer. But the movie did a much better job of it than what the trailer presented. And there are bigger, more meaningful steps along the way that I'll talk about. But this was the first step in that they didn't just make it about a legal case that would be resolved Mm -hmm. with relative ease. They did a really good job of painting the picture of how difficult this was going to be for everyone, not just in the moment, but for high school kids where the, the college you get into is everything and it's the key to your future. Little do they know, but at that time, you think it's the key to your future. So if they can't do this, then they're not going to be able to do anything. So the movie did a really good job of selling why Peter would not would do what he could and, and be willing to take some risks in order to try and resolve this issue. Um, but as I said, bigger and better steps being taken to address some of the concerns I had in follow up scenes. But they did a good job to sell why this situation is so desperate for Peter. Yeah. And going back really quick to the high school thing, I I will say with Coach Wilson, I did think that it was funny or lined up with his character because remember when he's doing detention, he's like, I'm pretty sure this guy's a war criminal now. Yeah, yeah. So he's pretty talking about Captain America when he's doing the PSA Mm -hmm. announcement, whatever. That's true. Or a video. That's a good Um, point. That actually reminds me of one of my favorite lines from J. Jonah Jameson when he called Spider-Man a web-headed war criminal. Yeah, see, yeah, exactly. So it that all lined up. And it was good to kind of see all of them together because I like all those all those actors and, and, mm-hmm. and their characters and their movies. So it was good to kind of give, give them a little little bit of a thing for a minute. Um, with I, I'm I, obviously we're going to be a broken record a lot for this stuff, Sean and everybody. But um, to give a different little different context with the whole college thing, I wasn't expecting this part at all. And one thing I really liked about it was it really emphasized the fact of what like again the the consequences of being a superhero and what that means and for for Peter and now that he's outed what does that mean now and I think that the big thing about his his identity being revealed is you know he's now seen like you know with this and everything amongst himself if his aunt they have to live in a different place he's seen how everything is altering once his identity is known to everybody and and it is interesting that that is kind of like the the main crux of what's going on because if everything was just roses there'd be no reason for peter to go see dr strange right so you couldn't just be like oh it's really crazy everyone thinks i'm everyone knows i'm spider-man it's life is really hectic right now dr strange can you change the multiverse for me it means it it adds more to the character of Spider-Man of what he represents, which I'll get a lot into this in this uh, review. But this is the first that you kind of get. We've already seen a little bit 
or we've seen that in other films where he, what he's willing to do as far as sacrifice himself and what, you know, for other people. But this is again, more aligned with, with Peter's character in general that I have love is that, that he will do what it, whatever it takes to help people. That's just who he is. And when he sees people, he really cares about that. He's affecting personally. It's, it, it, it is. It's a big deal to him, and he. It's hard for him to get out of uh, his own way sometimes to make that happen. And it's like ah, you know. And, and even again, there's a big moment here. That, well, I don't want to get that far, but it's a big moment that kind of it, it's addressed to him by someone in the movie, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure if you already know who I'm talking about. Um, but it's addressed, and I'm like, damn, like it's it's heavy. And I love the fact that they're going at it, and, and that there's going to be sacrifices in in this. And I think that. This is this whole college thing is, is the only first, the real, the real sacrifice and consequence of being Spider-Man. Besides them having to move into Happy's house, which is more of like a a fun thing at this point. At, at this point in the movie, the college thing is the first real one where it's outside of Peter. Mm. He knows it's affecting two loved ones. So, again, great writing and great setup in the movie that you really go, okay, this makes sense. Right, and it's a sign that things are bad now, and they're only going to get worse because yeah. College is what these kids need to have their brighter future or whatever it may be. And this is going to be denied to them just because they know me, not because they did anything wrong. And there's a great line there from MJ where she says, I I wouldn't change anything I did. And uh, Ned Ned says he wouldn't either. And also the kind of recurring bit that we get when they're up on the roof of the high school for a moment of privacy before Ned shows up talking about how um, just talking about uh, MJ's recurring thing of if you expect disappointment, then you'll never be disappointed, which is certainly key to a decision that Peter makes at the very end of the movie. But we see where these kids are at and how it's being impacted. But that's where I I love the courage of MJ and then also Ned in agreeing with that sentiment that here they are being impacted severely by what's going on and and their association with Spider-Man. But they're not going to regret what they did and they wouldn't take it back because they were doing the right thing. They're just being punished for doing the right thing. It's totally unfair, but it's not changing who they are and why they did the things they did and why they helped Peter in all the ways that they did and why they stand by him right now, even with all this trouble that he's in. And even though it only makes things more difficult in their own lives, that it's not just Peter making sacrifices and standing up to certain things. They're making sacrifices and standing up for things too, uh, which says something about their characters and, and what we see from them throughout this movie. So uh, I totally love that. And I thought uh, Ned, but especially MJ just really had some moments to shine uh, in this movie that I thought were, were really, really great. I mean, the moment that I brought up at the top, the, the conversation that Peter and MJ were having when they were FaceTiming and Happy was saying, you like each other, no new ground being broken here. But even in that conversation, like Zendaya's MJ talking about her sarcastic mm-hmm. responses to being a glass half full kind of gal, loves people, all of that. Uh, I just loved all that. MJ was great. Uh, Zendaya was great as MJ throughout. I mean, as she has been throughout these movies yeah. in general, but specifically in this one, I thought she got more opportunities to shine and, and she took advantage of every single one of those opportunities and, and made the most of them. Then we go to, because Peter is seeing how things are not looking so great and the Halloween de- decorations are still up in the donut shop that uh, MJ is working in. And there's a witch. In can the I say something real fast about donut you, shop? You can. I, I, really quickly. I think, I want to say, and I, I, I meant to go look at the actor. 
I almost feel that that was like a a quasi Easter egg for the first Raimi movie because mm-hmm. MJ works at like a diner, you know, Maybe, before, yeah. and she you know and she doesn't like her boss, and then I'm like, is that the same? Like it's just kind of the same feel. I was like, right, and it was oh, weird. It's the that, constant threat I, I of like being fired. Was. Yeah, it, it's it's also the constant threat of just the boss who is just a complete jerk and, and willing to fire you sure. at the drop of a hat. And even as she says, when when Ned's like, I'm going to puke, she's like, please don't, because he'll just make me clean it up. I know. I laughed. That was awesome. And uh, was she great. also he also wants her to take down the Halloween decorations. That was someone else's job. But now MJ has to do it. But because that original person didn't, then Peter sees his inspiration to go visit the Sanctum Sanctorum and find Doctor Strange where we learn that Wong, as played by Benedict Wong, is the new Sorcerer Supreme in the MCU. Strange complains that Wong only got it on a technicality because Strange blipped for five years, but really, Wong already had seniority on Strange, right? Because Wong was already there when Stephen Strange showed up at Comertage for the very first time. But it's not just seniority. Wong is pretty great, and obviously he was running things to get everybody together. Otherwise, we don't get portals happening the way that it did in Avengers Endgame. Not that we know how exactly they organized all that so quickly, but Wong had to be a key contributor there as the Sorcerer Supreme. And that sets up another moment that makes this play a lot better for me in the final film than it was in the trailer. But before we get to Mm -hmm. that, what Peter is originally asking for here is also different. He's not looking for everybody initially anyway. The initial ask is not for everyone to forget that he is Spider-Man, the initial ask is for Doctor Strange to go back in time and make it so that Mysterio did not reveal Peter Parker's identity, and Strange has to remind Peter Parker that he no longer has the Time Stone. And I'm glad that they had Strange say that, because it, of course, sets up why they have to take a different approach, but it clarifies and it reiterates that the Time Stone is gone in the present-day MCU. In this timeline, the Infinity Stones were atomized by Thanos. They took some from other timelines, but remember, they put them all back to clip the branches or whatever it is they did. And so the Time Stone is gone. And I know people have looked at the Eye of Agamotto still being there on Doctor Strange in certain toys and other set photos or whatever it is. And it really just shows if you see the Eye of Agamotto at any point now, it's a fashion accessory because it just looks cool and maybe it will house something else. But I like that mm-hmm. they set that up and, and made it clear in the MCU that the Time Stone is no more in this, uh, at least for now, in this timeline. Right. And I think that that's purpose, purposeful at this yep. point. They go, they're going out of their way to say, we don't have the Time Stone yep. you know, and make it a big just deal. Just so you know, Again, when you see the next movie starring Doctor Strange, he will not have it. Well, and I think, but I think there's something that, you know, again, that fashion accessory, because I, I thought the same thing. I'm like, oh, he's still wearing it, even though it doesn't have the, the, the stone. I will, I do think that that will come to, into play at some point. I think that was, again, that's the Marvel MCU right. uh, continuity level of being like, okay, let's establish this one little beat here. And then we'll revisit that in his own movie to, you know, establish that. So people, when they go into the soccer, you know, whatever, again, the genius of having a, you know, a shared universe that, yeah. that we all know. But yeah, I, I feel like you. the time stone's coming back. 
Um, I agree. I, I, I feel I or you said that you said it is coming back. I think it's coming back. I think the time I think we will learn that the time stone is the one infinity stone that exists almost as if it's one stone across every single possible timeline. Yeah, I agree. 100%. I think we will find out that it is like the central stone of the space time continuum. I know that in Infinity War and Endgame, the soul stone was the one that kind of seemed to have some connection to everything and seemed a little more central, which is why it was so kind of spooky and weird and whatever with sacrifices on Vormir. And yeah, that works very, very well in those movies. So I'm not trying to be dismissive of that, Mm -hmm. but the time stone just feels so different because I I don't know, it, it just does. And even the way the time stone kind of interacted, like, People don't physically touch the time stone. Like even uh, Thanos doesn't when it's released to him. It kind of hovers between his fingers before it settles into the gauntlet. There's always just something kind of different about yeah. it. And I think, yeah, part of the reason why you remind people it's not there is to explain why they're not using it right now, but also to make it a surprise if slash when it appears again. Yeah, I, I think it's a good chance it's going to happen. And I, I like you, Sean. Going into it, I, I wanted to see how this was going to do as far as to explain why Peter's going to Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. And like you, and we both were kind of like, eh, and it's played completely different, which I got to tell you, I'm really thankful they're doing this in trailers, to be honest, because it makes watching the movie more a bigger deal because I'm like, oh, okay, this is much different. It, it doesn't mean doesn't mean the trailer is going to be 100% accurate and make you know if you've seen the trailer, you've seen the movie, you always hear that argument for people, you know. Mm-hmm. And with 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 that, it makes you kind of again be on your toes a little bit and say, okay, what exactly is 100% legit with this movie? As we see in the trailers, a lot was altered and missing to add for you know all kinds of different things. But I, I'm with you. I mean, I expected this to be a little bit different. And what we got was a much better explanation of what and why Doctor Strange is, you know, helps Peter out in the first place. And I, I have to tell you, it was nice because I never, it, like you, it never sit w- sat well with me, the fact that, that Stephen was going to be, you know, okay, Wong, wink, I won't do it. Uh-huh. And I love the explanation of when he tells him, you know, we, we use a spell for a lot less. And I love right. that, that he, he understands that. Again, I said that in our other podcast before that Stephen – it has to be the fact that like they have, they, you know, they know this kid deserves it. He's been through way too much. He's a kid. It, it, again, it, it's not like we're asking him to do a whole bunch, you know, as far as, you know, as far as like uh, going back in time. But uh, the fact that he mentions that, and again, they play the joke was great. Um, it just adds the level that this is not like the be all end all spell, but it's not exactly super safe either, which we'll get into that in a second. Right. I have, I have thoughts on that, but yeah, it was cool to see even Wong being like, just leave me out of it. I don't want to be a part of it. And Stephen, like, all right, let's do it. That was really it made me like like Stephen, or it made me appreciate the what's going on a lot more than what the trailer was, was giving us. So a plus for deception, uh, deceptiveness, if you will. Right. And I don't even know if it was so much to deceive or if it was just sure. they were just condensing it as best they could to get the yeah. point across in a trailer. But as I was saying before, and, and this is a a more important step for me than just selling the desperation of Peter Parker. It was just this whole decision of how the spell comes about in the first place, that it's not the first thing that Peter asks for. And even when, even when it comes up, it's not Peter who asks for a spell. I wish everyone could forget, or do you have a spell to make people forget? He just, he mentions the word forget. And then Wong says, uh, says the word. And then strange credits Wong for being the one to make him think of it. 
that they have the runes of Kafkal, this memory spell, and it's a thing that they've used multiple times, multiple times, like the full moon party at Kamartage that Wong can't remember exactly. That was a huge thing for me because it wasn't necessarily, it, it or not necessarily, it just wasn't at all a thing where they were trying to say, let's try this thing that we've never, ever tried before. It's really dangerous, but let's try because Peter Parker says he needs help and, and things have gotten messy for him and his friends. Things are messy for him and his friends, and we have a solution that would work, and we can go ahead and try this. It's worth trying in this situation because it's a thing we've actually done successfully before, even when the circumstances weren't as desperate as these are. So that was key for me. And also, Wong gave his permission. It wasn't the thing where they presented in the trailer, like Wong was saying, don't do it, and then Doctor Strange gives a wink and does it anyway. When Wong says, leave me out of this, he's still giving his permission, and he should be aware of that. I don't know if as the new uh, Sorcerer Supreme and leader uh, leader of the Masters of the Mystic Arts, I don't know if Wong has been through management training, but anyone who has knows that if you're a manager, if you know about it or you should know about it, you can no longer be left out of it. So Wong is responsible and he is in on this as much as anyone because he could have told Stephen Strange and Peter Parker no, we're not going to do it. I'm the Sorcerer Supreme, and I am shutting this down right now. He didn't. He said, he said, he effectively said, go ahead and do it. Just don't bother me with it. And that's where it's at right now. So Wong effectively gave permission. And then it's time to cast this spell, the runes of Kafkal. And it's something they've done before, but I don't think Stephen Strange has ever done it before with a teenager present who keeps changing his mind about exactly what he wants and changes the spell five times. I know Stephen Strange says six, but Peter, obviously, his math is correct. And it was five times that he attempted to change the spell, wanting, uh, as soon as Stephen Strange pointed out, everybody is about to forget that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Then Peter keeps adding to his list of the people that he wants to still know that he's Spider-Man. MJ, Ned, May, Happy Hogan, and then basically everybody who already knew should still know, and this causes the spell to start breaking down, and we see hints of other things coming through, and there's a white silhouette of the lizard, because you can actually see the tail, so that makes sense with uh, Stephen Strange capturing lizard a little bit later on in this movie, and then Stephen Strange shuts the whole thing down. He's barely able to contain the spell. We will find out he did not contain all of it, And it reminded me of, it actually reminded me of Avengers Age of Ultron as far as the responsibility aspect of this, of who's at fault or how do they take, for people who are involved in this thing that's going to create trouble, that's going to create harm that is ultimately done to others as we see in this film, what's the responsibility level for the characters involved and how do they accept and deal with their responsibility in it? That other part of it, how they accept it and how they deal with it is something the movie does brilliantly later on in the movie. But even in this initial phase of it, that it was a somewhat routine spell that kind of got messed up because of Peter's indecision. Although I can, so that part is still, that part's still a little iffy for me, but whatever, I get it. It seems like the kind of thing they could have had a talk about before all of this started to say, well, what exactly do you want? And Peter could have said it from the from the jump, and then they could have asked for the right thing and not had to change the spell five times while Stephen Strange was casting it. But setting that aside, it did remind me of Avengers Age of Ultron, where 
Tony and Banner didn't directly create Ultron. They opened the door that Ultron walked through. And I feel like that's kind of what Stephen Strange and Peter Parker did here was Stephen Strange and Peter Parker, well, with Stephen Strange by just not even shutting the whole thing down and having suggesting the idea of casting the spell in the first place, Peter continuing to try and change it, which messes the, messes the whole thing up. But at least they left that room at that point in time feeling like they hadn't actually done anything, that they hadn't actually had hadn't actually done any harm because it seemed like the spell had been contained at that point. But that was another key piece of it for me, that it wasn't just they go crazy with whatever plan they have and everything immediately goes bad, that they actually had a moment where they could have, they had reason to believe that nothing that bad had actually happened. Yeah, there's a lot here. And I'm going to say right now that I'm with you. You, you, They could have figured things out beforehand. But I also think this. I also think that, and this is just my opinion, my own speculation, I think that the events from the Disney Plus shows like WandaVision and I think especially Loki, more specifically Loki, I think it's affected this whole thing. Because what I thought was interesting, as he said, we use the spell for a lot less, like say oh it does reach the outer reaches and blah 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 but they've used it before and it's been fine and obviously steven's used it and never had a problem with it so when you add the you know again he's 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 asking him to you know say all these different things and you know add these different people who might know remember him as spider-man what i think might have happened is a multiverse is you know he also reveals later on that they know frighteningly little of it right and so what i think is that after post Loki and all the, you know, all when the, he who remains is gone, this is what takes place after I'm assuming this takes place after, uh, uh, Loki. And I think that the, the multiverse is more unstable. And that's why when he screws up like that happens is because the multiverse is already unstable. Cause it's all purple around again, right. signaling, uh, Kang and all that stuff too. And I talked about that, uh, that, all that in Loki as well. So that right there to me signaled single, uh, sig- signaled, Oh my gosh. Um, that there's more at play here than just what, you know, this, you know, Peter Parker just throwing things out and frustrating Dr. Strange. He did shut down the spell, but then things got crazy. So I think that plays a part in it. And I think that will be revealed in multiverse of madness that they'll realize, Oh, something's going on in the multiverse. Like this is, it's way more, it's unstable now. Like something's going on and that will, that'll be addressed. But I think that will be why the, um, this whole thing happened in the first place because it's already unstable. He didn't know that. Well, and I think it's also something that even Stephen Strange says. It's something that they know frighteningly little about. So I, I agree with you that maybe there's some sort of already established instabil- instability from Loki slash Kang that maybe is playing a part in this. But even if it doesn't, I don't necessarily know how much it changes things for Stephen Strange and and Peter Parker when it comes to their responsibility here. Obviously, there's a mistake that's made, but the bigger point for me, at least in terms of their responsibility level, is I didn't want them doing something that they knew to be inherently reckless, and then it creates all this calamity, and then they don't really take responsibility for it. That was my fear, because... The trailer was a little cavalier in how it played all of those elements. That's not the way it plays out in the movie. What they're trying to do is something that has been done before with a forgetting spell. So it's not necessarily something that is just, it's not the book of Cagliostro from the first Doctor Strange movie Movie of everybody stay away from this thing. This is something that the Masters of the Mystic Arts actually use on a 
semi-frequent basis. They'll never know because they can't remember, but they use it. And so all of that coming together and then Strange feeling like he had shut things down and contained it. And then they also he also calls Peter Parker out. And that's also worth noting, by the way, is after Stephen Strange gets mad at Peter Parker, not only does he switch from call me Stephen to call me sir, yeah, but he also starts calling Peter Parker Parker instead of Peter. And Doctor Strange has a tell with how he feels about people. Remember in Infinity War when he keeps calling Tony Stark and he doesn't call him Tony until he looks into the future, 14,605,000 of them, and realizes that in the one future where they win, it's going to be Tony sacrificing himself to save the universe. At that point, Strange starts calling him Tony. So when he first sees Peter and when he feels okay about Peter, he'll just call him Peter. But when he's not happy with him, then he starts calling him by the last name, Parker. I still feel like that was an intentional choice of keeping true to how you know how Doctor Strange feels about you. So if he calls you by your first name, he likes you. He at least kind of likes you. If he's calling you by your last name, yeah, you're you're basically dead to him at that point. This Uh, spell concept is so is so brilliant mm-hmm. as we see everything how it brings in the, all the villains and everything it just er, this is such a great concept and idea that i didn't know how i, I was going to feel about it after the movie i i love this concept i thought mm-hmm. it was brilliant and it was handled br- brilliantly it ended brilliantly obviously and this ended up being a pretty really clever uh thing again this, this movie is such a well-written movie for what they do it is you know, it, and again, using this this device and have it drive everything, and it still it still has weight around it throughout the entire film, and especially at the end of the movie, it's I gotta just point it out like that's a pretty incredible thing. I mean, that it has weight to it, and I and again, it it drives everything. It's, it's just, just a, funny it's to really... hear you use the word weight because my one knock on the prop of where the spell is contained <laughs> is that it mm-hmm. doesn't seem like it weighs anything. When, it, it, you're right it doesn't when it's it, in the hands of the true. actors and look it's a magic thing so who said it could be very very light but it looks metal it looks like it's supposed to have some physical weight to it sure, and yeah. everybody's just flinging it around like it weighs less than an ounce uh, so that part i was like eh, it's just kind of like when actors for whatever reason nobody seems to be able to pull it off when they have a drink in their hand that you can always tell it's an empty yes. cup they can't actually make it look like which just put water in the cup. I don't understand. But uh, yeah, it felt like that to me with, as they were running around with the, the Machina day, whatever it was that, uh, that Dr. Strange was talking about. So that was my one issue with that, uh, with that prop, but figuratively speaking, yes, there was weight to everything uh, that was going on here with, uh, with these spells, but also I loved having Stephen Strange call Peter Parker out when he's saying, well, if, if you got rejected and you talked to them and they still wouldn't hear your case, whatever it is, and then Peter's saying, you can talk to them, you can actually do that, you can try and get, convince them to not just go off of the initial rejection letter that they already gave you, and Stephen Strange calling him out for that, saying, wait, you wanted me to brainwash the entire world and you haven't even talked to the people who rejected you at MIT? And Peter said, well, when you put it like that, and then he gets the door slammed in his face outside the sanctum. I thought that part was really, really great. Although, to Peter's credit, he never really asked for the world to forget. It was really more of a thing that Stephen Strange suggested, but 
anyway, whatever. Enough quibbling about that. But Peter does find out who we can talk to. It is the assistant vice chancellor of MIT, played by Paula Newsom. She is on her way to the airport. It's Flash Thompson, who did get into MIT, who's providing this information. I don't know where this movie could possibly have room for it, even at two and a half hours. I would have loved a little bit more of Tony Revolori as Flash Thompson. There was that there were those notes we got from him in about his character in Far From Home, like him being the one kid who didn't even have parents show up to pick him up from the airport after everything those kids went through in Far From Home. There was a little sad element to Flashpoint, or Flashpoint, no, that's his book, to Flash Thompson's story that I kind of wish had been brought back into No Way Home. I just don't know that there was space for it, so I get why they didn't go that direction. Right. But anyway... I still liked Tony. Tony Revolori is still so much fun as Flash. His whole no sleep till Boston thing or whatever when he gets into MIT. But anyway, it is Flash who tells Peter where he can find the vice chancellor who is on her way to uh, the airport. So she's on a bridge and Peter is ready to have a chat, except the Spidey sense goes off. And then we see cars being flung in the air. And then a set of very familiar mechanical arms come into play. And it's the moment that we've seen in the trailers. There he is, Alfred Molina as Dr. Otto Octavius. Don't laugh. It's an awesome name. Don't come for the Stanley alliteration ever. So still not here for the moment where Ned, Peter, and MJ laugh at the name Dr. Otto Octavius. I digress. But there he is, Alfred Molina. And I've said it before, Paul, we've talked about it. I'm not necessarily the hugest fan of the portrayal of Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man 2. I actually like it more now after having seen this movie because it kind of completes mm-hmm. it in a very interesting way. Yes, but it does. one thing that I've never had any issue with is the performance of Alfred Molina. Yes. And that remains the case here. I was having so much fun revisiting his portrayal of this character and his performance because you can put him in any universe and he's still mm-hmm. Dr. Otto Octavius, and he's still that, at least still that version of Dr. Otto Octavius. And it's a version that, even at the sympathetic angle, wouldn't necessarily be my favorite choice for the character. It does work, and you have this character who is an antagonist. Here he is trying to kill our <laughs> Spider-Man in the MCU, but there's still something about him. There is that inherent goodness that yeah. that plays, and it plays in Spider-Man 2, but even more so in this. One of the things about Spider-Man trilogy and and when it was made is that it was made at a time where, again, studios were very uh, apprehensive about being as comic accurate as possible, mainly because, again, at that time, as we all know, Sean, Mm -hmm. they weren't as proven as they are now. And and for when it seems like the more faithful you are, the more successful you are, whatever, you know, where you can take that for whatever you, you want. But back in the day, it just wasn't. Again, it just wasn't always the, the thing that people or the studios necessarily thought was the right thing to do. Now, and it was a point of contention again, for Doc Ock. It, I think you, you've got yeah. to, I'm sure you remember this, Paul, but remember the mm-hmm. first poster that revealed, this is like a year before the movie came out, but like a yeah. teaser poster that revealed the look of Dr. Octopus and everybody just thought, a trench coat? Like, yep. what? There, it was not necessarily a, a favored look amongst fans, at least not initially. Yeah, and it looked like an X-Men character, essentially, because you weren't all black. So, again, that whole idea of, like, we can't put color in these costumes because, heaven forbid, they might look stupid, you know? And so 
again, my whole costume thing aside, I love, I mean, Spider-Man 2 is a great movie. I love that movie to death. It was my first Spider-Man movie for, for the longest time. So with all that said, yeah, I mean, the characterization is is much different. The One of the things that I think No Way Home is able to do is give so many different characters an, uh, a look and insight. And actually, in my opinion, Sean, it, and like you said, it completes it, but gives it... It, it makes me it helps me accept this that universe so much more because it is different and that's one thing i think no way home does a great job of is acknowledging the fact that like hey these are all different for a reason and and we don't understand those reasons and in that context of the of the of the movie world if you will as far as that that no way home in that universe or whatever you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. but you know and for us though it's like man like as an audience member for people like who maybe have issues with, and which will be a broken record again for a lot of these different things, but Dr. Octopus in particular, I feel gets obviously gets a, a, the bulk of the redemption I feel in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's well-deserved. And I think it, and to me, it really justifies, I think, um, the what they do in Spider-Man two right. in, you know, as far as what they go, where they go, where they go with it. Because again, we, we always will have, those original characterizations. And I think that's one thing I learned from no way home specifically is that yes, I, I can, whenever I need my doc, Dr. Octopus fix of like ridiculousness, I can go to the comics and read those. And it's always great to get a comic accurate character, you know, as much as possible. But again, getting a different version, see, so show, no way home, I think shows you the advantage of having differences of characterizations mm-hmm. of different versions of characters. And I think this is Dr. Octopus was right off the bat. The first one that makes you go, okay, I get it. Right. But yeah. So with all that being said, when he comes on screen and they have their fight, holy shit. Like I, I just sat there and went, they have to top this. <laughs> I mean, I, I think like, how, like it was so good. It was, it, it like, really it, was. Like, and and it, I thought it was going to be a, a tough thing to do because. Yeah the villains in the MCU seem so advanced compared to the ones that we had in the, in the aughts for the superhero genre. But if you go back and think about Spider-Man two or rewatch it, as I'm sure a lot of people have to get ready for this in anticipation of this movie, it's pretty action heavy. And doc, Dr. Octopus does a lot of cool action things. Now the CG pretty suspect when they have to have a full CG model, of Dr. Octopus and Spider-Man when they're fighting in certain moments, but they did sell the idea that Dr. Octopus is a a very difficult antagonist for Spider-Man to fight, and that remained true in this one, where that was a tough one. And really, Peter only won because of the whole pairing thing with the nanotech in the Iron Spider suit. That's really it, because really, Doc Ock had him. And mm-hmm. and so I think that showing that being such a closely contested battle between these two characters and also this being a, a fairly young version of Peter Parker, because yeah. Peter's college age in Spider-Man 2 when he originally fought this version of Dr. Octopus. So this version of Peter Parker, a little bit younger. Granted, he's fought a giant purple alien in space, but still uh, younger. And Dr. Octopus is able to at least be his equal, if not a little bit more than that in this contest. And and I thought it was great visually. It looked great. And I loved when the Iron Spider suit arms came out and Dr. Oh Rock was talking about, it looks like we got some competition and we had oh. the robot arms fighting each other. That was great. Everything about this just played so well. And also, 
this is kind of the first sample of it that we get, but allowing these characters to really shine with the modern technology that allows these movies to exist and look better than they've ever looked, where some of those moments that you just kind of have to accept because of the technological limitations of the time in Spider-Man 2, this isn't about looking good with any sort of qualification. This just looks great with the way Dr. Octopus is moving and the way whatever they're doing with the visual effects to keep Alfred Molina, his face, his body on the screen while the arms are, are moving around. And it just, it adds, there's that word again, weight to it. It adds weight to the action. It allows the character to stay very, very present in the action and allowing the action to be about character and the story that they're telling. And it was just done so well. And it also allows Peter Parker to shine as a hero in front of that assistant vice chancellor at at MIT, which helps resolve at least a little bit some of the college admission issues. And and really quickly, I want to add that when I was talking about you always will have your different versions of characters and no way home. I think really shows you how the advantage of having those different characterizations case in point, the arms versus, you know, the iron spider suit taking on Dr. Octopus. Mm-hmm. That was a perfect, you could have that in a different version of that character and that would work too. But it was cool to see that this, again, this version of Dr. Octopus who, who faced a Spider-Man already who didn't have that all of a sudden faced that different version. It was right. a good different concept and I think that's the advantage of having these different crazier versions of characters and different realities and things like that. And so I think having that was a great kind of setup for the example of why these, this is always an advantage a lot of times when you mm. have these different iterations and they meet each other. Um, yeah, that that was a, a real moment for me. I went, okay, that was – it seems like a no-brainer, but I totally didn't even think about it. And now I was like, oh, thank God they did that. That was so much fun. It was This was a great fight. I, I have to say that, again, when I watched this, I didn't know how they were going to top it. I'm like, how are you going to top like this is if this is like it's the first one, the first legit fight. Holy crap, we're in for it, which we are. But I mean, yeah. holy crap, that was a great fight. It was. It, it still is absolutely a it, it's still a a really great highlight in this scene, even with or in this movie. I know there's other stuff obviously that's really really great in the movie um that I absolutely love and other action beats that I would say I guess you can go ahead and say that they top this one, but it's not even about topping it to me. Like, it's just let every action sequence be great in its own way, which was something that Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings did earlier this year with its action sequences. This one starts off so incredibly well with this fight with Dr. Octopus, but it keeps going from there. And getting back to the character of Dr. Otto Octavius, we'll find out momentarily that he going going back to the whole sympathetic angle that they took with the character in Spider-Man 2 this movie Spider-Man No Way Home is better because of the decisions that they made in Spider-Man 2 so never mind me and my my preferences how short-sighted i was way back in 2004 that there would be this other movie that makes Spider-Man 2 and the new movie even better in 2021 because of the decisions they made with Otto Octavius at the time but both movies end up being better for these choices that they've made with Dr. Octopus. But the key piece of information that we'll get a little bit later, because what was interesting to me, what was another part that was interesting to me in this scene, was the way when when Octavius had a moment to go for a kill, he went for it. He went for it, ready to just stab Peter Parker or Spider-Man. He didn't think it was Peter Parker or didn't know, or actually, no, at that time he did think it was Peter Parker. 
he went for it. He went for the kill to stab him in the chest. And it just shows the different point at which Otto Octavius was taken out of his timeline. Because as he describes it later, he was taken out at that moment that he was about to kill Spider-Man. Not at his moment of self-sacrifice or realizing what he had done, but while still being controlled by the by the arms themselves and then having and being in a moment where he was about to kill Spider-Man and then finding himself right in the middle of a different fight with Spider-Man with a fancier suit. So that part I, I really liked in the way it sets up the mindset of these characters and when exactly they were taken out of it, which also shows why there was still the need to help them as uh, we go through the story uh, later on throughout the film. But that part was great. And then I, I also thought the whole the whole piece to it where the arms were... Otto Octavius thought he was getting an upgrade because the nanotech went onto the arms and it ultimately allowed Peter to control them. But that made a lot of sense to me because at first yeah. when Otto Octavius got the nanotechnology on his arms, I was like, well, that doesn't really make sense. Like, it is older technology. There's no way that it should be able to overtake the Stark tech. And it didn't. It was the Stark tech that overtook uh, Otto's arms. So that part played very well. And then uh, the scene ends with us getting our one and only look at Green Goblin in full Spider-Man 2002 costume, which wow. I'm not totally mad about. Um, I just, you know, if since it was the only shot we got of him, I kind of wish we didn't have that in the trailer, but whatever. Mm. Um, it's fine. And we do at least see the helmet later with a, a great moment between Norman yes. Osborn and that darker half wait for of that. himself uh, when we get that. to that moment. But uh, then, but we don't get to engage in that battle. And I was really happy about that. I was a little concerned is the wrong word, but after we just had such a great fight between Spider-Man and Dr. Octopus, I wasn't really looking for a fight immediately between Spider-Man and Green Goblin. And I'm glad it didn't happen because I don't think it really would have played all that well um, because it would have just felt lesser because we just got a fight right before that. So I'm glad that Dr. Strange made the save and we see the wizard's dungeon, and Otto Octavius is in a cell, but even before that, uh, as we see creeping up behind Peter, uh, the lizard has already been captured by Stephen Strange, and this is where we find out what happened, that even though they thought they had contained the spell, and they were trying to prevent people from knowing that Peter Parker was Spider-Man, well now, people who know that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, they have come through the multiverse and are appearing here and these are the first two that they found. And Peter also mentions that he just saw a green elf that Stephen Strange believes sounds jolly. Um, but they know they need to capture these multiversal visitors. Peter doesn't want to be seen fighting because he just got to a point where his MIT application be, can be considered. So Doctor Strange does some magic, magic stuff that Peter can use to fire one shot to send everybody to their dungeon cells. But Peter says he's going to need help. I like that Peter gets a great line in there. We talk about responsibility, accountability. So Peter, as a 17-year-old, saying, I know this is my mess, and I'm going to fix it. I, I, but that part I absolutely loved, and he does say, but I need some help, and that allows uh, MJ and Ned to get an invitation to the Sanctum Sanctorum. But that line from Peter was was critical for me, and that the idea of him owning this mess, even though, sure, Stephen Strange absolutely played his part because it was kind of his idea more so than anybody else to cast the spell that ended up getting messed up. Peter played his own part in coming to Doctor Strange in the first place and then also messing up the spell as Doctor Strange was trying to do him a solid and cast the spell. So Peter has his responsibility in there. It was great to see him accepting that and, and 
putting forth his commitment to clean up his mess. This, by the way, the transition when Green Goblin shows up and the pumpkin bomb goes off and they had that weird, crazy transition that trips me up every time. It's a great, it's a great transition. Yep. It's awesome. And seeing the lizard again, he, and again, it goes right from there to the lizard going, you know, and, and, and whatever is great. That transition feels kind of like a video game to me. And I don't mean it in a bad way. No, like, I agree. No. I, I think some people might hear that and think, well, well, I don't know why anybody would think it's insulting. Video video games can be awesome and have great storytelling, yeah. but um, it reminded me of kind of the the was the Scorpion sequences in the Spider Man PS4 oh, yeah. game because mm-hmm. those were a little those were a little Scarecrow sequence esque from the Arkham Batman game. So yeah, so like it, it kind of reminded it. It felt kind of like that with just the way that transition played to me. Yeah. Like we're we're very quickly at a moment's notice whisked into a different reality. Right. And we're not because it's still the same earth, still the same universe, but it just has that different feel. And obviously being a, a big part of Dr. Strange's world helps with that. Yeah. And this was, it was really cool to see that he's already kind of out, you know, he's pissed off and, mm-hmm. and you know, he being Dr. Strange and he's like, you got to fix this up. You know, like, I'll find my people. And again, I, it may, it, to me, it makes sense because he's already used them. They already know from, from far from home and who, who can he trust at this point? I mean, there's no Avengers team. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dr. Strange is mad at him. I mean, he's got, it's his mess. He wants to fix it. So all that rang true to me and, you know, Ned being the guy in the chair, if you will, uh, it all rang true to me. And I, I liked seeing the fact that obviously Dr. Octopus and Dr. Strange go off of each other and, and lizard, obviously, um, you know, he doesn't really talk at this point yet, but yeah, this was, all great building blocks to, you know, again, it's, it's progressed. The story is progressing at this point where it's really starting to like get like, oh man, it's the stakes are starting to get a little like they're, they elevated a little bit. Cause you see Dr. Strange is bloodied. He's, you know, he's, mm-hmm. it's not been easy capturing the lizard. So stakes are starting to get raised or raised, risen, risen, risen a little bit. And they're again, slowly it's, you know, we're, we're kind of understanding a little bit more of what's going on. It's really, really, Again, I love where it leads into because this, this is when the story really starts getting juicy. It really does. And I also like uh, this is where we get our first hint, by the way, when MJ and Ned show up at the Sanctum, Ned referring to he might have some magic fingers. And I love how when he talks about his fingers getting tingly and, and Strange says to see his physician, that line, I know, that, was that, amazing. that line cracks me up. But Ned, to Ned's credit, he does have some magical abilities, as we'll see and, and discuss when we get to those points in the movie. But when you mention things getting juicy, philosophically, they get juicy in this because we get our first hint of what's really happened, at least for the characters. They get their first hint of it because we already know, at least anybody who has seen the previous Spider-Man movies, we know what these characters have in common, these visitors from other universes they're dead. And what's interesting about it is they don't know that they're dead. They only know if somebody else was dead, as is illustrated here with Otto Octavius when he talks about how it's impossible because Norman Osborn is dead. He died years ago, as Otto Octavius says it. And Peter knows that Otto knew Osborn because he said his name when he saw Green Goblin back on the bridge. But him referring to that and saying that if you're you're going out into the darkness to fight a ghost, or that's not who they saw, but it, of course, is Norman Osborn, as we know. Just seeing that, and also 
I don't know if it's, I don't know if that's necessarily the intent there. I don't know that he's really wondering it at that point, but I, it does make me curious with Alfred Molina and his performance there. If, if Dr. Otto Octavius has any sense that he might be dead too, he doesn't totally seem to, but as he's wrestling with the idea and, and the nature of this reality, I don't know that he would be troubled just by seeing Norman Osborn alive, but wondering if this guy was dead and is now alive in this other universe, what would that mean for me? But I don't think all of that is fully clicking for Octavius just yet, but I also think a huge part of that is because he doesn't really want it to click just yet. I don't know if he really wants to ask himself the question in that moment, but the way he talks about Norman Osborn's death almost has me thinking that maybe that would be the case. But in any event, Ned and MJ are trying to help Peter find and track down Green Goblin as one of those multiversal visitors, but but that's not who they end up finding. Uh, They did get reports of some monster flying around, so go track that down. I like that. uh, I like Peter, like the stripped down version of his suit where it's just because he's got paint on the suit. He takes off the outer layer of it and he's just got the more techie side of it. And that's the black and gold suit that we've been seeing in the in the trailers. So the explanation behind that suit, because it's still just the same suit, I thought was really, really great. And when Peter, like the way they, the visual representation of this was also done really well with Sandman. Like they play it, horrors may be a little too extreme. It's not quite that level, but just a little bit of that creepy, sort of spooky type of vibe to it where you just see the little, you know, dirt clouds kind of pop up out of the ground. Uh, I thought was really, I thought that effect was cool. And this was, I mean, it's a brilliantly shot movie, but this sequence really, really shined. This nighttime sequence in the woods with, you know, the power lines and everything. The shot where Electro just starts emerging over Peter's shoulder. Um, And then the turnaround shot. There's a great turnaround shot where you see Spider-Man turn around. The camera kind of goes around, goes from in front of him to around behind him and looking up to where we see his view of Electro. It just looked gorgeous. Like, and I mean, that Mm -hmm. suit with the black and gold looks super cool. The nighttime shooting like looks great. And the way the camera movement, all of it just looks like a million bucks or 250, 253 million bucks and counting at this point. You know, I have gone on record saying I love that black and gold costume. I hate the explanation for it. It, I mean, it's whatever. I, I don't love it. I love the, the way it looks though. I want them. I want them to include this somehow in, in the comics. They, I think this is such a great design. I just they need to put it on there. I think it's great. I'll be honest. I missed. I did not get what happened really. How he got the black costume. I was confused the first time. I think I went to the bathroom. I was coming back right at that point. The second time I just kind of missed it. And the third time I went. Oh, he flips it. Oh, yeah, because okay. he's trying Whatever. to scrub the paint off, and then he kind of sees it's that on, outer yeah. layer coming off, and he looks at it and he just goes, "Oh, that that, is work. that a work?" Yeah, yeah. It, you know, and, and again. It's what it looks great. I I wish he would have worn it more. I mean, it's it's again to sell toys, and I've already bought two of them, so it worked. Uh, there you so go. It, it, <laughs> it's whatever. I I love it. I think this is a great design, honestly. Legit love it. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is interesting. I'm curious what you think of this, Sean, because I knew Sandman was in the movie, and then when he shows up in just a dirt cloud and just like a walking thing of dirt, I went, that's interesting, because. That's not you would, would have thought it would have been cheaper and much easier to just get Tom Thomas Hayden Church to mm-hmm. just show up and be in shape. 
And again, I don't know the reason, any reason why, but it makes me think like, did he not want to get, you know, they did, did not want to have him on set for whatever, whatever reason. I, I have no idea what's going on with Thomas Jaden or Hayden church uh, right now, but uh, I've always been a wings fan. Uh, and you know, and I love, I love them as Sandman in the original movie. So it was weird. And obviously they read again, jump into the very end real quick when they have her, they show him at the very end. It's obviously a, a shot for the, spider-man 3 it's very obvious so it makes you think is he just not in shape enough or not healthy enough to like be on set i don't know but it was interesting they went that route with a uh, sandman i didn't really think of it as thomas hayden i almost had the exact opposite thing although still okay. revolving around money so i was like well it's definitely cheaper to get him to just do some voiceover work for most of sure. it and then only have to pay him to be on set for one day and i guess it could be you weigh the cost of the CG versus the cost of the actor. Although these days I think the CG is more expensive than a lot of the actors, but uh, I don't mm. really know for sure what went into this, the decision. I think another part of it though is, well, Sandman looks cooler when he's sand or you know, made of dirt, whatever. Uh, that's sure. That's the cooler look. Um, but it's, I think it's also, I don't know, maybe it was a cost thing, but I also feel like it could just be one of the things of, Sandman is is playing the part that he's supposed to play in this story, but he's also down the pecking order a little bit. Like they definitely want you to pay closer attention to Norman Osborn, Otto Octavius, and Max Dillon. Those are the ones they want you paying the most attention to. Sure. And then yes, Sandman and Lizard are also here and things are kind of meaningful for them, but not as much as the other ones. And there's not as much of a turn for those guys really. And even for Sandman, because he was already leaning hero side in Spider-Man 3, which is kind of where we pick up with this one, where he's when he jumps into this, he's immediately helping Peter Parker and uh, helping him fight Electro and then, of course, uh, of course, regretting it. But I didn't really think too much about why it was presented the way that it was. I remember trying to go back to the first time I watched it. I'm acting like the first time I watched it was years ago. It was days ago, but, uh, you know. Yeah, it's been a long weekend. So um, it was a it, in, in going back and trying to think of how I felt after watching it the very first time. I do remember at one point thinking, when are we actually going to see Thomas Hayden Church? And are we yeah. going to see Thomas Hayden Church? But I also think it helps visually sell the idea of the cure when the sand kind of just drops away and you just see Thomas Hayden Church as Flint Marco then you realize that that's the cure. I think if you see him going back and, and looking like his regular self a lot, then you you might wonder what exactly has changed when you see uh, when you see because you want more of that visual representation uh, of the cure because yep. you're not going to get as much of a especially when you have an opportunity with Lizard and Sandman to get a physical transformation which you don't see as much of uh, with the other three who are cured uh, in this movie. But either way, I thought the action sequence looked great. Uh, I wouldn't put it quite on par with uh, with the bridge fight with Dr. Octopus. Agreed. But it kind of helps that the bridge fight is, is daytime and you can totally see everything, whereas this one, some things are, are obscured visually and they're kind of supposed to be, and it is big dirt cloud and with a bunch of lightning in it for uh, quite a bit of it. But it's really more, well, some of the action, there's some action shots in there that are really cool, but my favorite shots in this, as I said, are, are actually before the battle starts and, and I thought that it just looked uh it just looked great and um uh it looks like Mauro Fiore was the director of photography on this one. So yeah it was it was shot beautifully. It just it mm -hmm. looked gorgeous. But Spider Man with 
Sandman's help is able to stop Electro and leave him, as Electro puts it, butt-ass naked uh, in the woods where he doesn't like to be. And then we get that mistrust from Sandman because he sees Spider-Man zap Electro away and then wonders what exactly he did. And just as Sandman is about to lose his cool and have a new and Spider-Man's about to have another fight, he zaps him and Sandman is locked safely inside his cell. But uh, yeah, that action sequence, like the other one before it, not on the same level, but still really, really cool to watch. And then we get to let I think I might be skipping something here, but we do get to the scene in the alley. I'm trying to think if I missed something. Well, there's another conversation that I want to talk about where the characters realize what it means. Oh, go ahead. It, it basically, I think um, he talks to Ned and, and MJ. Right. He says, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to fix up the, the mess. Cause right. He's blamed by again. He's someone like, you know, uh, J. Jonah Jameson uh, profiting off something that, he, you mm-hmm. know, he didn't do. So he fixes everything. And then it, I think it, then it cuts to William Def- or uh, the Norman Osborn in the alleyway taking his right. mask off. Well, there's also there watching the conversation in the uh, in the dungeon where Max sees Lizard. And, you know, Dr. Kurt right. Connors and explains what happened to Lizard um, and how I, I love when Lizard is talking about there's I don't know if it's in this oh scene God. or another way about how he could fix Max and what it's by turning one. me into a lizard. He's like, exactly. That, that part was, uh, that part well, was also, awesome. And also acknowledges that, you know, oh, Max, you know, this new universe gave you a makeover. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> man, I love the fact they're acknowledging. Uh-huh. Like, we're just going to straight up acknowledge like. We're we're going we're going with this that yeah this this is a much better version of the character and, yeah and the, the fact they're acknowledging that yes he doesn't have everything he doesn't have the teeth doesn't have his comb over I'm like damn they're yeah. going for it yeah. I love it they were they were not shy at at going after some of the pitfalls of the yes. amazing Spider Man movies while also still making sure people know that they're amazing but uh, which you know I, I would dispute in the case of the second one but. I, I like that they didn't shy away from, you know, not everything in all these previous movies worked. We're celebrating them right now. We're having a good time with it. But that doesn't mean we are going to try and rewrite history and, and make everyone think that we think that they're perfect. Right. When we all know and really that they quickly, weren't. Yeah. And really quickly, I want to say um, the lizard looked great. Yes. I loved how he, he actually looked. had I mean, like, t- texture. Yes. Like he I actually loved the lizard. It looked well, it looked like scales. It actually looked yeah. like scales on his skin as opposed to he was just so weirdly smooth in The Amazing yeah. Spider-Man. It just like looked all glossy and whatever. I don't know. There's something about it that just didn't track. He looked really good. But yeah, yeah. he looked, looked great in this. You know, I, I'm still a sucker for the lab coat look to go with Lizard, but I get it. Sure. That, that sure. wasn't his look, so it wouldn't really make sense if you're going to have the same one. You know, you want to... You, you want to stay true to it at least to at least to some extent, even though Max gets a different yeah. look. But I guess Lizard and Lizard did too. But you know, not not all the comic book upgrades that uh, that I would have liked I for was, the character. Yeah. I was surprised how much I liked the Lizard in this movie. I mean, I didn't dislike him in the first movie that he was in, but I was I was surprised at how much I enjoyed hearing him interact with people and, mm-hmm. and hearing the accent. I'm like, man, like I'm really liking this version of the lizard more. Than, I liked him okay in the first one. The first movie is you know inoffensive as far as, far as that character specifically, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But but like seeing him interact with people and, and everything, I was like, man, like, I really I kind of I like this character. I forgot like yeah, this is a solid character. Exactly. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was awesome. And then let's let's talk about Norman Osborn in the alley. That was so great and such a 
awesome callback to the first Spider-Man mm-hmm. movie and and everything around that of you know the haunting of that mask and that mask kind of being the physical symbol manifestation representation of the goblin inside of Norman Osborn and I also like what it really shows there in that even when Norman Osborn tries to reject that side of himself and shatters that mask that it doesn't go away there. It's an important step in kind of locking up the goblin for a little while, but not forever. And this is our first real glimpse at Willem Dafoe back in this role. And it is a, a, a very good precursor to what is to come in the performance that he is going to deliver. Although in some ways or in many ways, really, I can't say that this properly prepares you for what he's about to do because it's very good. It's outstanding. And you already know going into this that Willem Dafoe is a legend for a reason. He's brilliant and always ha- always has been, always will be. So there is that. But yeah, this, this scene is great. And then it only gets better from here. This is uh, just an unbelievable performance from Willem Dafoe throughout. This was a great indication of what you're going to get um, I, I know they use some de-aging on all the actors who are older, um, uh, but William Defoe just looked fantastic yep. throughout this movie. And, and obviously it's a, it's a credit to his acting because he doesn't act like he's, you know, much older. He's, he's acting like the same character mm-hmm. for the most part. And he's moving maybe a little bit slower in certain things, but I mean, just a little bit, but you know, whatever, he looks fantastic. And, um, this to me was a was when he breaks the the helmet right off the bat. It, it immediately immediately told me like okay, they're trying to tell people we acknowledge that this is ridiculous looking. We're acknowledging mm-hmm. that you know it's this is the, we're gonna try to make things right in some ways. It felt, that's what it felt like from a outside the movie perspective. Which I again as someone who never really liked it but never really hated it. I was kind of bummed that we, it, it was tossed away so quickly and we only had the, like you said, Sean, the one shot of that one scene where he right. throws a pumpkin bomb and they immediately get rid of it in the sense of the story. It was, it was really important. So right. again, even though I, I was like, oh, come on guys. I mean, it felt it to me, it felt more like we're going to give William Defoe like, a, like a, a chance to show what he should have, what should have been. That's the it right there. Yeah, that yep. to me is what it more was, which at the time I was like, okay, I get it. But before I had seen any more other than other than that one scene. Then afterwards I went, okay, good. that was a good that was a good call. <laughs> so um it was bummed out at the time a little bit. I would have liked a little more with it, but it serves such a great purpose, I think, for the character at that moment, obviously. And it also tells the audience, like, hey, Again, we acknowledge that this is not really a loved costume, that the performance outshines it all the time. We're going to give you that performance finally. Exactly. It's showing that they never should have hid Willem Dafoe's face behind a static mask. Now, had they not done that, then we wouldn't have the visual iconography of that mask to where it, it means what it means when you see Green Goblin show up for the very first time in this movie. So it all worked out in the end. It's all just fine. But certainly you see Willem Dafoe as an actor. You want to see what Willem Dafoe is going to do with his face uh, because he does a lot of great things with it in his performance uh, in this movie as Norman Osborn. I mean, taking a performance that he did and a portrayal of a character that he did almost 20 years ago, 20th anniversary of the movie coming up in May of next year. I feel old. 
So we have his performance in, in what he did almost two decades ago. And I would say not only did he live up to that performance with what he did in No Way Home, he somehow surpassed it, which you should not be able to do as an actor to take a performance that you gave that was already iconic from a couple decades before, come back to it. Yeah. And a lot of times when you come back to it, you don't have to do that much because the audience is just happy to see you again. There you are playing that character we like you as. That's enough. Thanks for showing up. Let's all go home. That's not what you get here. He goes all out in this performance. And there will be a number of moments we will highlight as we continue going on through the movie. And yeah. it's Peter or Ned and MJ who, after Peter's done fixing things, they let him know that one of the guys that he's looking for, May has called, one of the ones that he's looking for has shown up at Feast. And I know Feast is from the comics, and I've seen it there, Paul, but I associate Feast more with the yeah. Spider-Man video game because of how many times you have to go there in the story <laughs> of the video game. And so that's what it reminded me of, which I think that's why they did it, honestly. I, there, yeah. are, there are moves that Spider-Man has in this that are from the video game that were animations in the video game. There's like the big, like double footed kick with the webs, like propelling him towards the ground. There's yeah. the flipping power bomb that he does oh on goblin God. at the end. Uh, that is also a move that's in the video game or some version of that. That's very similar is in the video game, but there were always those uh, side steps over to feast for a conversation between Peter and may that would lead yeah. to some other new mission or, or whatever it was. And so Peter, in the middle of an adventure, in the middle of a bigger adventure, having to stop by Feast and see May, felt very much like it was out of that video game. And I kind of feel like it was supposed to, because let's be real, that video game was wildly successful and oh, yeah. is a permanent fixture in the overall iconography of Spider-Man and the canon of Spider-Man across mm -hmm. different forms of media. That video game has a firm place in it, and so oh yeah, the idea that they would include that sort of and, and pay a, an homage to it in certain ways in this movie that feels right to me because it's just part of it and i like the way in, in a movie that is about inviting in and celebrating the entire mythology of spider-man well not yeah. all of it because there's some characters who don't pop up who we know we would like to and will one day but when it's celebrating so much of it to include that in there in, in those little ways um, i thought was uh, a really nice touch right. in, in some of those spots but even better than that of just going by and, and visiting Feast, there are some significant reveals in this. We talk about the performance, though, of Willem Dafoe as Norman Osborn. And, and in this moment, he is Norman Osborn. He's lost. The goblin's not there. He's talking about how there's this other part of him that kind of takes over. But in this moment, he's Norman Osborn genuinely seeking help. And all he could think of was to reach out to is to find Spider-Man. And Spider-Man was on the posters for Feast, so that's why he went there. But this isn't his Spider-Man. This isn't his Peter Parker. And one of the other big reveals we get in this moment, Paul, Oscorp doesn't exist yes. in this universe. Ooh. Which means we can now remove one of the major suspects of who bought Avengers Tower. Yeah. It could not have been Norman Osborn or Oscorp, which... The two big suspects were Oscorp and the Baxter Foundation. Well, one of them just fell off. So now we have the Baxter Foundation. Not that there aren't other potential buyers for Avengers Tower, but this puts the Baxter Foundation firmly in front uh, yeah. as the most likely buyer, I think, anyway, for, uh, for Avengers Tower. So that reveal 
for Dude. I mean, I, I don't think that was why they had him say it. I think it was more about making sure he's you know showing how lost he is and how alone he feels uh, being in this universe. But it's also a key piece of information for the broader MCU. There's a lot of actually that stuck out to me um, the second time. The first time I'm just kind of just buzzing from everything. And the second viewing is always the more informational viewing, I feel for me. The second time when he said that, I went, oh, okay. It made a lot more sense because of that reason too, right? That's the first thing I thought I was, okay, that pretty much almost guarantees the Baxter building is going to be, that that would be the Baxter building. Then I thought about what you said, the fact that he feels alone, blah, blah, blah. But it also establishes that this will probably be the only Norman Osborn this version of Spider-Man will fight. Right. And that is huge. We'll get that in a second or in a while. But that to me is what I think is really important for the character going forward. Because one of the things I, I, I took notes about, I took a lot of notes on this movie, by the way, that I was really impressed by was the fact that they, you know, it's very easy to go to those typical villains, right? I mean, obviously, Batman has Joker, and, and mm-hmm. the Green Goblin's only been portrayed by two different people. And ASM two was the last time he was here, wasn't too that it was a while ago now, but it wasn't widely, you know, loved or whatever. And what that was still you. a Harry Osborne Goblin. There's only been one Norman Osborne Goblin. It's yeah, Willem thank Defoe. you. Yeah, yeah. So, so with all that, you're thinking, okay, so where do you go from here? I mean, you can't, you you don't want to rehash the Goblin thing so much. So what they basically show you is that this green goblin is going to be the goblin for Tom Holland. And that was something I was not expecting. And again, we'll get into reasons why that's important, obviously, much really important. But it's really fascinating that they went that route and said, you know, because they very much could have easily, you know, Sony being uh, saying to themselves, hey, we, we need to save Norman Osborne. We can't have him fight, do this or do that because we're gonna, we want to introduce him again. They, no, they said this. They firmly say there's no there's no Norman Osborne in here. There's no Oscorp establishing the fact that this will not be something that Tom Holland will probably or very likely never mm-hmm. deal with again after this movie. So it's a big deal to me that he says all that. And so also for, it shows you. For it also Avengers, says how different these universes are, that not everything exactly. is like for like. So. If Norman Osborn doesn't exist in this universe, and let's expand on what is revealed later on by the other Spider-Mans, there's no Avengers in either of their universes. Mm-hmm. And that sets up the MCU. And I know we're jumping ahead here, but we're on the subject, so I'm just going to dive in here. It makes the MCU, even with the mid credit scene, it makes the MCU stand out as special because so far this seems to be of other of people from other universes and therefore have knowledge of other universes. The MCU yeah. stands out at how many superpower people it has and how many superheroes and villains that it has that makes it kind of unique. I think there are probably other universes because there are an infinite number of them. So sure, a lot of them are also going to have superheroes, but it still sells the idea that the MCU is something special, but it also shows that not every universe has a Tony Stark that you can pull from it. But also, because you're using Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield Spider-Man, Tony Stark in another universe isn't necessarily going to look like Robert Downey Jr. So it's not always yeah. in, in the way that maybe there was some worry, and, and I, I would have had some of that too, of will they use the multiverse as an excuse to just override death in the MCU that... Well, we can just pull from another timeline, another universe, and that's how we'll get uh, these characters back after we kill them. 
And there's still ways for them to do that if they so choose, but this the way they put it together in No Way Home shows they're not going to be so automatic about that, and they're going to be very careful. Right. And they've built in a mechanism so that the audience doesn't expect everybody in every universe, every timeline is going to look the same, which I know Loki variants also establish, but it's on another level here when you're having these mm-hmm. different... I, multiple iconic iterations of the same character coming together in this. And then also having another iconic character who you firmly establish is not present in this universe and was only part of yeah. this other one. Yeah. And I think that to me makes this way more a bigger deal. And I, I and again, I, I think it shows you what, where they potentially are going after. I mean, we'll get to that in a second too, or in a while, but in other Spider-Man movies, because they're not going to come back and rehash more goblin stuff. Like this is going to, again, this becomes the definitive ver- goblin mm-hmm. for Tom Holland. That's a big deal. Absolutely. And so, yeah, so there's, there, it really adds a lot there. And I went, whoa, that's a big deal. Cause it pretty much, again, slams the door on any, I mean, we'll get back to potential goblins in the future, maybe, but not going to be any Osborns. So that's if they even if they go the goblin route. So that's really fascinating. And like what you said, Sean, the thing they're you're acknowledging that this this version or these types of universes that the MCU, the sacred timeline is on. This is different than any other level that these heroes are even or are prepared for. And it makes it, again, that much more interesting of what what which drives Peter eventually too. it kind of adds the fact that this is. Even though there's no there's no Norman Norman Osborn on this world, what does that mean for Peter here when May eventually has this conversation here in a second? That's really important for right. the story. Um, so, but yeah, if you want to go, go on to that, well, I love that Aunt May got this moment with Peter Parker and and Marissa Tomei really gets to do a lot more in this than she's been able to in the first two movies and. I would say that she was really, really great in, I mean, she, her performances were great the whole time, but I really enjoyed her character in Spider-Man Homecoming, but then she was sidelined for a lot of Far From Home because of just the nature of that story, Peter going on a trip and she's not there, so it's really more checking in than anything else, but she wasn't really a full-time player in that story, and she's more part-time player in this, which makes sense, she's a supporting character, but Every moment that she has in this plays so well, and this is one of my favorites. My favorite happens later in in tragedy, but what she says to Peter here is, it's just so critical to his own growth as a character in this moment, and it's not even a lesson that he's going to fully take hold of. He gets enough of it, which is why he's going to end up in a fight with Doctor Strange before too long. But there's a lot of this here that that just continues to take root throughout this movie and will for Peter Parker going forward, where he knows that he made a mess. He's responsible for cleaning up the mess. But now he really needs to understand exactly what it is that means. And May is the one who's going to teach him that lesson. Because cleaning up the mess is, I brought all these guys here. They're not supposed to be here. I'm just going to go ahead and send them back. But May is able to get through to Peter in in reaching him, not right in this moment, but it does ultimately land with him where she's the one pointing out that you can see it right here that this guy is lost. These guys are lost and they need help. They don't just need to be sent back. 
I know they're not supposed to be here, but you brought them here and you can see they need help. And so if you know that they need help and you see that, you have a responsibility to do something about it. You have a responsibility to step in and try and serve them if you can. But that's not exactly what Peter's trying to hear as he's trying to say, it's not my responsibility and sending them back is what's best. Trust me. And I feel like Peter, as he's trying to convince May of that, it's one of those things where a character, they're also trying to convince themselves of it, where he doesn't really want to think about their fate. He doesn't really want to think about what it means, just they're from another universe or they're from other universes. If I send them home, then I've reestablished a status quo that they were already a part of. So it's all good. Everything's fine. But then he finds out that it's it's not fine. Because as she points out, is that what's best for them or best for you? And it's Peter definitely thinking more about what's best for him to just be able to clean up his mess and be done with it. Whereas May is the one expanding on the idea of what it really means to clean up the mess, what it really means to try and help and make things better. And for Peter, it's very sobering. In the next scene, we go back to the dungeon. And this is where we learn in the conversation that they're all dead where Sandman points out that it's not just Norman Osborn who's dead, it's Otto Octavius who's dead. It was in the news, impaled by his glider for Norman Osborn, that it was Otto Octavius who drowned in the river with his machine, and then Electro remembers that he was about to die, and then, of course, uh, Lizard is asking if he dies. We remember that he did. So that's what's going to happen to these characters. If you send them back to their universe without doing anything about it and without doing anything to maybe help them, then they're all dead. You are essentially sentencing them to die, which Doctor Strange rationalizes as this is all something that's already happened. This is their fate. This is the way that it's supposed to be. And in the grand scheme of everything throughout the entire multiverse and all the infinite possibilities and lives within the multiverse that their sacrifice of going back and dying the way that they always did in their respective universe, that that is a sacrifice that's worth everything that's going to be gained. It's the old trading lives equation and debate that we go back to from Avengers Infinity War. Here's the latest iteration of it in this argument between Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. And I love it. This is one of the better versions of that sort of conversation that we have seen in the MCU. And it really represents these two characters. And and I would say the level at which they operate, right? Because Doctor Strange is looking at the bigger picture of the entire multiverse. He's thinking about all of it. And he's trying to preserve all of it, which causes him to overlook the individual things that make it up to the point where this is what you're ultimately fighting for, it does boil down to an individual level. And that's the sort of thing that the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man sees. And he lost sight of it temporarily because he wasn't really thinking about what fate awaited these guys. He knew one of them was dead. He didn't know all of them were dead. And once that's made real to him, and he thinks back on the conversation that he just had with May, that... Cleaning up the mess means helping, and it means helping everybody who's in front of him, who he is in a position to help. That's Peter Parker. That's what he does. That's Spider-Man, and that is what this movie defines. And in really (laughs) stepping forward and and putting that definition on the screen and putting that stamp on this version of Spider-Man in the MCU, which we've seen through his actions in other movies, but to actually talk it out and put a pin on it and, and have the conversations about it, 
They do it so brilliantly throughout this movie. And this is the first big debate where you have Peter Parker arguing for his position. And it plays so incredibly well. This is something that took me a few viewings to really kind of grasp my head around. And we, we, I texted you, Sean, we, and I talked a little bit about it. And just kind of the whole reveal of Aunt May, you know, telling Peter, you know, is it your responsibility to fix them or to help them? And it just I didn't know what to think of it at first. And after kind of sitting with it and seeing it three times, I, I, I'm totally on board with everything because in, in essence, that is Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing I have to remember, and this movie does, I think, really kind of encapsulates uh, everything together, is that it tells you that this is not necessarily like the this is an origin story of Spider-Man, right? Like we're talking like three over three films. And we we see the elements of what like is Spider-Man, right? Like we see the elements that is uh, <clears throat> like all that we all love and, and everything. And, and people always complain, well, there's not this, there's not that. This movie does a great job of giving us what we eventually will get in, in f- future films, what we, people always wanted. But one of the things I think that is so essential to the character is sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that this movie really uh, drives home is when Aunt May tells him, he says, like, you know, is it, and again, is it is it easier for them or easier for you, you know, or whatever she says. And basically telling her, telling him, like, you know, you're going to have to sacrifice, mm-hmm. basically. And which we get an even further clear, you know, statement with, with the whole, we'll get to that. But I think to me, what made me realize that this is a, this is what Peter would do. I keep going back to what my basis is, which is the 616 comic books, right? I, I go back and go, no, Peter would do this. Like, my Peter would try to help these people. Mm-hmm. If I was reading a comic book and I would have read that he'd be like, yeah, we have some of these back. If they die, they die. It just wouldn't – it wouldn't be right. Right. And I realized, no, that that's totally – it goes against what Peter is. And Peter will fight. He will fight to the death. Doesn't matter if it's villain, hero, or whoever, he will protect those people. That's just how he how he is. I, I think back to uh, uh, Spider Man versus Wolverine. They have this big old knockout fight because you know he doesn't want Wolverine killing certain people. He's like, no, you're not killing anybody, even if they don't deserve it. You're not going to get it. <clears throat> you know, I'm going to fight you for it. And it's just that's who he is. Again, that's why him and the Punisher are such great adversaries, right? Mm-hmm. And so. All that said, it made me realize, no, this is exactly what Peter would do. He'd figure out some way because Peter in Spider-Man's essence. And here, Tom Holland's not there yet. He's still a young man. That's one thing our friend Justin Bolger, we were texting about, uh, Sean, he kind of convinced me. I, I was having kind of like, I don't know about this. And he, and he said, you know, he's a kid. Like, of course, he's going to be like, you know, he's going to be kind of apprehensive and, and be like, we're going to do this. And I'm, and I'm like, you know, what? that's a really good point. Like, he's going to be more apt to like, this is not my responsibility. You know, this is not my thing. You know, right. this is not my 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 issue. And I realized, no, that's exactly it. Like, he has this Peter has not grown up and we not like the other Spider-Man have in the, in the movies and even in the comic books. So it makes sense that he's just this, the whole trilogy is him becoming the real Spider-Man. Right. And I love the fact that the aunt may is kind of our, this is our first sign of it. Basically. I think that, that this, that she is the, the one person in his life constant. Um, we know that. And again, I say that, which will, Again, I'm, I'm treading lightly on. I'm not sure how far you want me to go on this, but well, I think what's different I, about just May and her position in this movie, where she was just kind of the cool aunt in the previous yes. movies. 
she was yeah. awesome, and Marissa Tomei is an amazing performer. So it's not to take anything away from those, but to have her really be the one imparting the moral lessons upon Peter, like that is what made it so special in this. And also yeah. showing that Peter's been through a lot and he's already a hero in so many respects. Let's remember in his very first solo movie, all the way up until the very end of their battle, he was trying to save Adrian Toomes, right? And he did save his life at the end of that. Yeah. He didn't just, when he saw that Adrian Toomes was about to fly away and he was about to explode, Peter could have just let him die because that was a bad guy, but that's not who Peter Parker is. And he did save him. And I think so. we already see that that is inherent to who Peter Parker is. And those are the choices that he would make. But even though he is, he's already a hero and he's already, uh, he's already Spider-Man, I think before this movie ends, before this movie even starts, but he's young enough to the point where I, I think what you learn as you get older is the, the totality of responsibility. There are certain basic things where, and even beyond basic, where Peter already did kind of understand on a higher level that, and it's just inherent within him, the decent thing to do if he's in a position to save someone, even a villain, that he should go ahead and, and he should try to save them. Because he, he's already done that in the MCU. But this is a situation where it's so overwhelming with how much is going on. And these aren't people from his world. This is not the father of the girl he's been dating or had a crush on or whatever. These are guys from a completely different universe. And he does understand. He he says it aloud before any of this that he knows this is his mess and he's going to clean it up. And but then it, it becomes it's it's such a a crazy uh moral and, and philosophical version of it of Aunt May as his mother figure telling him to clean his room. There's making it look clean and sweeping everything un, under the rug and, and cramming everything into the closet to clean up your mess or make it look like you've cleaned up your mess versus actually doing it. And this feels like the morally complex version of that, where Peter's made a mess, and he can clean it up, and he can even justify it. There is a moral justification, because I don't think Doctor Strange is evil for suggesting it. There is a moral justification for saying that what happened to these guys has already happened. It is what happens to them. This is the way it's supposed to play out in their universe, whether we like it or not, this is just what it is, and this is what it's already been, you could use that to get off the hook. But if you know that you could do more than that, or you could at least try to do more than that, to make that choice to try and do more, as Peter is motivated by May uh, and, and learns that lesson from her to go ahead and do it, to become a hero on another level, yet another level of self-sacrifice and responsibility that you're not just responsible for fixing your mistakes, but you're also responsible for doing the best you can to help those who need it. Right that's thing. what it really means to be a hero. And that's what it really means to serve. And that's why the message is there on the coffee cup. We are happy to serve because that's what Spider-Man's do. And that's what this Spider-Man does. Exactly. Well, well, well said. And I think that that's where, this really it kind of caught me by surprise because Aunt May does give wisdom to Peter. You know, it's not like he's she's just been kind of you know earlier in the comic book she kind of you know oh Peter where are you? She's like super old when she's like sixty years old, right? And right. That's what people you know whatever. But and the most fragile she, human being in the history of anything, right? Right. And so 
it is interesting. To see, I love this different version of Aunt May that we get. And let's be real. It is a little bit of departure from the previous films. Like you said, Sean, like she's more of the fun, cool aunt, which I like that. I, I love the differences of that different Aunt May. Right. I, I have, I'm not tied to like Aunt May one way or another because on the Spidey uh, podcast we do for Spider-Man uh, comic books, we talked about, because recently she had a team up with Dr. Octopus in the recent comic books. And, and there's been criticism of, you know, her voice and, you know, sometimes she sounds way younger. And I'm like, let's be real. Like Aunt May gets younger as like the comics go, because, you know, obviously the people who are write, writing her are there be, you know, the people are living longer and longer. So like Aunt right. May is like, you know, six years old, she's frail, or whatever in the sixties. And then like, and as she gets, you know, now it's like, she's a hip, super, you know, 60, 50 year old lady, which is again, it's fine. It, it makes sense. So, all that being said, this version of Aunt May was a lot more fun. It, you know, she's like the really the hot aunt, if you will, right? They played up for laughs. The one thing I I almost feel like we were robbed of a little bit after this movie, Sean. And I think you bring up the video game is a great point. I think the video game heavily influenced this movie. I don't yep. think it's it, there's no way you can like say that it didn't because it definitely did. Mm-hmm. And Tom Holland even talked about how much he played the game and how much he brought things to the table for it. It's for, again, that's what Chris told me. And I, Chris, when he tells me something, I, I'd say it's true. Um, and it is, I, I'm totally not surprised. And so all that, I wonder if they saw the, the video game and again, no spoilers for the video game, but it's not completely far off of what we got in this movie right. completely. I'll be honest, but to be fair, I do think that the movie or the movie looked at this and said, we got to give we got to give Aunt May the same kind of the deal as far as giving her some kind of clout because right. that's the one thing she was missing from the, this trilogy was that she didn't really give a lot of wisdom. She helped and was supportive, but this movie, even at the very beginning, with all the you know the lawyer stuff and and how she was kind of outsmarting the damage control guy, and she right. you can't keep this here. It really showed you that she has a lot of just smarts and she's a lot she's not just this, the hot aunt she's she is a very su- supportive character and, and very capable of herself and we didn't really get that in the previous movies very much and i feel like now after seeing this we were robbed and it, it's almost unfortunate that the move the video game had to kind of show the you know marvel you know so not marvel but sony and themselves like we got to give aunt may a little more i want to say agency but just a little more just umph and we got that right. in this one scene it's it, it was well it just makes me wish we had more of that throughout the movie and i'll get i'll, I'll hit more on this on the big one but well, it's just anyway. showing her in a much more specific way to be yeah. a central moral and philosophical influence on peter parker and, and his development as a young man becoming an adult you know as a young superhero becoming an adult superhero and just as a person never mind the superhero of it all I think it's more been implied like Peter is this decent kid and he lives with May. So she must be the one she's the one raising him. And therefore, she is a big part of why he's as decent as he is. It's one thing for us to assume it as an audience, but it's so much better when you live in that space with the characters. And I think this movie gives us that way more than the previous ones did. And those moments are are so great, like this one uh, at feet, like the one at feast that feeds into the debate that Spider-Man and Doctor Strange are having that shifts from, as the best superhero fights do, a philosophical debate that gets heated and escalates into a full-blown physical confrontation slash metaphysical confrontation. 
one of the better hero versus hero confrontations in the entire MCU. Might be the best, at least from a purely visual standpoint. There is so much going on here in this sequence between Doctor Strange and Peter Parker, just starting right outside the Sanctum. The way he had the little sling ring portals that brought Peter right back to the front door, and Peter had no idea that that's where he ended back up, where he ended up, um, and then knocking him out of his body with the whole astral plane and all that bit. But then I, I love that there's something about Peter Parker that's different from every, everybody else when they leave their body behind. He's his body is still defending the little has no weight box thing to keep it away from Doctor Strange, and then like the. There's the moment where with the sling ring, he makes Peter catch himself with a web by the ankle. I thought that beat was really cool. And then it's full-blown mirror dimension time. And it takes what what we saw in the mirror dimension sequence, the big mirror dimension sequence in the first Doctor Strange movie. And in so many ways, just blows it out of the water. Like, I mean, that's the wrong way of saying because that makes it sound like the other one's not, uh, doesn't nearly compare. That one's great. But clearly, they're building on it in big ways with what we see in this one with the trains, the Grand Canyon, and all of this crazy stuff. And Peter arguing with Doctor Strange, and that's what I love about it. The The conversation, the debate continues in the action whenever there's a break. And, and Doctor Strange trying to say, this is their fate, and you, you can't change that any more than you can change who they are. And Peter saying, but what if we could? What if we could change their fate? And that's the best way for him to make that argument because it's not about the certainty of we can do it and therefore we should because, yeah, you should definitely do the good things that you already know for sure that you can do. But the heroism in Peter Parker's choice is not even knowing that he can accomplish it, just knowing that it needs to be done so he has to try. That's a whole other level of being of that commitment to doing the right thing is not even knowing whether or not you're going to be able to pull it off but it is the right thing to do, so you have to try, and that's all that Peter Parker is going for here. So that's a great moment and a great argument for him to shout back at Doctor Strange. And then as Peter settles into the mirror dimension, he figures out that it's all just geometry. And so Peter uses math to overcome magic, and the way he traps Doctor Strange just looks so cool uh, and leaving him behind and, and doing exactly, by the way, what Doctor Strange was about to do to him. I'm going to leave you and come pick you up when it's done. Um, now it's the other way around. Spider-Man is leaving uh, Doctor Strange behind. Uh, but that whole confrontation between the two of them, visually, it's just a, a feast, no pun intended, for the location in the movie and video game. It's a feast for the eyes, for sure. But all of this stuff, what heightens these confrontations with superheroes is it has to be basing. It can't just be hero versus hero fight for the sake of having it, unless it's Hulk versus Thing because they both just like to fight and that's kind of how it ends up and I still want to see it desperately in the MCU, so please do it. That aside, uh, these superhero confrontations are at, besides Hulk versus Thing, are at their best when it is the philosophical debate. You know, It is a physical manifestation of a philosophical confrontation that two characters are having uh, and this one is uh, one of the best. I was not expecting this fight. I know there's it's in the trailer a little bit, but I thought it was going to be pretty much, you know, a very quick thing. Yeah, I thought it was this a very was a, quick chase and then Peter kind of gets away or something and then but yes. yeah, this this it, went no, no. well above and beyond what I was expecting. But yeah. I I also I think they I started seeing them show a hint of this at one of like the newer TV spots or after the second trailer and I was like, "Nope." And that was when I went on full 
blackout. Like they probably mm. showed more of this in other spots in marketing, but it was after that second trailer that I just was like, no, I, I, I don't want to see a single another single frame of this movie. Yeah, trailers are. I, I love them. The first two are always great. Give me the first two, and after that, I go dark. I'm done. With apologies for the digression, it's getting bad in marketing. Like there was a, yeah. a nice balance for a few years there, where especially with like the marketing for Infinity War and Endgame, where they were really careful about not showing too much. And I feel like in the last, certainly this year with the 2021 mm-hmm. Marvel movies uh, and even Disney Plus series to an extent, they've. They've been showing way too much in trailers. And so in the off chance that anyone is from uh, Marvel or Disney marketing is listening to that, please show less. Less is more. Yeah, less is definitely more. I I wasn't expecting this big old fight between Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. And it wasn't until I, or I was watching it with, the, with Chris and I, just, I leaned over to him. I said, we're getting Spider-Man versus Doctor freaking Strange too." What the hell? It's like I'm just mind blown. And a great and it, shot of Spider-Man with the uh, with the cloak of levitation on him, like yes. seeing that in live action. I mean, we saw a lot more of it in What If in animated form, but just sure, getting a little yeah. piece of it in live action, I enjoyed. You know, I and again, I, I I know I'm a broken record, and I don't care. I don't care, Sean. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna keep saying this. The writing of this movie is so fluid. It's so smooth that it incorporates so many different things. If you were to tell me, and I'm not going to go that deep into this, but all the things we would have gotten in this movie, I would have been like, this movie sounds like a mess. It Just outright. Like, all the things they wanted to accomplish. I don't care how long the runtime is. It just sounds like there's a lot going on. And the fact that this movie smooths and, and is so fluid and flows so well that when you had the Doctor Strange versus Spider-Man fight, it just, it goes, and it, it building character, and it only makes, everything makes sense, because the whole geometry thing, right? We all, we all know Spider-Man's, like, he's genius level. Like, he really is. And that's really important. And the fact that he's like, wait, the mirror dimension is just geometry. I love that. I mean, it, you did not need to have that in the movie. You could have very easily have said, Oh, well, we'll just have Spider-Man web up Doctor Strange and, and then peace out. No, no, no. You establish the fact that this guy is super smart and, you, and it's going to come into play. And also the fact that you're acknowledging to everyone that, you know, even besides what's going to come into play and what, what he's doing, he's smart. He can figure this stuff out. It's important for the character and, and motivates of why he's able to fix these people in the first place, right? All the characters. Just just love that you're, you're further establishing the character of what's going on and again, I know it seems obvious for all us hardcore diehard fans, but for the general general mainstream audience, they need reminders. Those things go a long way. And it's such a smooth fight that I'm just like, when I watch it, I'm like, I can't believe they incorporated this. And it's so good. It's so good. Hero versus hero fights are my favorite, especially when they have a great reason. Unlike Hulk versus Thing, which very much could just be Hulk looked at Thing funny and then all of a sudden they're brawling, right? I mean, that's essentially what they can happen, which I love. But hero versus hero fights are always ridiculous and, and over the top. But when they're given the right thing, the right reason to fight each other, it's perfect. And it just it can be so good. And this was no no exception uh, for this one. This is great, great reason for them to you know duke it out. And it made and it just it was a great visual thing to see. And I love seeing that Spider Man had the upper hand because of his smarts mm-hmm. and all of that. It was it was a great great fight. I have to say, like you said one of the best hero versus hero fights we've ever gotten in my opinion and peter being 
properly amazed and stoked that he beat Doctor Strange in a fight. I know, right? Like, I beat <laughs> Doctor Strange in a fight, and I totally won. Just was perfect because you would be amazed by that. You can't think if, despite all that Spider Man has been through and his powers and all that stuff, there's no way. This is a guy he calls Sir, right? There's no way he thinks he's going to win a fight with the magician, with the wizard, Doctor Strange, and yet he does because he's able to just spot something that makes sense to me. He identifies, or to him, he he identifies math within the mirror dimension, and he takes advantage of it because he's really good at geometry. I love that. Uh, Matt Murdock's a really good lawyer. Spider-Man, really good at math. So uh, that was awesome, and I'm glad you call out the writing. I mean, Chris McKenna, Eric Summers, they're very quickly getting into that Marcus and McFeely territory. Mm-hmm. And I know that's the stuff of legends when we talk about writers in the MCU. But if we look at what they've done, they were, I mean, I know there were a lot of credited writers on Spider-Man Homecoming, but that was kind of where they first broke into the MCU was jumping onto that one. And then they did Ant-Man and the Wasp. And then they did Spider-Man Far From Home. And then now Spider-Man No Way Home. And I think with Homecoming and now with No Way Home, I mean, I like Far From Home and Ant-Man and the Wasp, but Homecoming and No Way Home are on a different level of MCU movies, uh, and these two guys have been a part of each of those. They also wrote the Lego Batman movie, which remains just terribly underrated. That movie is so good. So these guys get superheroes, and I was so happy to see uh, what they did with No Way Home. And also... John Watts directing this, and, and I was yeah. saving this to the end, but I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll throw it out there now. How lucky are we that this guy has directed a Spider-Man trilogy and the next thing he's going to go do is a Fantastic Four movie? It just, wow. Um, and also, it just works very well with the point that he rules out Oscorp as a buyer of Avengers Tower, mm. uh, and the next thing he'll be doing is Fantastic Four. So I, I totally uh, I totally love that. He's also the one who introduced the idea that Avengers Tower was being sold. I mean, how far in advance did he know that he was going to be able to direct Fantastic Four to clear up that, uh, that choice real estate in the MCU's version of, of New York City? But anyway, uh, great writing, great direction, as always with uh with john watts and then we see that uh, as peter gets back he's beaten dr strange and now they're gonna go try and fix all of these guys and and not like Otto octavius fixed like a dog going to try and cure these guys of uh of everything that's causing them to act like villains and and that everything that's leading them to this fate where they end up dying how can spider-man try to save them and one of my favorite line deliveries that we get from Willem Dafoe happens here when he's like, oh, I can help. I'm something of a scientist myself. <laughs> I've seen the audience just crack up at that one every single time. Yep, same. Um, and, and rightfully so. It's, it's done very, very well. So we're headed back to Long Island to the spiritual oasis. We see the Stark fabricator. So we do get a little bit of Stark tech helping things along uh, in this movie. And you are going to need a magical fabricator machine to make a cure for five arch villains all at once. So sure, why not? Um, and I don't really care because that's not what this movie's about. It's not about the science of it. It's really about the decision to help and the decision to cure them, at, the decision to cure ass instead of kick ass, as it were. So uh, there's another great moment among so many just, I mean, what a ridiculous supply of of great moments between <laughs> between characters in these movies. But there was always that bond of Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker really impressing 
Willem Dafoe's Norman Osborn in Spider-Man in 2002. Uh, so much so that you know, Norman Osborn's uh, actual son, Harry, was very jealous of that. But anyway, when we see, we saw that bond in 2002, and now in this other version of Peter Parker that Norman Osborn is meeting, sees those similar traits, you know, and sees the brilliance of Peter Parker, and even offers him a job. Like, if you don't mind commuting to another universe, there's a place for this version of Peter Parker at Oscorp. I thought that was great. And then just the the happiness as they discover the fix for Otto Octavius to repair and, and over or stop the arms from overriding the damaged chip that's allowing the arms to control his mind, all that stuff. Just Norman Osborn being so amazed by Peter Parker and that bonding moment between the two of them. It, it was already great the first time I saw it, but I, I didn't know exactly what was about to happen, but it makes what's about to happen so much more tragic that in that moment, I do believe that because it's Norman Osborn, not the Goblin, that he genuinely likes and cares about this kid, Peter Parker, that he, this version of Peter Parker that he's just met, genuinely likes him, cares about him, is impressed by him, but that's not going to matter when the Goblin takes over. And uh, we see that after they have the fix for Dr. Octopus, they use that. And it works. There's a moment there where it looks like maybe Doc Ock is dead. No, he's fine. And uh, it has worked. And great performance by Alfred Molina when he's just the relief of the voices have gone silent in his head. He finally has himself back and all of himself. No other distractions, no other voices having any sort of influence. And his genuine gratitude toward Peter Parker for providing that fix and allowing him to get himself back and then a great Spider-Sense moment. I know the Spider-Sense slash Peter Tingle slash whatever has been a topic of debate and varying consistency in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is one of my favorite versions of it. We saw it throughout this movie where long before the threat actually emerges, Peter already detects it. And this is the coolest example of it where nobody else has even recognized that Norman has turned back to the Goblin. And even Peter doesn't visually see it right away, but he senses something's off, and then he narrows in on it, fires the web, and what a great moment from Willem Dafoe talking about how that's a great trick you have with that little sense of yours. And then when they say Norman and another wonderful, just gleefully wicked line delivery from Willem Dafoe of Norman's on sabbatical, honey. Uh, Just Mm. so good. Um, But you mentioned uh, Aunt May stepping up, not just in philosophical hero mode, but like physical hero mode. She sees what's happened, and then she immediately goes for the cure, gathers whatever weapons she can. She knows that they're in for a fight and that this is going to be difficult, but we see her making the moves to try and get ready in order to have this, uh, in, in order to try and survive this confrontation, and maybe be able to cure Norman Osborn in the process. In the mean, uh, in the meantime, as this cure has been has been being developed for Doctor Otto Octavius, there was another one for Electro that's not going to go through, of course, because why would it? We need to save him for the finale. But everything starts going to chaos. So we see, and meanwhile. J. Jonah Jameson has been tracking Peter Parker. Lizard's in the truck outside. As chaos ensues, Lizard escapes. We see that Otto Octavius goes away, Sandman and Electro go away, and it turns into a confrontation of it's Peter Parker and Aunt May versus Norman Osborn as the Green Goblin. And 
this is a, a whole other level of arch villainy that Willem Dafoe finds here in his performance in these moments. The moment where Peter is punching him repeatedly and it turns from absorbing the punches to smiling back at the punches, that was awesome by Willem Dafoe. Like, that was just so scary and evil and creepy. I don't know why anybody would have ever thought that, myself included, to give Green Goblin a mask. Not when it's Willem Dafoe. Just let him show his face. The guy makes great, wicked, evil goblin faces just with his face, as he shows in this movie. He is so good in this whole thing. But it's not just about how wicked fun it is. We're getting into the theme of this movie. We're getting into the the battle for the soul and the battle to be decent, the internal conflict to be decent and to choose the good thing, the right thing to do, to choose morality over everything else. But Norman Osborn has a test for Peter. And the way he even says it, morality is your weakness. And there's other lines that he has in there before the, the fight happens when he's talking about how gods don't have to choose. Gods take. And talks about Peter, like, strong enough to have whatever you want, too weak to take it. Then he says, morality is your weakness. You tried to fix me. And then as he holds Peter up and looks at May, I'm going to fix you. And... That means he's going to fix Peter by, uh, by killing May, and we see it happen. The goblin glider goes right into her. Not that it's clear she's going to die at that point, although I was like, gee, I was thinking, yeah, she's definitely not going to make it. That's what the villain is supposed to do, right? It's not just the villain. I mean, you could say it's a little Joker, Batman, Dark Knight, corrupt the hero, and, and all of those things, and, and sure, that's fair, but this is a really... But it's not like the Dark Knight invented it. It's been part of storytelling and heroic storytelling for a very long time. To face, the, to put the hero uh, with this type of choice, and do it in a way that manipulates the hero to to motivate the hero to make the wrong choice, and that's what it is. He's going to try and fix Spider-Man to remove that weakness of morality, and how can he do that by making Spider-Man angry enough to kill himself, to kill the no, not kill himself, to kill the Goblin? That's what he's trying to do because if he can make Peter cross that line, then he knows that he's fixed that morality issue with Peter, if he can get Peter to at least try to, or actually go all the way through with it, killing Green Goblin. So that's, that's the whole part of it. You, I win by you killing me, and that's what Goblin's going for here, and it's done so well. This is heavy, man. Um, I, first of all, shout out to the fact they have the, the purple sweatshirt on the mm-hmm. entire time. And they're slowly moving him into like what the again I, comic book accurate yes but just it's it's an Easter egg but I think it's important because again they're further going into the idea of like we're we're fixing what should have been in the first movie um, with with a uh, uh, William Defoe with the reveal of of, of 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 obviously we knew it was coming at one point but when Green Goblin shows up again. And starts talking to Spider-Man and Aunt May. It's like, at first, you're kind of like, okay, you expect it. And then their fight happens. And things get crazy. Mm -hmm. And and that, to me, was when it started shifting to like, oh. Like, this isn't just, you know, your typical, like, I'm a bad guy. You're a good guy. No, like, there's 
or obviously, you know, he said this some some similar things to Tobey Maguire Spider-Man in the first film, right? Mm-hmm. That's these are all things that he kind of similarly said similarly, you know, similarly um, to the previous film. Obviously, he couldn't kill Aunt May in the previous film, right? Right. Like he, it's he's it stopped him. Like Norman stopped him. He said, "Do it," you know. He couldn't do it. And now with this, this is a little bit different. That. Um, he it almost felt like Norman almost took almost got rid of the goblin completely. And that if like the fact that that goblin had a t- that personality side had to take over completely. Um, it like again, it's it got to the point where he's fully in control now mm-hmm. because it's almost at the, that defense mechanism. The fact the fear of actually losing like his existence, he had to, you know, pop up again. And or again, who knows for how long he, he's already been there. But when he shows up and they start fighting it's I can just it, just from a tonal shift, Sean. It, for me, I'm like, okay, this is different. Like the fact that you know, Spider-Man's fought villains before, right? He's fought Thanos, and that was brutal. And he was tossed around like you know, on a planet and all that stuff. And it was, it's you know, it's a whole different thing, you know, when you're fighting with someone and you're on your own planet, mm-hmm. your, your aunt's right there, your loved one's right there, and they're beating the snot out of you. Like, it's not just like, you know, you know, right. going flying off and you're, you know, flying around and you're, you know, almost die. It's a little different. I feel like it's, it's a lot more like scary for Spider-Man because, because the fact that he's going up against this guy that's ma- matching him blow for blow and it's not, he can sit, stand on top of him or, you know, and punch him in the face a thousand times and he's just laughing at him. And again, mm-hmm. I got shades of dark Knight with that part. Yep. But again, I, I think that's intentional, a good intention, obviously. And with all that said, I, I just it felt like, man, like this is it almost was I could almost feel for Peter Parker in that scene or in that whole sequence of fight scenes with Goblin precursor, you know, to the, when they go to the bottom floor that the Goblin's giving it to him. And he's like, wow, like I am. Tr- this guy is threatening my aunt and I am like he's going at me like mm-hmm. he's not I, he's not making me chase him. We're going at it, and he's kicking. We're we're, we're at a standstill. I, I'm not just taking him out. Like he's, he just took me down three flights of stairs. And obviously the lizard comes in and helps out a little bit. And I love the lizard. The fact, like you know, he said, "I warned you about this, Peter. Like I told you." And he did. He tried to warn him. You know, like I, I love the fact that Peter's learning about all this. This is all again. The whole three films are is a learning experience. And I go back to the spell. Mm-hmm. Of what happens, we're gonna go back to that, and I, get, oh, well, I can't wait to talk about that eventually. But all this is a learning experience for Peter. He's learning the, the consequences. You know, there's consequences for all of your actions, whether they're good intentions or not. And he sees this that that you know the Green Goblins now got him, and he's like, just he can't he can't take him. It's it's, it's it is a liter- he's literally you know pound for pound his equal. And when he drops him down so many buildings, I just feel it. It just, you feel the danger. It's really impressive. The fight they have it and with the music. And again, a lot of, I think the, the, the common occurrence in these films is to have a silent fight, right? To have the, the Bane versus Batman fight in, in the dark Knight rises where it's empty and there's, it's, it's, there's no music. It's just pure, you know, just them brawling. And I think that's a, a, that's a lot of times the right way to go. With this, with the with with uh, Michael Giacchino's uh, again Giacchino, whatever his name is, uh, music, yeah, thank you. Uh, his music playing just adds really a, again that word weight, a lot of weight to this fight where it just feels different. 
you know something bad's about to happen or this is not a good thing. And, and it's never good when the hero loses or losing. But it's again, the way it's shot, the way it's the way the action was and how brutal everything is, you haven't really seen that in not, not, not necessarily a Marvel film, but with Spider-Man in particular in almost all of his films, maybe barring the first film with, with the Green Goblin. When he's like, you know, it's like, but again, that was silent and it was right. like them kind of just punch each other for a while. So well, I this... thought his fights with Dr. Octopus and Spider-Man too were, were also pretty physical. I, I think for MCU Spider-Man, it's not come across quite that way. I mean, even for something sure. that was very, very chilling, one of the best scenes in the history of the MCU in the car, Michael Keaton's Adrian Toomes, Tom Holland as Spider-Man and Tom Holland is, uh, or as Peter Parker going to the dance, the homecoming dance just completely frozen in fear with this guy. And so there was that menace from an antagonist in Spider-Man Homecoming, but the difference here is that Adrian Toomes doesn't actually want to kill anyone. Even go back to the person he did kill from his own crew in Spider-Man Homecoming, he didn't even mean to, just thought that was like the levitation gun that he hit him with him. No, he disintegrated the guy. Didn't really mind that much, but it wasn't the intention to kill. And if he wanted to kill Spider-Man, he totally could have, he just didn't want to because that's not really the level of killer that Adrian or level of villain that Adrian Toomes is. But when Norman Osborn is on sabbatical and it's just the goblin who's taken over, that goblin is a monster. And that's what you get in this sequence. He is relentless. He is powerful. He is brutal physically and emotionally with what he does to go after Peter here that he's Totally willing to kill Spider-Man, but he could also do something to hurt Spider-Man even worse, which is go after May and make Peter watch that happen. And that is exactly what he does. And it play that whole sequence really sells a different threat level emotionally and physically than what we have seen for Peter Parker up until this point. And it just it really shows a, a degree of escalation for this franchise and for this character, this iteration of Spider-Man. And when Goblin comes in, that wicked smile, going back to Willem Dafoe's performance, when he has the hood on, because you mentioned they have the purple sweater, and you see the green armor from the original suit. So all of that costume is kind of putting together, and he completes the look with the glider and the hood, and that wicked smile on his face as he's about to throw the pumpkin bomb. And I, I think... Maybe the most evil part about that is that Goblin comes in to throw that pumpkin bomb already knowing that he doesn't need to. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's just another way of the emotional torture of it all, of just giving Peter hope that he's saved his aunt when Goblin already knows that he hasn't and there's nothing that he can do that she's already done in by what he's already done by striking her with the glider. So Peter makes that save and it seems like everything might be okay. May gets up and he's talk. Peter is talking about how he's made these mistakes and she's the one talking about even knowing that these are her last moments, talking about how what they've done, it is the right thing. And she's still saying this regardless of what's happened, what's just happened to her, what she has seen happen to Spider-Man, that even though they've been hurt in the process of doing the right thing, that doesn't change the point that they were trying to do the right thing, and that is what really matters. And she gets to say the line that nobody else has ever said. They've said different versions of it, but she's the only one who ever gets to say in live action the full original line 
from Amazing Fantasy 15 with her telling Peter Parker slash Spider-Man, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. And I didn't know I needed to hear this line in the MCU. I didn't know I needed to hear this line. I certainly didn't know I ever needed to hear the line coming from May. But to hear mm-hmm. it coming from May in this moment, just, I mean, I, emotionally, I was spent. I, it just completely threw me for a loop. It pulled every heartstring I had. It punched me in the gut. Whatever other emotional thing, effect you can dream up, it all just came crashing in right then and there. And I, I knew it when she, I mean, I felt like when she first got up that she was going to go back down. But after she said those words, as the Spider-Mans point out later, this is one of the last things that an Uncle Ben or an Aunt May gets to say to Peter Parker. And it's the ultimate lesson that he has to learn and keep in mind with everything that he will endure in the future. So for Aunt May to give him that line, the original version of the line, uh, and have that be kind of the last lesson that she that she gives to him before she passes away, I was torn in that moment. I, I was hating the fact that Aunt May w- was dying, but I was also in love with how beautiful this scene was. Yeah, this was... I was not prepared for this moment at all. This is a to me one of the biggest reveals um, for many different reasons. For the one you've talked about, the emotional impact of what's going on in the story right now, which I'll, I'll talk about first. This was a giant, giant thing because we hadn't heard this. Ver- you know, every movie has a different version of it, and it's all essence again. With with great power comes great responsibility, or like what she said, the full actual quote from the caption. That's not quote. That's not from Uncle Ben. Right. It's just the narrator of Amazing Fantasy fifteen. And what's interesting about that is what I, again, what I love about it is what she talked about previously in the conversation at feast when she says, you know, we have you know you're. Yeah, we have a duty to do what's right. Mm-hmm. And they don't mention the line. And, you know, when he's like, I should, you know, I, we should have done it. She says, no, you have great power, Peter. And it's obviously he hadn't heard it before. Right. And that was a big deal for me. That was, that was kind of a, a gut punch for a number of different reasons. Because at this point, I always assumed he had. He alludes to that line a little bit in Civil right. War when he has that conversation with Tony Stark and he talks about how if you're someone like him, if you're, if you're in his position, it's kind of dancing around it, hinting at someone has said with great power comes great responsibility to him, but he's just not echoing that. But they didn't commit to it in such a way where you would say that was definitely something that someone said to him. It was more of us making the assumption that he must have heard it, but they totally had the space left out there to, do it this to revisit it this way and say, look, Mm -hmm. we've never actually shown anybody say this to him. And and he's never said those words himself. Let's give may the opportunity to say it in this moment. And as wonderful as it is to hear that line and and the way that it's delivered and the time at which it's delivered in this story, all of that is outstanding, of course. But I would also say like just the other stuff that he carries forward, the, the line that gets repeated a, a couple times by the spider is like, that's what we do, or it's what we do. She's the one who says that at feast, talking about with helping people, helping people. That's what we do. It's not just about clean up the mess to make things go away that you, you brought in that aren't supposed to be here, but they are here now, and we have an opportunity to help. So that's what we do, because helping 
is what we do. Serving is what we do. And then she sums it all up with, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. If you have the power to act, if you have the power to do good, to do the right thing, it is your responsibility to do to help out. It is your responsibility to do that good, that right thing. Um, and so for her to be able to say that to Peter in that way, in that moment, it's, uh, as I said, emotionally, there's this, there's this weird, there's this tricky balance that's there where as the viewer, I I am hating what's happening with this character who I, yeah. we love and is about to, is about to pass away. But then at the same time, the, the effect, the impact that this moment is making in the story and on this character of Spider-Man and what this means for May too, as a character and her legacy in the MCU and, and outside of it, um, this is just a, a great moment for that character. Yeah, and I think that what with that reveal that he hadn't really heard that before, which was a big was a big deal for me, and I didn't know how to take it after she said it. And again, I think for this version of the character, I was fine, but I kind of thought about it. I'm like, you know, what does that mean? But in the moment of the movie, it was such a gut punch, and it started making me think. It started again, it started making me think about how much these three films are the origin of this version of Peter Parker. And how different everything is in this version. Going back to what I was saying before, it really celebrates Spider-Man and just like Into the Spider-Verse and just like this movie has shown that every iteration of Peter Parker is going to be different. Like everyone's, you know, my Spider-Man is not the original six, the 1963, you know, high school kid Spider-Man. And he's evolved since then. He's still very, very much. And I would, I have argued on other podcasts too, that his voice is still there in the comics. It's, it's, it's his personality is altered slightly, but it's pretty much the same. And I think that's, that's because he's, he's such a great character and, he, and people know how to write him. But it's interesting because this movie celebrates the fact that this is not going to be every version is not going to be that everyone's same version. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as the essence of the character is established. And although a lot of those people belly aching over Iron Man Jr. And I'm sure some of them have maybe have issues with this, but I don't care because to me, what I love about this MCU version of Spider-Man is that this origin story we've gotten over Civil War, over Infinity War and Endgame and all three of his films, we're seeing the, the, the development of a young man become a hero, become and truly understand what it is to become a hero. And to me, and again, everyone can interpret what I love about art, whether it's be commercialized or artsy fartsy crap or whatever. What I love about art in general is everyone's going to interpret things differently. I always interpret with great power comes great responsibility, a sacrifice. And it's a, it's a big to me. And that's the message I got the message I got out of it. And granted, like I'm, you know, I'm more emotional these days in general, just because, you know, have having a child in the last two years and all we, we mean you've gone through personally, mm -hmm. you know, and everything it's like, I just look at this and I'm like, man, like I take so much out of this of like, you know, you have to like take responsibility and move on and, and also like and, and learn and, and take what you have, what you can from from these mistakes or, or these things you go through in life. Yeah. And there's so much here when she says that to Peter. And it's just it's such an impactful thing. And I look and again, I look at all these films and all the things that he's learned to me. It makes this movie so special. And we'll, again, we'll get to more in the ending. But to me, this is what echoes everything going afterwards. 
and just knowing that this is the essence of what Spider-Man is. To me, as long as Spider-Man, or whether it be Ghost Spider, or a Spider-Woman character, or whatever, as long as it echoes what I think is so valuable to the character, which is with great power comes great responsibility, which is sacrifice. I just feel that this moment just, it kicks me in the gut. And it kicked me in the gut the first time, but I told you before we were started recording, Every time I see this part is this movie, I get more emotional. I get more emotional mm-hmm. as I watch it. And this scene really affected me today when I watched it before we watched we recorded. It hit me really, really deep. No one wants to sacrifice. It's so hard. It's so hard to take to put yourself second and third and put others before you. And that to me is what Peter Parker does. He puts everything above himself. And anytime he doesn't, that's when things happen to him that are wrong, it feels like. And that to me is the essence of Spider-Man, is sacrifice. And to me, this movie is all about that. And we get the ultimate here of, of him learning that and how awful that can be. It's it just sometimes, even though it's the right thing, it's just, it's impactful. And I think to me, like it's just such a powerful message in this movie of sacrifice. And yeah, this, this, this scene is so important to me. Um, and just, it's so, it's so, it's such a, it's a big moment. It's, uh, it's an all timer for MCU for sure. Couldn't agree more. It is an all timer. It's the kind of scene I'll just, I mean, amongst a number in these, but you know, you mentioned what you and I have been through the past couple of years emotionally. And I found myself in, in this scene and I, I found myself in, in other scenes, especially when a couple of Spider-Man show up and one in particular, uh, we'll we'll say his name on the show because he was part of a, a spoiler review that was yeah. all it was longer than this one might end up being. Although who knows at this point they might end yeah. up matching each other. John Beerley would have loved this movie. And yeah, Justin, I said the same thing. We said the same freaking thing, man. He would have loved. Uh, he, he absolutely, positively would have loved this movie, and he would have loved yeah. um, so many of the moments in this. And uh, he certainly would have loved. Uh, what happens here with, uh, with Aunt May, not that she dies, but he would have loved that she gets to say that line, uh, and everything yeah. that she teaches Peter in this movie. And, uh, if you don't know who John Beerley is, cause I recognize we have a lot of new listeners within the past year who, you know, found us because of spoiler reviews for WandaVision and, and Loki and, and whatever else. And well, welcome. But, uh, if you don't know who John Beerley is, you can go back and listen to, uh, he's a friend of ours who who passed away a couple of years ago, um, or almost two years ago next month, and he uh, he's part of our. You can hear him in our Avengers Endgame spoiler review and how brilliant he was and, and his amazing understanding and, and insight into these stories that we love so much. Um, and then also we we paid tribute to him a couple years ago, uh, so you can go back and and you can listen to that as a as a modern myth media episode from which this podcast ultimately uh, grew. So make sure you you check that out because we we love and miss John and he sure would have yeah. loved this and I hope somewhere in some universe he uh, he saw it and, and loved it as much as I'm I, as we know he would have, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah this this whole sequence was just I mean it was all so incredibly good and then uh, we get Peter at his lowest point right because he's lost Aunt May and his friends know that he's lost right now and those friends being Ned and MJ. And they just want to be there for him. And this sets up Portals Part 2, Spider-Man Boogaloo, I guess we'll call it, because we get (laughs) another great Portals sequence in the MCU. Although this one, very quiet, very understated, totally not the way 
I was expecting these characters to arrive in this movie, but I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. This was absolutely the choice of how to do this. A lot of times when you and I were speculating about this, mm-hmm. I was just thinking, oh, okay, they'll throw them in final battle because Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, there's no way they would have spent a bunch of time on set to do this. They would have just done you know, a quick little action beat and then CG the rest of it and, and call it a day. No, that's not what happens. And I am so relieved by that. Like we talked about different moments they could pop up and a lot of it revolved around the final battle, but where they pop up here very, very quietly in a very unassuming type of scene slash environment and set, here they are as Peter and MJ are just wishing they could see, find Peter Parker or Spider-Man and the first one they find, if you remember those movies, you recognize that version of the costume immediately Although I, I see everybody holding their cheers until the mask comes off, and it is yeah. Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker slash Spider Man, and it was—I was surprised at just how great I felt seeing him. I mean, I—I I don't have the same attachment to those movies that I do the Raimi trilogy, and it's not—I know it sounds like it's a knock on those movies because how could it not be? Look, I, I don't like them as much as the first two Raimi movies, but at the same time. They are still Spider-Man movies, and it's still a character that we love, and it's still a collection of stories, a mythology that we love. And also, I still really love the first Amazing Spider-Man movie. I really liked it in 2012. I still like it now. Just because I didn't really care for the Amazing Spider-Man 2 doesn't mean I'm going to go back and revise my stance on the uh, on the first one. And so seeing this version of the character, and he is still part of Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man, still part of that mythology and the broader canon of Spider-Man across all forms of media. And so seeing him was great. And the reaction to him was awesome. Like MJ throwing the bread at him. Like, where's your little tingle thing? Oh, I got the tingle thing. It just doesn't happen with bread. Mm -hmm. And how he proves it, that he just sticks himself on the ceiling by the tips of his fingers. But then she wants him to crawl around, which he did not, which he refuses. But then he has to anyway to grab that cobweb for Ned's Lola. Uh, I thought was just, that was just the best thing. And that's what Peter Parker's all about. Because he's also going to be very polite when he's in someone else's home. And so while he's not going to crawl around on command for MJ... If Ned's grandmother needs a cobweb cleared out, yeah. then he's going to go ahead and he's going to do that. Um, and uh, so just a, a great arrival and, and uh, as good a moment as any to talk about how good Andrew Garfield was in this. They played this and he played this perfectly. Oh, my God. They knew how to toe the line of just establishing that, look, this guy's valid as Spider-Man. He is. Word. And those movies are valid as Spider-Man movies, even if the quality not quite up to par on that second one. It's still there, and he's still part of it, and he's still part of the legacy of Spider-Man, and an important part of the legacy of Spider-Man. So they did that. They validated that in, in really wonderful ways, while at the same time acknowledging that he's not as beloved as Tobey Maguire or Tom Holland, that his movies are not as beloved as those movies, the ones that have starred Tobey Maguire and Tom Holland. And even leaning into some of the not-so-great tendencies and overused elements of those movies, like, for example, Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man still, or his Peter Parker slash Spider-Man, still cries a whole lot. It's the most emotional version of Spider-Man that we have ever seen and probably will ever see. 
he's boohooing at the drop of a hat, but hey, that's kind of his thing. So I didn't really mind that. And Tom Holland's Spider Man still cries a fair amount. And Toby Maguire did his share of crying, yes. and that's okay. Yeah. Crying is good for you. It's a good, Absolutely. healthy thing to do. But one person in that respect is healthier than any other Peter Parker, and that is Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker. Uh, and so that I, I really loved. But then, speaking of Peter Parker, Ned tries specifically to make sure he's wishing to see Peter Parker. And then another portal opens up. There's no Spider-Man costume. It's just Peter Parker, but not just any Peter Parker. The original, with all due respect to the 70s Spider-Man stuff, uh, the, the real original live-action Spider-Man slash Peter Parker, Tobey Maguire, steps through that portal. And I'm not surprised at how emotionally affected I was by seeing that. I knew that I would be. Um, but even knowing that ahead of time is not the same as actually feeling all of those feelings coming back. And we've talked about this in the trailers, about our expectations that maybe we'll see this or we're probably going to see this. But actually seeing that Peter Parker, Tobey Maguire, step out on screen in the MCU was it's an experience I'll never forget. I mean, I talk about Endgame level event in this. Well, I'll never forget Portals from Avengers Endgame, but this is that extension of it or the the sequel to it in many ways because they're literally using Portals, but also it's these two Spider-Mans that pop out and more specifically, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. In my journey as a fan, that Spider-Man movie in 2002, especially for superhero movies, yeah, that one. It's one of the milestones. It's one of the landmarks. It's one of the most significant movies, one of my most anticipated movies. Mm -hmm. And one of the movies where I was just that I was at my happiest to just know it existed. And because we you and I've talked about it, Paul, there was once a time where as far as the superhero genre con was concerned, Marvel movies were just fan castings on, on in Wizard magazine. That was it. Mm -hmm. That's what we grew up with in the 90s. And then there were hints of things to come with Blade with X-Men in 2000, which I really loved, but it was really all eyes pointed towards Spider-Man in 2002. And when that movie came out and delivered in 2002, I knew that things were just going to be different now. And things were going to be, in movies specifically, were going to be different in a way where I already loved movies. It's not like I only love superhero movies, but I wanted to combine my favorite types of characters and stories, superheroes, with my favorite storytelling medium, which is movies, and Spider-Man was a huge part of that arrival in a much bigger way than any of the other things I had grown up with, whether that's Batman or Superman or whatever else it was, that when the Marvel era arrived, now it had a chance to feel way more complete than it ever did. And little did I know how much more complete it would get in the years to come. But this Spider-Man in 2002, it was a huge part of what allowed the genre to be what it is today. We get to be here now and have the MCU in large part thanks to this Spider-Man movie, which is not to say that the MCU hasn't made its own tremendous contributions. It obviously has, and Iron Man is obviously a huge part of that, of launching the MCU and propelling things forward and other key films along the way. But in the history of the superhero genre, one of the most significant films of all time is Spider-Man in 2002. And so introducing that version of the character, then bringing it full circle into the MCU here in this moment with this arrival of Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker in Spider-Man No Way Home. It is a special 
moment that really, really stood out. And I, I could not have loved it anymore. I was, I obviously I knew somewhat that these character, these characters were coming into this movie. It was one of the worst kept secrets. And I wasn't prepared for the reactions of everybody because obviously Tobey Maguire is the more beloved overall. And, and I, I want, I'll have my own, like I have my own opinions on both these characters and outside of their film, you know, in their films and out in this films particularly. And with Andrew Garfield being first, you knew that was going to happen. And that was going to be the more like the, the, the one that everyone wasn't necessarily super stoked on, but I was pleased to see people freak out still. And I, I really like the fact that there are still people who really like Andrew Garfield on there. And, uh, I loved everything on this, on, on in the scene, uh, with, with Andrew and then when, when Zendaya is throwing the bread at him and he's mm-hmm. like, what are you throwing the bread for? Oh my God, it's hilarious. Again, it was really refreshing to see MCU writers writing Andrew Garfield and how just, I just love him. Andrew Garfield's an amazing talent. I, I think is again, this is my opinion. I think Andrew's the best actor of all three, the Spider-Man just throwing it out there. He, I think he's just the best pound for pound. He's a phenomenal actor. Um, it, it bums me out because I've gone on record many, many times and have said that his Spider-Man in the costume, not as Peter Parker characterization, but his characterization as Spider-Man is the best of all three still. And this movie only solidified that for me, Sean, I think Andrew Garfield stole the show when he, whenever he was on screen, I thought he was great. And it made me miss him so much as Spider-Man, honestly. I again, I'm a little biased maybe because I love him as Spider-Man in particular. I don't love his movies because not because of him is mostly because of his Peter. And again, it's not even his his fault. It's the writing is not the greatest, in my opinion, for Peter. But anytime he's in costume, he just gets the energy of Spider-Man. He just gets it. And I just I love him in this movie. I think he just steals the show whenever he's on. He just steals it. And I think it's because he's an acting presence. Um I love the fact that he's a little different version of a, of of all of them. Like they're all different. Mm-hmm. I love the fact they play up that. And again, I'm going to save that for later. But I just love him in this movie. I love him, love him, love him. And I love the fact that people do freak out when he shows up. And it makes me think like, man, it makes me happy that people still do like this version of Spider-Man, even though it's not the most beloved of him of them all. And his bit was Zendaya and and Ned and mm-hmm. and, and Lola and just. <laughs> Oh God, it's, it's, I laugh at it. And when, when Toby shows up, um, it's great. It's great seeing Toby, you know, he's, I'll be honest. He looks, he looks after the third time. I I appreciated his acting performance more. He looks out of practice in my opinion, a little bit. I, I could not disagree more. I think he, I I was pleasantly surprised at how he stepped right back into it. And, I felt like he was the same guy, a, a more grown-up version of that guy that he played in, in that first trilogy. Because he's still playing a fairly young guy in those sure. in those movies. I know you go back and you look at those movies, you go, "There's no way that kid's in high school or or just barely starting out in college." But that was the age of the character in, in the canon of those stories, and you know now he actually is allowed to play his age uh, a little bit more in this, and. I thought he stepped right out of those Raimi movies and into this one without missing a beat. And 
I think he did a great job with a very understated, unassuming type of performance because that was his Peter Parker, and that kind of was his Spider-Man. And I know for for some folks, like, you know, and it's a fair criticism, and that's probably why, as you mentioned, Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man, at least as Spider-Man in costume, kind of stood out more with a, a little bit more of the wisecracking, a, a much a, a louder version of Spider-Man than Tobey Maguire ever really played. And, I mean, he had some of his moments, and he had a little bit of his snark and, and a little bit of that bite to it, but not the way that Andrew Garfield did and not even the way that Tom Holland has had. But that more unassuming, you know, a little bit more of the naive, not the right word, but a little bit more of that ah shucks type of heroism that's a little cheesy, a little campy, which Sam Raimi never shied away from in his movies. He certainly never shied away from camp in his movies. That's fair. And so I, I felt like Tobey Maguire found the right balance to be that guy that was a part of those movies that that did have all that camp and, and some of that cheese to have that, but do it in a way that feels grounded in this, that still feels true in this, that, that doesn't necessarily mess with the tone of the MCU or, or the movies that Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man came from that he just struck the right balance here. And there was harmony between how he played the character and, uh, and Peter Parker's Spider-Man and, and it, or Tom Holland's Spider-Man rather. And, and what we, we know and have come to expect from the MCU, there's just a pure decency to Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. And I think it, it goes back to what those movies were, right? And, and, those are movies that were not at all embarrassed by the idea of, look, we're just going to have a decent superhero and, and we're not going to worry. I mean, in, in a lot of the ways that the MCU later embraced Steve Rogers in Captain America, the first Avenger. And, and then, of course, you know, the rest of the story from there, that that sort of decent hero that was counter like when Spider-Man came out in 2002, that was after a lot of 90s superhero movies were just going going off of what at the time was considered dark. Uh, from Batman in 1989, and everything building off of that, black suits, anti-hero, that sort of style, and, and Spider-Man felt like uh, a breath of fresh air by in, in hearkening back to eras of a, a Christopher Reeve Superman and a more classic approach to a superhero story, and that's part of what made it work so well. And so, and, and carrying that history and our knowledge of those movies and that iteration of the character, and even if you haven't seen those movies and your impression of Spider-Man cinematically is just these movies and, and maybe Miles in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and of course you get Peter Parker there too, but whatever your sense of it is, whether you, you're seeing the guy that you saw almost 20 years ago for the first time or you're seeing a guy that you've never seen before, you just get him. And, and right away, I, I think his energy is exactly what this movie needs. And he's definitely exactly what Tom Holland's Peter Parker needs as the guy who's been through the darkness that Tom Holland's Spider-Man is going through right now and being the guy who came out on the other side, being the hero that Uncle Ben always knew he could be, and that's where Peter Parker needs to go. Tom Holland's Peter Parker needs to graduate to being the hero that Aunt May mm. always knew that he could be and that she was teaching him to be in the moments that we got in this film. And Andrew Garfield is, in some ways, a little bit of the... His Spider-Man becomes... They don't play it as dark as they could, but the point still gets across that yeah. his Spider-Man is what happens if... Tom Holland Spider-Man gives into this moment because as Andrew Garfield Spider-Man alludes to, he mentions 
I stopped after Gwen died, he stopped pulling his punches and he became fueled by rage and, and all of those things. And that's kind of what Tobey Maguire Spider-Man is trying to prevent from happening. But I, I know I'm skipping ahead. So we're still in, in the apartment, but uh, when, but that, I love that that's also what it comes down to of, to, of uh, Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker being like, I just, I sensed he needed me and, and MJ saying, yeah, well he needs all, we're all he has right now. Yeah. And so they go and they find him and before Tom Holland even sees the other Peter Parkers, that hug between uh, just Ned and MJ just holding Peter Parker as he's sobbing over the loss of his Aunt May. I mean, I how do you not feel that? Um, <laughs> that was just uh, it, it did such a great job of, of showing his friends being there for him in that loss and just how significant that loss is for Peter. I mean, you can do the emotional math in your head that Aunt May is a mother figure to Peter Parker. He loves her. Um, as much as he's ever loved anyone in his life and he's lost her, so therefore that's sad. But they do a great job of really making you feel it um, in the way they represent it and have the characters portraying it in the in this film. And, and the actors, of course, uh, doing such a tremendous job with their performances. But I also, I love that this all stays true to the reality of the moment. Like, it's magical for us when the camera pans up to the shot and we see... Uh, you know, we see them up there. We see Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker. We see Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man. And there they are perched up there. And it's a great looking shot. But as much as we fall in love with how beautifully cinematic and, and epic that sort of moment might look or feel, I love that it, it just, it, it carries no weight for Peter, for Tom Holland's Peter Parker in that moment. That he's not, he's not here for this. He's not here for this to feel special or magical, or oh hey cool look, more of me, or other versions of me in the multiverse. He right away calls out what he knows they're trying to do. That they're gonna they're yeah. gonna be there to try and talk him out of doing what he knows he wants to do, which is he wants to go kill the goblin, and he's happy enough to go kill all the others too. As he even says, I don't care anymore. And it's not true. This is not Peter being uh, all of a sudden making a villain turn. This is the temptation. This is the, you know, this is the moral corruption that the Goblin is trying to get across within Peter Parker, and it's almost going to work, but not fully. But this is the temptation of it to give into. I mean, it's Star Wars, right? Like the the light versus the dark, giving into the dark side of giving into that anger, that fear, that hatred, because at this point, Peter hates the Goblin and. What matters more, his hatred of the goblin or his love of his Aunt May and the lessons that she taught him? And he's a little blind to that in this moment. And he's even saying she died for nothing. And then he gets to hear from he gets to hear from the two people he really needs to hear from two versions of himself who've been through it. Because at first he tries to say, you know, don't tell me, you know what I'm going through. And and they don't try to say that they know what they're going through, but they just share their own experiences with Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker talking about how he lost Gwen and how he stopped pulling his punches. And then we talk about Tobey Maguire's performance. No, there, there's no rust at all when he's talking about how... Mm, no, not in, right there. In this before, moment, yes. not yeah. at all. There is, agree, when, he says, when he says... When he tells the story of Uncle Ben's death and how he wanted to... He wanted the guy who did it to die. He wanted that guy dead. When he says, I got what I wanted... That that delivery hit. And then he says, but but it didn't make it better. Right. And but, all of that was incredible. And I 
I I did say the third I I liked it a lot more. It felt he felt more rusty, especially when he, he walked out. I felt like that scene was he just felt not as vibrant as I and again vibrant's not even the right word. It just he didn't it just didn't seem on top at that moment. But I would definitely agree with you on that scene. He definitely seemed more into or not into it, but just in, it's just a better performance in general. There's just moments here I, I thought it was just kind of just wasn't. Just seemed like he was off a little bit still. Whereas, like, I feel like Andrew came on. He it was again. It was it just like he picked up where he left off, and and maybe again, I haven't seen Toby in, in, acting anything in a while, so maybe he hasn't been acting in a while. I have no idea. Maybe he's on Broadway. I have no idea what he's doing. Um, I mean, but, I wouldn't call that Russ as much as I would call that choices because I, I really think that they they did those things for a reason. I, I think that there was they wanted Andrew Garfield to be the one playing things a little bit bigger. And Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man is is really supposed to be the calm, soothing presence, yeah. and I think that's why he plays it the way that he does. And and that's fine. I just it just didn't I initially did not hit me. It just seemed off a little bit at first. Um, but after a couple times of seeing it, I have I don't really have any problems with it. Um, it's still a little bit. That intro is still not my favorite of of Tobey's performance. But I would definitely one hundred percent agree. The scene where they all show up. And they go to to tell, you know, the MCU version of Peter, like try to talk to him and he sees him. And I love how defensive he is at that. Like he's right, almost ready for a fight at that right. point. Like it's like, he's kind of like, he's so not in his element. And when they show up and he's like, he, again, he's not like, Oh my God. Like he's just like, he knows exactly. He doesn't care. He's like, just go away. And seeing both of them share their experiences and going back to what I said before about this maybe necessarily isn't, what we thought this version of Peter Parker, because he talks when I thought it was very interesting. They both bring up uncle Ben and he doesn't bring up his uncle Ben. Right. And I was like, very interesting. I went, okay, this, and that's why I go back to what she said before. When she says, when with great power comes great responsibility, Sean, I said, Oh, this is a much different version of what we're getting. And again, I'm loving what we're getting because we see, and again, the beauty of having these multiverses, these different iterations of these characters, again, you don't have to have tit for tat and, and everything has to be the same because that's boring. We're getting a different version of the character, but the essence what we're getting over three films instead of just one film that both these characters, you know, Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire, they both got one film of an origin story. It really feels like this version of Tom Holland's Spider-Man they are he is getting a origin over three films and when they acknowledge uncle ben and he doesn't and he only acknowledges you know he said you know my aunt may said with great power comes great responsibility and they both say well, that's that was our uncle ben i'm like damn they're going somewhere different but i'm loving what we're getting and i i gotta tell you really quick you know that whole announcement for freshman year of spider-man on disney plus is a lot more interesting to me now <laughs> than it was when they announced it. I'll be quite honest. I'm like, okay, I'm in because th- it's going to be almost a whole plethora of reveals of this version right. of Peter Parker and Aunt May. So that really quickly, I want to throw it out there. It's going to be a pretty big animated series in my opinion, but going back to this, this was impactful. This was so important when they both, and you're right. This is where I think Toby gives his best performance. Bar none. I, I definitely felt it, even, especially on this viewing. Both of them really impacted me. When he talks about Gwen, and and again, the scene, you know, seeing that path he takes, he said, I don't want to see you take the same path mm-hmm. that I took. 
it's so it's so powerful. And again, I just and again, when Toby says, you know, it, and I thought it, it did not make me feel better. Right. You feel it. And they're trying to, to give him that wisdom. And he and he starts to buy into it. it. It's such an it's such an impactful moment, man. And it this is why that this inclusion of these characters is so important is is not it's it's fun. It's for fun. It's for whatever. But for the story element of that moment is so oh, God, it's right. just. Well, it's Ugh. it's showing the fork in the road and the two paths you could take. And yeah, I wouldn't say that it's not like Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man has gone super dark, but I agree. Yeah, he yeah. is suggesting that he's stopped pulling his punches. And, and well, look, if Spider-Man doesn't pull his punches, he can kill yeah. people. Right. Yeah, exactly. I don't they don't say explicitly that that's what this Spider-Man has done. And I, I kind of hope that he hasn't. And, but it doesn't even have to be going that far to be doing more damage than he needs to do in order to solve a problem. You know, that's already something that's not very Peter Parker, like not very Spider-Man like and, and him betraying who he is and, and giving into the anger versus just giving into what's the decent and right thing to do and, and, and continuing to live up to the wisdom that's been get, that's been granted him, whether that's from Uncle Ben or Aunt May, depending on, you know, whatever universe you're in. So I think having Peter see these two alternate versions of himself, but they're also older than him. And that's important because th these are versions of himself that are, are close enough to who he is that he can learn from their experience and what they're saying to him. And if you look at the two of them, like you can see where Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker, it's it's very real. He doesn't shy away from him. He says, I got what I wanted, but then saying it didn't, it didn't make me feel any better, showing that I've... I have been where you are and I have felt like you felt and you can get what you want. Just understand that that could, that could involve a betrayal of, of who you are. And, and no matter what, it's not going to make you feel any better. Like you maybe think that it would, or you hope that it would, that's not going to happen for you. You need to remember what you've been told. And it's Tobey Maguire who gets to say with great power comes great responsibility. And, Peter, Tom Holland's Peter Parker, it gets confusing if you don't keep saying the actor name, saying back to him, well, that's what Aunt May said, and or just he recognizes that from what Aunt May just told him, but it's the additional context, like, how do you know that? How do you, where did you hear that? And then them saying Uncle Ben said it on the day he died, that's the context right there for Peter Parker, for Tom Holland's Peter Parker, that, look, this is how I do know what you've been through is this was a lesson that was taught to me by someone who meant a lot to me on the day that I lost them. And that's where you are right now. And there are, you have a choice of how exactly you're going to handle this. If you can look all of this anger and hatred that you're feeling right now in the face and choose to do the better thing, choose to do the right thing, regardless of uh, how good it might feel in the moment to give in to the rage that you're feeling that's where you can come out on the other side of this and really be the decent person that your Aunt May uh, always believed that you could be or continue to be that person. Because it's not like Peter's been a jerk up until this point. He's been a pretty good guy in the MCU. But this is how he can continue that in this moment where it's the the battle for his soul and, and what kind of person he's going to be. And it was played so... It, it just played so well. And all of these guys did such a tremendous job, and, and I love that it, it was the resistance to it initially, but then seeing Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield getting through to the Tom Holland, Peter Parker, it was uh, it, it was brilliant. And 
I didn't know these were the the types of scenes I, I didn't necessarily count on getting in this movie. And shame on me, I should have. I, I guess I just there must have been some part of me that thought there's no way they would have been able to keep this a secret, although they didn't really. But there's no way they would have been able to keep spy photos away if they were shooting this much with Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire. Like, I really didn't expect them to be in the movie as much as they were. Um, cause I, I just, uh, I was just under the assumption that there's no way Marvel could even pretend that these guys aren't in the movie if they were in it as much as the, as they ultimately were, but hats off to Marvel for, I mean, like, I know they didn't really keep the secret, but Hey, nobody ever actually had a photo of these guys. Well, there were photos later, um, but nobody ever had like the spy photos of these guys. You didn't see all the stuff that, you know, eventually came out, but Marvel did a pretty good job keeping this hidden at least the level if if not their involvement entirely at least they kept the level of their involvement pretty well hidden and that got to be a pleasant surprise for me in this movie scenes like this one i i I absolutely did not expect but they made that's what really elevated the movie is all of these types of deep philosophical conversations that get into the true nature of heroism and great power great responsibility all of that um and this scene is a highlight. I mean, there are a handful of scenes in this movie that just feel like all timers in the MCU, and this is one of them. But now it's time to go back to the lab because Tom Holland's Peter Parker, you know, kind of still wants to kill Norman Osborn or or kill the Goblin, but willing to go along with the Cure plan and and having fun with uh, with his other these alternate versions of himself from other universes and that whole sequence of them making the cures together was great. Like. Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man being like, oh, I already cured Dr. Connors once. It's no big deal. And then they kind of look at him and they almost look at him like they doubt that he's capable of doing it because, yeah, his Spider-Man, you know, not as beloved and, and not seen on quite the same level. So um, but any, not that those guys would know that history of the character. That's for us as an audience. But anyway, um, them dividing up the tasks. And I, I like how when Peter's talking about the different cures, he doesn't even say Norman Osborn's name. He just he looks at that cure and he sets it aside and it's Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man who or Peter Parker who picks it up and says, you know, I'll I'll work on I can synthesize a serum for Osborne. Like it's something I've thought about for a long time that even in that moment where Peter goes along to agree with the plan, he's still not he's not feeling like he wants to cure Norman Osborne. He's going to. But that's not how he's feeling in that moment. The anger and the rage is all still very it's all still there and all very real. Um, but there's some great comedy moments in this, like Ned trying to get the attention of Peter and they're like, they all answer and they says, Peter Parker, that doesn't help because they're all Peter Parker. That was great. Tobey Maguire talking about having a best friend when Ned asks him and saying, yeah, I had a best friend. He died in my arms after he tried to kill me and Ned being freaked out about that. And then having that awkward interaction with Peter right after. And then when he explains to Peter that he's got magic powers and saying that, uh, and saying, well, I, but I promise I won't become a supervillain and try to kill you. And the pat on the shoulder that Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker gives Ned when he says that, and the nod, the nod is key. The the pat on the shoulder was great, but then when he looks at Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker and gets that nod, I, I lost it. That was too funny. Um, but that whole sequence of just the the Peter Parkers hanging out and and doing science together, um, I, I can't say that was a thing I ever thought I needed to see, but I'm sure glad I did. I was surprised how much they were in the movie and I, I kind of thought for how long it was, they probably have a decent amount of time. I felt they treaded, they treaded the perfect amount of time for these characters and they made, I think what the biggest 
thing is, and I think you're obviously going to agree with this, Sean. I mean, I'm assuming you would after what you've all said, what you pretty much said, is that they've done so much with such a little time mm-hmm. that it's, it's again, the writing is extremely impressive. They there's only a little a limited amount of time. But their time is so impactful. It's no second is wasted. Nothing is wasted. And even like a funny scene, like when they're cracking each other's backs at one point, like, again, it just adds to, to, I think the fact that these are such really like fun, like fun dudes and Mm -hmm. how, like how, just how they're the chemistry. I will say that the chemistry between the three of them is so good. It it does make you want more of them. It's, it's really crazy to think that, and and not, not that it should be a surprise, but I am surprised a little of how well they do work together as like as an acting trio. The three of them, they do have good chemistry together, and it was really cool to see. And it's like, man, I I, I do hope they kind of show up again at some point. I mean, but it, yeah, I, I I was really impressed with how much they were in the movie and how well they used them. And they were they never felt wasted. Never felt like they were. It was it was a. Uh, it never felt like it was a a gimmick to put them in the movie. It felt so, like such a natural thing. It felt like such a natural thing for them to have them uh, their their agency in the story mm-hmm. that I just it was again it's impressive they were able to do it. I remember John Watt had said that I think Tom Holland asked him like what's the end of the movie? And he goes I don't know because they're still trying to secure everything, and it feels like it, I can't imagine making again I go back to the whole idea of art right like I can't imagine making an art you know, commercialized art and just having no idea how it's going to end. Like it's just, it just, it feels, it just stresses me the hell out. Just thinking about that. Like, how do you do that? And this was such a home run grand slam that I just, I can't believe they, they were able to pull it off. It's really impressive what they were able to do. But yeah, I, I can't believe how good they were in the, the amount of time they were given. And, and I'm impressed with how much time they were given. So it's all of it was just, Again, Grand Slam home run every level. Really was. And and I think John Watts probably knew how he wanted it to end. But sure. then there's the, is it going to work out? Are you going to get enough time with all of these actors to make it work? And or are you going to get any time with all of these actors in order to make it work? But whatever, whatever it was between John Watts and Eric Summers, Chris McKenna as the the writers of the movie, John Watts, the director, and obviously Kevin Feige, Amy Pascal's producers, everybody else involved. I mean, they they found exactly what this story needed and, and almost every choice. There's, as I said, then there's some minor quibbles here and there, the, the execution of the spell kind of getting botched, but even that was a lot better in the film than it was presented as in the trailers. And so I really only have minor little things. And, and even... Uh, admittedly, the net magical net is a shortcut, right? It totally is to be this guy who has no history of magic in the MCU up until this point. So now we're going to set this up by saying that uh, his Lola always told him he was magical. He felt tingling in his fingers to a little spark between him and Peter. And now he can use the sling ring, although he's not great at it. As we saw, he he couldn't close one at at a critical moment in this movie. So, you know, if you bump up against Magical Ned, eh, you know, I I understand that because even I don't totally love it, but I don't hate it either. And I don't really know another way to do it. Like the way they introduce the other Peter Parkers in this story is is perfect and I wouldn't change it. And Ned is the guy who gets him there. So, so many of the choices in this story, then the bigger choices thematically are so good. And, And I'll talk more about that 
as we get into what they're actually going to do with this mission as Toby Maguire's Peter Parker clarifies here that he does have his suit on, by the way. He's not just uh, dressing up like a youth pastor, as Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker puts it. But amazing. when Peter, when Tom Holland gives it to MJ, to he's trying to start her disappointment line. I don't know why he thought that was the appropriate line for the moment, but she switches it to, let's kick some ass, and then... Toby clarifies, let's cure some ass. And then Ned puts the point on it, cure that ass. But that's it, right? That's the mission is to help these guys, to cure these guys. And that kind of always was the mission. If you go back to those Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies and the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies, so much of that time is spent with them pleading with the villains, like, don't do this. I can help you. Like, they don't want to have these. They're not trying to kill them. Even if you go back it's not like Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man struck the killing blow on Norman Osborn. He just dodged the killing blow that Norman Osborn tried to uh, put on Peter Parker. He just jumped over the glider so that Norman Osborn ultimately impaled himself. Now, could he have done something differently in order to save himself and keep Norman Osborn alive? Maybe, but either way, that's it's not like these Spider-Mans were, were vicious killers or anything like that um, at any point. And there was sort of that part of their mission to cure these villains, these antagonists, and they just never really got to. Those villains ended up dying in the end. So it's another chance for them as well to save these guys, because I think that was part of what they originally wanted to do. And now they're trying to convince Tom Holland Spider-Man to live up to what his aunt had taught him and to focus on that, to focus on curing them, not necessarily kicking ass. And, um, Thematically, it, it just goes on an, another level. The decision to cure these guys instead of kill them, I mean, thematically, it's representing rehabilitation over a death penalty, rehabilitation over incarceration, the idea of trying to help people as opposed to just throwing them away or disposing of them permanently by killing them. That idea of the inherent decency in people, even in people who may seem bad or do bad things, that there is a part of them that can be saved, that they, which, you know, maybe is not going to ultimately be true in all cases, uh, but in some cases it can be, and it's worth fighting for, and it's worth trying to see and, and making the best effort to try and help someone, to try and save someone or cure someone, and that's the choice that these Spider-Mans make because it's what they do. I love that. That is so beautiful and, and such a, a wonderful approach to this that goes in to that meta space that this movie often does because it was a regular occurrence for superhero movies for a long time, including in the 2000s, including in the, the, the Spider-Man movies that Tobey Maguire st- starred in, the ones that Andrew Garfield starred in. It was a very regular occurrence that at the end, the villain dies because the sequel's going to have another one. So we don't need this one to stay alive or anything like that. We don't need to bring them back in six months like the comic books do. So they would just kill off villains and maybe not always considering exactly what that meant for the heroes. And this is a movie that considers exactly what that means and presents a a scenario in which the, the heroes decide to do something else, to make a different choice when it comes to saving these guys as opposed to just stopping them by killing them how about stopping them by saving them by curing them and i know their cures are are magical from a stark fabricator so it's easier said than done as far as what things would be in real life but in this heightened reality and this epic superhero storytelling i I love the way that this is portrayed and i I think there is an important lesson that this movie uh 
invites us to consider. Yeah. And, and, I, and I really, really like and, and respect that. Yeah, I think the fixing aspect is, is really interesting, and I, it took me a minute to kind of get behind it when I first saw it, but then I, after the, the couple of viewings, I, I just really, I really like what the fact, I like the fact that the MCU is the more powerful, and, and they can actually fix them, like fully fix them in this universe, opposed to their own, and it's, we've already kind of established why a little bit, but kind of what's going on with that, but yeah, I, I love that aspect of that, you know, there's more, that's the big reason why, you know, uh, the Peters can, or Peter from MCU wants to do it because he knows he can with the fabricator and everything. And it just, it, it makes a lot of sense tonally that, you know, if he couldn't, then, you know, I don't know, I don't know what he would do at that point, but the fact that he can, and, and the, all the other Peters agree, it's, it's great. And I love seeing it in practice when they're, when they're fighting and everything. It's a great, uh, it's really cool to see them kind of all get their, we get to see them all for the most part, get some kind right. of, you know, closure. And that's the one thing about this movie I think that a lot of people have talked about and I, I definitely want to echo is that this movie has a lot of closure with the, with the previous films. And I, but I also feel like it has new beginnings. I, I, I don't. It totally I does. It, I, I think it would totally be great. I mean, obviously with you know the major ending, but like even with the other other uh, film characters, I think it leaves the door open essentially for these these characters to come back like like a, you know the Tobey Maguire and mm-hmm. the Andrew Garfield. So it, it really does bring a cherry on top Especially, I think even more so, Andrew Garfield's. I think I feel like he got the best kind of cherry on top. Which, like, I'm, we'll get to that in a second. Um, you know, for him, I think the opportunity is there for both of them, and it's just a matter of whether or not they want to do it. I think that's sure. it. All these guys got to do is say yes because the offer is going to come for these guys to do other I think stuff. So, huh? Yes, absolutely. I absolutely 100% believe that they're leaving the door. Look. They had the perfect moment, if they wanted to, to kill the Tobey Maguire Peter Parker. Yeah. When he gets stabbed, if they didn't want to do anything else, he dies right there. And it's his wonderful, beautiful sacrifice ending to save the soul of the Tom Holland Peter Parker. But that's not how it ends. That's not... They they don't kill him. And I think it's... I mean, I don't want to be purely cynical and say the only reason they didn't kill him is because they want to do more stuff. I, I think the ending is is a little too dark if you say that Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man dies. So I, I wouldn't have gone that route anyway, even if there was no future. But at the same time, this is a business, and there's obviously a lot of money to be made by bringing these guys together and telling more stories. And while I don't think that's the only reason it should exist... Thankfully, there are enough people involved in this who are really good storytellers that you set aside the business of it, the cynicism of it, and just get into telling great stories. There are enough people who want to do that, who are talented enough to do that, and enough potential within all of these iterations of this character that, yes, I, I believe there is a future if the actors are up for it uh, in, in other projects. I, I totally think that there is uh, the door is wide open for that. It's just a matter of, of whether or not Andrew Garfield and or Tobey Maguire really want to walk through it. And, and I don't know their mindset on this. And, and now that the movie's out, I'm really looking forward to I hope that there are spoiler interviews with those guys because all they've been able to do for the past couple of years is deny their involvement in this movie. Well, now they don't have to do that anymore. So I would love to hear what they have to say about this and whether or not they view this as an opportunity, a one-time opportunity to revisit this character and then say goodbye, or if maybe this is something they're open to continue doing. But 
that's a story and a podcast for another time about future mm-hmm. possibilities with, with these guys. But as far as where it's at in this story, as they go to the Statue of Liberty, which is getting a Captain America shield, although that's that job is not going to be finished, as we're going to witness in this scene. Um, we get there was a moment in the lab, and I guess the the other thing I should point out in the lab, I mentioned the Stark Fabricator, but I know that's not how they finished all the cures, right? It was just the Peter is the Peter Parkers in their own little high school lab putting together the finishing touches on all these cures that they're going to use. So it was still Peter Parker's, not Tony Stark, uh, that was curing the bad guys. So anyway, when we get to the Statue of Liberty, there was a little moment in the lab talking about the organic web shooters, but they go into more detail here talking about... And I love that Tom Holland's Peter Parker's actions. Like, Does that just come out of your wrists or anywhere else? And then Tobey Maguire clarifies it is just the it's just the wrists. But I also love Andrew Garfield in this. He's so great when he's talking about I have to like make my own webs and like, I run out. Like it's a hassle. And uh, you know Maguire being like, yeah, I could see that would be a hassle. And then when he asked him about a web block, and he totally had one. His existential yep. crisis he talks about in Spider Man Two. Oh, man, I loved that so much. And I love the way that Tobey Maguire played that when he was first asked about it. Like, there's that, huh, that, that he, expression that he has on his face and that little nod of his head where it clicks for him of that's kind of what he was going through uh, during that phase of his life that we saw in Spider-Man 2. That was awesome. But then one of my favorite moments from all of this is they're, ta- they're comparing notes. They're talking about villains and, and who has everybody fought. And Maguire's talking about fighting alien black goo, Venom, and then we see in the symbiote, and then we see uh, Tom Holland's talking about the giant purple alien fought him on Earth and in space, and they're both, uh, the Maguire and Garfield, they're both amazed that this Spider-Man has fought in space, and then Andrew Garfield just says, I'm lame, I fought a guy in a, you know, a robot rhinoceros suit, and then Maguire saying, let's rewind that back of you calling yourself lame, we need to work on the self-talk, just says, you're amazing. You're amazing. And then and saying, say it. And he's like, well, I, I, I really needed to hear that. That moment was awesome. And I talked earlier about the, the validation of Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. That's it right there. If you didn't feel it up until that point in the movie, yeah. this is where they, they just, they totally just, they hammered that point home. That look, Andrew Garfield, his time in the role, he did do an amazing job. Maybe the movies overall weren't uh, weren't as great or as amazing as they could have been, but his place in this is still valid. And you know, he does feel he he the way Andrew Garfield plays it is almost like oh, I'm I'm just I, I'm just kind of skating skating into this as if he doesn't deserve to be there, but he totally does, and he has his place in in the Spider Canon. And having Tobey Maguire affirm that uh, in that moment. Yes, it's played for laughs and it's kind of silly, but also it, it's very, very true. And, and also kind of a, it, it's, it is kind of emotionally validating as a fan because he, I mean, it's for Andrew Garfield, certainly, but also as a fan, you don't want to have an era of a movie franchise for, for a character that you love and act like, oh, just none of that counts. No, it, it, it may not have been perfect, but it all still counts and it's still Spider-Man. Yeah, that was... Anytime you got them talking about stuff, and and again, I love the fact that, that he talked about his, his web blockage and and how it was really nice to see the differences of, of personalities through all of them. And, and again, I it was really cool. Like when Andrew says, "I love you guys," like I mean, yep. <laughs> like I love the fact that he's the when one. He says, that "I he, always wanted brothers." Yeah, I love that line. Like, there's 
he's just he's a little more outspoken of the Peters. And again, it stays yep. true to that characterization of Peter Parker, which I'm not a big fan of personally. Right. But I do like the fact that it's really shown why he's different a little or, you know, he's is much different than the you know, other two. And that when Tom he just Dream, accepts the label of Peter three, just Peter one, yeah. Peter two. Peter three. Peter three. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, it does. It's even, it's funny. Cause again, I, I'm not, not a big fan of his Peter Parker, but it's, I like that his, he, again, in this context, he works really great. Cause he is so different than the other two. So I love they played up that man. Mm-hmm. I, that's great. God, that's going to be so good. It's going to be so good. It really is. They, they nailed it with, with every, in every way that you could with uh, bringing those guys back. And, and yeah, Andrew Garfield just shines in this. I, I wouldn't say like you did that he that he stole the show because I don't think any of these guys stole it. I think they did an amazing job of just passing the ball back and forth. Like it was it was incredible to see the way that they balanced it. Like they all shined with what's made them all great as their own version of, of Spider Man in in their own respective movie franchises and now coming together um, in this one. But then when when the battle starts, like I, I love how you have three characters who are all different versions of the same guy across different universes. And yet they suck at fighting together. And it's not something I would have expected to be a challenge in a battle between these guys, but Spider-Man historically more of a solo artist than a team player, except Tom Holland, Spider-Man historically a team player. He's been on a team from the very beginning when he was on team Iron Man and Captain America civil war. That's how he got into the whole thing. Well, I guess the first six months he was on his own when he was just being caught on YouTube. But I think it was a really interesting play to give them that challenge of not just assuming because they're all really great superheroes on their own, that it would be a really great superhero team together, that it doesn't work, that they're fighting the villains individually and each one's calling out for help, but nobody's around to help because they're all focused on different ones uh, as, as we see it all. And they're trying and they're failing and it's not working. And so then to have them have to reset and that's when Tom Holland Spider-Man is talking about the Avengers and they have no idea what that is. Andrew Garfield guesses maybe it's a band um, and they were kind of like a band. They broke up. So like the Beatles, as Bruce Banner was talking about way back in Avengers Infinity War. So he's not totally off the mark by calling the Avengers a band. Uh, anyway, that's when they decide that they need to work together and focus on one on curing one person at a time. But just coming up with that strategy, I, I, I thought was was really really great because I, I think you could have gone the easy route and said that look, one Spider Man has beaten all these guys individually. So if you just have three Spider Mans versus a handful of Spider Man villains, that that's all you really need, and you can have them win and, and win rather easily. But how do you make it a, a credible challenge? Well, presenting the idea that they tend to be solo art. At least two thirds of this team have generally just been a solo artist and not the idea of working together is not something they're really well practiced at so i liked laying that as a challenge then having them come together which leads to a sequence of iconic shots one after another of all three of them running and jumping off together and then they're slinging on the webs together and they actually they shoot like three webs to combine into one little thing that swings all of them apart and then it's the shot of all three of them swinging around and then the shot of all three of them landing. And then once they've landed all three of them together, I need like high quality, high res stills of like all of that stuff. And no, I am not encouraging piracy. Don't send me any illegal versions of that stuff. But I just, uh, when I get this movie at home, I am going to be just 
pausing like every single frame of that and how wonderful and magical that view was of all three of them together in that sequence. And, and every shot of that sequence was everything visually that it could have been. I, I couldn't have been any happier with it. Yeah, I, man, when they're all running and they all jump off and they're yelling and screaming together and the music is perfect. It's, it is an emotional moment. I'm like, I never knew I needed this moment, but God, this is awesome. <laughs> it's so good. Like it's, it just gets me. It almost, it's not quite Avengers assemble Endgame, but it's, it's not in that vicinity, but it's kind of like that for no, me. It's, it's on that block. It's it's yeah. not it's not the big house in the middle of that block, which is where Avengers Assemble is. But you know, it's it's got a nice corner house on that block. Like it's it, it, it's a yeah. similar thing. Like Avengers Assemble was different. I knew I needed that because the MCU had teased it. Yeah. So and and just you know you know the line. So I I knew in some way I kind of needed that. I, I definitely didn't know that I needed to see these three cinematic Spider-Mans all together in, in that sequence. I never yeah. would have thought I, I wanted or needed that. In fact, there would have been times where I would have thought, maybe we shouldn't have that because it's just risky. Like, there's no way it could work. Like, it, w- it would just fall apart and end up not making sense. Well, it all came together and it all made sense. And so that was why, it become, because it all made sense and it was all emotionally grounded and just worked in these wonderful, uh, deep ways that uh, even on the more superficial side of it, of just the, the pure visual, it allowed me to enjoy that to the, to the fullest because I knew that this moment not only looked cool, but it had meaning. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, it was just, oh, it was so good. And yes. as they're doing the takedowns, it's, it's not just Spider-Man's teaming up. Doc Ock is Team Spider-Man. Like, oh, man. I mean, yeah. I knew he was going to be. Like, he was cured, right? So, like, when right. he comes when he comes back, and I'm glad they didn't really mess around with it for too long. Like, when he comes back and he says, leave them to me, like, they're mine or whatever for these Spider-Mans that Electro is about to take out, you know that turn is coming. And, and I think Max Dillon should have seen it as well, really, and should have been attacking Do- Dr. Octopus immediately. But anyway, he didn't. So Dr. Octopus is able to cure Max Dillon, and that sets up a great conversation between Max Dillon and Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man, oh where Max Dillon talks about, well, you're from Queens, you're, you're always helping poor people. I just would have sworn that, that Spider-Man was black. And Andrew Garfield just saying, yeah, you know, I'm really sorry about that, just apologizing <laughs> for it. And then the line that we get that, I mean, everybody cheered for in the theater all three times yeah. You know, I just got to think, you know, somewhere out there, you know, somewhere out there, there's got to be a black Spider-Man out there somewhere. And there is. His name is is Miles Morales. He's hanging out in the Spider-Verse right now, but uh, eventually live action form in uh, in these movies. There's no question in my mind or anybody's mind that that, of course, is going to happen. And so when when we talk about this stuff happening again, yeah, Paul, come on. Like when we get live action Miles, he's going to team up with Tom Holland's Peter Parker and eventually uh, you could see all four of them and, and maybe even more teaming up in, uh, in in a live action Spider-Man movie. So the whole idea of the, the Spider-Man's team up, I, I think could get even bigger by introducing miles as they, and, and I would say this is an even bigger point in the direction of um, an even bigger point in the direction of miles, as opposed to, uh, Donald Glover referring to his nephew in uh, in Spider-Man Homecoming because obviously his character's nephew is Miles Morales. So I, 
I don't really, I think the way they're going to go about this is going to be different. I, I think that Miles Morales probably mm-hmm. doesn't exist already in the MCU. It's going to be from another universe. I actually think that he's going to be the same Miles that's from the Spider-Verse movies. I think they, his history is going to hold up and be just transfer over into live action. Why Why tell hmm. a different version of it? You don't have to. You can just transfer the medium. It doesn't really matter. I talked about that a lot more on a recent episode of Fan Show Plus, so go back and check that out, patreon.com slash Sean Gerber, or just uh, go to Apple Podcasts, search for MCU Fan Show Channel, or search Fan Show Plus, and you'll find it there. Um, but anyway, that aside... Um, that moment, though, of uh, Max pointing in the direction of, of Miles Morales, you, you know what that's about, and you know that's a promise that they're going to deliver on yeah. probably before too long. Yeah, absolutely. I, I Every time I've seen it, that gets a huge reaction, and I, I, I think it's great. It's played real awfully well, I think, by, by, by the actors and everything, because... It it is. I love what's foreshadowing, but it's also showing that, like you know, just the how that Spider Man is the everyman. That you know, right. it's like, oh man, like you're doing all these great things. Like, I, I like that. I like the fact that <laughs> Andrew's like, oh, I'm sorry about that. Yep. <laughs> he apologizes for not being black. Uh, it's great. Um, no, it, it's a great moment, and I, I I do love that. It's a good. It's a nice little moment between the two of them. It really is. And then. As everybody gets cured, I mean, that's the only time we get to see Thomas Hayden Church is when Sandman is cured and we see Lizard is cured. They're all cured except for the last one. Oh, and by the way, in all this chaos, uh, Ned has brought Doctor Strange back from the mirror dimension after he was hanging out over the Grand Canyon for about 12 hours. So Doctor Strange is ready to try and fix this whole thing. We know his version of fixing it. Uh, They point out that Peter's plan of, of saving these guys, of curing them, is actually working. And so the last piece to it is the goblin who shows up and he pumpkin bombs Doctor Strange's magic box thing, which means the spell is no longer contained, creates a new sense of urgency that this is all going to fall apart. Everybody is coming in from across the multiverse. We see different silhouettes. I saw one looks like Scorpion. One looks like Rhino. There's a I'm sure there's other ones that I can't wait to get the movie at home and like pause it and look at all these different characters that I'm sure are, are up there coming through the multiverse. But it's all about to happen. Doctor Strange can't contain it, which means Peter is going to have to make a different sort of sacrifice, but we're not there yet. First, he has to have his confrontation with the Goblin, and fueled by his rage, Peter is... Uh, he, he stands a much better chance in this fight, although when Peter says there's that great moment where where Goblin is talking, uh, talking to Peter about how he's too weak to send the Goblin back to his own universe to die... And Peter says, I just want to kill you myself. And Goblin saying, like, add a boy or something like that was just, mm-hmm. that was great. And then they have this fight, and it's so emotional, and the music swells up. It's very operatic, and it, it's it's the tragedy of the fight. The tragedy isn't that Peter is in danger physically. He's winning this fight, and that's actually the tragedy of it, is he has this fight won, and he's still going, just punching and punching away at Goblin slash Norman Osborn, and everybody's watching this. MJ and Ned are watching it. We see the other Spider-Mans watching it and seeing that Peter is about to cross this line and, and a line that he'll never be able to come back from. And when he picks up the glider to finish it, and he's just as he's about to bring it down on, on the Goblin slash Norman Osborn, although it's the Goblin who's taken over at this point, it's Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man who stops him, and not a word is spoken. And that is a choice I totally love for this scene, because they already said everything that needed to be said in the previous scenes. 
And all of that still holds true. And all of that is communicated from Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker to Tom Holland's just by that look as he holds on to it. And even after that initial catch, as Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker catches the glider, there's one more thrust, not you know very forceful, but enough of Peter getting one last uh, just physical outburst of that frustration, that anger and that rage. But then he lets it go. And he sets he sets down the glider. Obviously, at this point, uh, then Tobey Maguire is uh, stabbed in the back. Oh, by the way, the you mentioned earlier the uh, the back thing, which in the back cracking, which was a hilarious scene, but also kind of meta to show Tobey yes. Maguire's Peter yeah. Parker having back problems because as some will famously remember the story of Spider Man Two, where Tobey Maguire almost had to be replaced by Jake Gyllenhaal because he had yeah. a he had a back injury that they thought was going to keep him out of filming the second Spider-Man movie. So him having a bad back um, was absolutely a commentary on that. And then a great moment of back back cracking between Tobey Maguire mm-hmm. and, and Andrew Garfield. Uh, but anyway, then he gets stabbed in the back, which I, I don't think back cracking helps with stabs <laughs> in the back. But anyway, he goes down and Peter Parker, is he going to kill the goblin or cure him? He decides to cure him, and we see the instant remorse from Norman Osborn of, of what have I done, but that was heavy, and I don't think I ever would have expected to see Tom Holland Spider-Man just brutally killing one of his villains. I, I never would have expected to see it, and I don't know that I ever really thought it was going to happen, but they came as close as they possibly could have to making me believe he might with the way they they played this scene. And really, it's not about the fact that, look, he's not going to make the choice that that we know we don't want him to make, but it's really showing just how much he struggled with it. And, you know, him letting out all of that anger, uh, and you feel it in every punch that he lands on the goblin's face, it's all there, all that pain, all that hurt over losing May. But then ultimately what wins out is the lesson that she taught him and the lessons that these other versions of himself uh, have taught him from having been through what he's been through and come out on the other side in some ways for better, in some ways for worse, uh, which also reminds me of one of my other favorite lines in this movie when uh, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man and, and Dr. Octopus are, are reunited. And and I, I just love Dr. Otto Octavius calling this not-so-young-looking version of Tobey Maguire, yeah. dear boy. Um, yeah. but Hey, that's, you know, that's the dynamic of their relationship from when they first met. And when he asked him how he's doing, Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker, just saying, just says trying to do better. Like, that's a great response. This is one of the best uh, responses I've ever heard to the, how, you, how are yeah. you doing question? Cause most responses aren't real, just fine, good, whatever. It's just things we say without thinking about it. But that one actually has some thought put into it. Uh, and now he has helped Tom Holland's Spider-Man slash Peter Parker try to do better uh, with the uh, what he's ultimately convinced him in to cure Norman Osborn instead of killing him. Um, and that's something that, that ultimately Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man or Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man with his own villains in their own universes were never successful with doing was uh, saving these guys. And, and now that's what they've all done collectively. This was such an important thing for me. And, I, and this is where I think the movie really just, it gets, it really comes to that climax of this and the very, very end where it was spider-man's about to the mcu version of spider-man he's, he's gone through this big this emotional journey and he's about to make a really big mistake and then it takes literally a you know himself like mm-hmm. a different version of himself you know looking himself in the mirror essentially at that point and and, and realizing that that's not what he wants to do 
And it's, it's such a great moment because I think it represents, again, Peter always will represent the everyman in a sense. And again, it's again, going back to the, the, the comment with Jamie Foxx before he's like, Oh man, I thought you were black. And he's like, because Spider-Man represents that every man, it, it, he is that, but with that there is imperfections, you know? And with that, you know, people, every man, like me, you, everyone listening to this podcast, they make, make mistakes. They, they do things out of anger a lot of times. And I think in one thing about Spider-Man, as any Spider-Man fan will know, is that Peter does have a temper. He's, he does have a moment where he, you know, he he can lose it. And, and not like where he kills people, but, you know, he, he can lose his temper. Like most people, but I'd say he he can't he has a a moral uh, a more of a temper than the, the typical person would, and seeing him kind of lose it there seemed really in character for me and and also very human for me and it it just it was a great moment to see him you know again not make that mistake at the end but it it did take you know seeing himself and 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 realizing that that's not what the road he wants to take because he has two examples of himself and that he that. Show him what what the path is, what what path to do. Again, the Andrew Garfield was, you know, I I stopped pulling my punches and and I, I got dark, I got bitter, and I think seeing all that embodied in Toby holding the glider from him was an important, such an amazing moment of the film. And it, it, again, it's it's great. It's, again, it's, you, 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 we're seeing the development of of this MCU Peter right before our eyes, and it, it's it's beautiful. It really is a beautiful moment, and. And honestly, it, it's what's really crazy too to think about is the fact that Green Goblin ends up having, or a Green Goblin ends up having a giant effect on mm-hmm. the MCU Spider-Man, just not in the way we ever would have thought. We all thought that there would be a Norman Osborn coming at one point, but we never thought William Defoe would reprise that version, and that version would be ended would be ending up being the the Green Goblin of that of the MCU. Right. And the Sacred Timeline is now is is that version of the Goblin. It's it's such a crazy idea, but it's nuts and it's amazing in the fact that that's what we got that, that that version of the of the Goblin is that is Tom Holland's Green Goblin. That's his right. arch nemesis. It's and what again. Didn't kill Gwen Stacy. He killed Aunt May, and that's that is in turn that version of the of this character's moment where he trans you know changed the rest of his life. It's crazy. It's it's really it's such a beautiful written movie and and a concept and and keeping in touch with the character so much that it just it, to me when I think about that I'm like that's so brilliant. It's well, so I'll put brilliant. it this way: when you already have a guy who can play it perfectly, why yeah. bring in anyone else? Exactly. So, Hugh Jackman, are you sure you don't want to come do this? Yeah, seriously. Are you sure you don't? Not, Hugh Jackman does not, is not a known listener of MCU Fan Show, to be perfectly clear. But in the off chance that he is, could he possibly be sure after seeing this? I mean, and this is definitely a whole other podcast unto itself. But as I was watching Willem Dafoe, Alfred Molina, and, and sure, like I, I know they're not the only ones coming back, but... Willem Dafoe, Alfred Molina, and Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, those performances in particular really standing out. And, and of course, being beloved versions of it, because that's what you can't really say about Electro or, or Sandman is, you know, in movies that people don't really like that much. But people love that first Spider-Man, and they love Spider-Man 2, and, and Willem Dafoe and Alfred Molina. And so to have them come back in, reprise those roles, do such a brilliant job, it's only going to add to just fuel the fire of what people are going to want, which is to see 
the perfect Wolverine who already exists as far as movies go, as played by Hugh Jackman in the MCU, people are going to want that. And and even the way this shows that you can kind of pick different pieces of the mythology and of the multiverse that you want, it doesn't even have to be a rule where because you use Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool and Hugh Jackman's Wolverine that you literally have to use every actor's version of their character um, in the MCU. You don't. You can pick and choose the best parts of the multiverse to bring into your movie whenever or movies, Disney Plus series with whatever works. But uh, I'll I'll step away from that territory because I can really go down and this podcast is already pushing four hours. So I, I don't need to make it eight uh, by going any further down that path. But I absolutely not during the movie, but after I watched it the first time, the the thoughts I was revisiting those thoughts of Hugh Jackman's Wolverine in, in the MCU. And I feel like there will probably be a lot more talk about that uh, coming out of this movie. But um, one other moment before we get to Peter's big sacrifice that we haven't talked about is uh, a moment that, that you, you predicted it didn't happen in the way that we thought it would, where we were talking about, mm-hmm. well, when MJ falls, that's when maybe the Spider-Man's emerge and, and one of them saves her. And you were thinking Andrew Garfield and that's what it was. And, I knew you were right as soon as Andrew Garfield talked about I lost Gwen. I was like, okay, well, then that's definitely what it is because it's not the arrival anymore. They're already here. So Mm -hmm. when MJ falls, like, here comes Andrew Garfield, and he gets to have that moment. And his response to that, man, the tears in his eyes when when he asks, are you okay? And then she asks, are you okay? (laughs) Um, And the healing that's happening for him in Mm -hmm. that moment, it's just it's so warm and fuzzy. It's, it's, It's great. And I cry every time I've seen it. Yeah, it's every time I see that part, I cry. Well, you know what also uh, what also gets me, and and it's not a character I ever thought would uh, would get me emotional was Stephen Strange. So everything's falling apart, right? And I, I love the line that Toby gets of like, "Am I dying or is that really happening?" Is like, because look, the sky is opening up yeah. and things that look like souls are approaching him. Like I can totally get how he would be. Uh, and this is also a very different sort of occurrence than than he's been used to, uh, uh, accustomed to in his universe, for sure. He hasn't fought aliens in space, so this is all new. But when it, it's, it comes time for Peter to make a choice, and there's nothing else that they can do, because now this multiversal threat is here. The spell is not contained. It's all going to fall apart right here and now. And then Peter decides, well, the only way to fix this is... To I, I can't be selective about it anymore, and I, I can't even have people forget that I'm Spider-Man. I need people to forget me altogether, forget Peter Parker, um, and that means everybody. And so I talked about the moments that get me emotional, a character I didn't expect. When Stephen Strange says, all the people who know you, all the people who love you, we would, and then he catches himself like we yeah, you know, we would forget you. We would never. It would be as if you never existed. And the little tear in, in Benedict Cumberbatch's eyes as he's saying that, like, is Stephen Strange? Like, he now here he is, just admitting that he loves this kid, that he loves Peter Parker. I mean, I, I wasn't ready for that. I, I was not prepared yeah. for that to be, you know, the level that their relationship, mentorship, whatever is at. And I would say more friendship than anything else. Like, I, I was not prepared for that and how it was going to make me feel. But that got me too, amongst all the other emotional moments. Uh, in this movie, that one also goes on the list. But what I love so much about this is the choice that Peter makes. This is what it comes down to. This is with great power, there must also come great responsibility. Sacrifice, as you've been talking about, Paul, that look, you can't have, you're not always going to be able to get everything you want. 
and also make sure you're doing the greatest good for everyone else. It just doesn't work that way. And so, Peter, at this point, there is no other choice to make. There is this imminent threat that he is at least partially responsible for. If he says he made a mess and he has to clean it up, well, he's done part of it. He's cured these guys, but there's going to be too much coming, and he's not going to be able to cure everybody who's coming through, and he also needs to stop them from coming through because it's just going to ruin everything across the multiverse. So this does have to be stopped, and it's Peter's mess to clean up, and so he's going to go ahead and he's going to make the sacrifice. And the level of sacrifice to even consider there, like it's not just, you know, we'd say, well, everybody forgets about Peter Parker. They'll remember Spider-Man, which will, that's an important distinction because it allows the rest of the MCU to make sense that everybody can still remember that they fought in battles with Spider-Man. They just won't, they just don't remember Peter Parker. So they won't know who Spider-Man actually was. But to have that choice where everybody in your life is going to completely forget about you that you will live that life of, of isolation. And, and we'll talk more about where the choice is really cemented because it's not here in this moment. Um, but that choice of that idea of making everybody forget Peter Parker, that's where that, that's a point where this movie does a much better job. I, I talked about the Avengers Age of Ultron comparison earlier where you have heroes who could say, well, that's not technically what we did. We were trying to do something, but we contained it or it didn't quite work. But something else slipped through, and that's not really our fault. In Age of Ultron, Tony and Banner never really reconciled with the role they played in allowing Ultron to come to life and exist. And Tony didn't even really get into that until Captain America Civil War. So in Age of Ultron, it's just kind of left as this hanging thing of like, is this a thing that Tony's really not taking any responsibility for? Well, Civil War kind of fixed that for Tony, but it's even better when you fix it in where you have the hero fix it in the movie where they created the problem in the first place. And so this is Peter taking full ownership, full accountability, as he has been throughout the movie with the different choices that he makes based in part on the lessons that Aunt May is teaching him. But this final choice at the end to realize that this is my mess, I have to clean it up. And that means that and if I have a way to clean it up that only impacts me, even though that impact is severe, that's what I have to do, because that's what we do as Spider-Man, Spider-Man's. We do the right thing, and this is the right thing in the in this moment to save the multiverse. This is the this again the brilliance of this movie uh, of the spell that is going to basically change you know wipe everything out is so is so good. And again, going back to like Green Goblin, Green Goblin's the reason the spells now been you know obviously Peter was the one responsible from it, but he but Green Goblin is the one that released it, you know, and 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 why it's gotten out of hand. So he has so the Goblin's made it no choice. He has to go back to this, you know, reality and lose mm-hmm. not only his, you know, his aunt, but now is is essentially at this point is true love. And it's such a power again. It's such a Spider-Man moment, and it and it's exactly what Spider-Man needs to do. And and it's what's crazy to think about is I think over three films and and again through Civil War, Infinity War being blipped for five years and coming back and then losing his aunt, he realizes at this moment like he ha- he can't think of himself. He has to think of other people of what his actions have consequences. And that's why we go back to the sacrifice of he has to sacrifice his self, his self desires and his love for his, you know, for MJ mm-hmm. for, for her, because ultimately 
his responsibility is to protect her. And if it means him not, you know, them being together at this moment, that's what needs to happen. And it's such a powerful, powerful thing. It's he's, he really has learned it. He's learned it through not killing Norman and now sacrificing his best friend and his, you know, his loved one and MJ. And it's such a, it's such Mm -hmm. a powerful moment. And it's such a Spider-Man moment. It's, it's such a Spider-Man moment, Sean, that's so MCU. It's so perfect that I just freaking love it. And it's because, again, I go back to the idea of this is not a typical, you know, Spider-Man, you know, story. Because, again, I've said before that Spider-Man, you know, he when he came on the scene in the the 1960s, all the heroes all showed up at the same time. He was pretty much right there with everybody else. The MCU, he's well behind everybody else. And he's all his journey is going to be much different. And this journey that we're, we're at right now with him is so different, but it's, but right now he's finally learned, I think truly what it is to be a hero and sacrifice more so than any other time in his, in his life. The true growth is right here. And it's just, it's such a Spider-Man Peter Parker moment for the MCU and the sacred timeline that I'm just like, damn, it's just, it's powerful. It's, it might be, this is definitely one of my favorite moments in MCU history um, it's such a pa- powerful moment for me of saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. It's, ugh, it's, it's a gut punch. And it's, again, it's very much in line with the character. It is, but I, I think it takes, it takes on an even greater impact when it gets smaller, because there's the big moment where the, you know, the, the sad kind of operatic version of the Michael Giacchino Spider-Man theme is playing as, you know, we're seeing everybody kind of fade away and, and he's explaining this choice to MJ and to Ned, and they're saying their goodbyes, but they're not really goodbyes. They're more see you laters. Like, I figured this out before. I'll figure it out again. Tell me you love me when you see me again. All of those sorts of things. And, like, I'm going to tell you about it. I'm going to I'm going to explain it all and, and, and all of those things. So it is more of that see you later than goodbye. It's almost like, you know, you're going to forget about me, but I'll eventually help you remember, and then it'll be fine. And, and in some ways, I'll be able to kind of undo a little bit of this sacrifice and that's kind of the initial plan behind it is it's still a tremendous sacrifice but there's a little bit of a a, a safety net there and it's afterwards that we see peter just pull away that safety net i mean it's great in that big moment on the statue of liberty the cap shield and all that stuff it looks great and it and it's it, it works very very it's very very powerful in that moment but i still felt the power got even greater in the next scene at the coffee slash donut shop where he's walking in with his plan. He's got his speech written out and he's rehearsing it as he's walking in. He's going to explain to MJ who he is and what their history is together. And he's going to try and make her remember and get that back, get the love of his life back and get his best friend back and all of those things. And then he sees her and he still kind of has the plan, but he's noticing things like he's noticing that Ned walks in and Ned's happy MJ seems happy and she's actually got a little bit of school spirit as Ned kind of teases her about. And she says that, uh, that she'll deny and, and they're happy and she's talking about it and she's, she's picking up on something. She's sensing something about this Peter Parker kid who just ordered some coffee. But at the same time, it's more just awkward than anything else. And I, I mean, long-term MJ is going to figure it out, but in this moment, it's Peter's choice of whether or not he's going to tell her, about it or or whether or not he's going to just allow her to or allow himself to remain forgotten as far as she's concerned and as far as Ned is concerned 
And so when he decides to put that speech back in his pocket and just take the coffee and say his goodbyes, and even MJ is saying these lines as they're they're talking about it, like he finishes her line about expecting disappointment, and then she talks about how she kind of feels differently now. And when he refers to the cut on her uh, above her eyebrow, and he's saying, you know, she says, well, it doesn't hurt anymore. And that's taking on a whole other meaning for him that, you know, the pain and, and whatever suffering she's had and just knowing, uh, knowing Spider-Man that's gone, that's not hurting anymore. And so he tucks the speech back in his pocket. He decides not to say it and he decides to leave MJ and Ned alone. Is that what they would really want? Of course not. You know, deep down, you know that they would like to, uh, have their relationship with Peter Parker rekindled for sure. And eventually I think that will happen as this franchise continues. But at this moment here and now, the choice that Peter is making is to really stick to that sacrifice and why he made it. Obviously there was the part of saving the entire multiverse or saving this universe from the multiverse and all of those things, saving countless lives, blah, blah, blah. All the standard superhero stuff is big and epic and important as it is, even though blah, blah, blah sounds dismissive. You know, I don't actually mean that. I love these things. But for Peter and what this signifies in this moment is sticking to that sacrifice where originally this all started because he said, as he talked to Dr. Strange in the Sanctum Sanctorum, this isn't about me. There are people who are suffering just because they know me. And one of those was May. She's gone. Happy will be fine on his own. But for MJ, his girlfriend, Ned, his best friend, they were suffering. They were being impacted. Even though they wouldn't have changed anything, they were being impacted by knowing Spider-Man. And it was hurting them physically, emotionally, professionally, academically, whatever it is. And so for him, if he's going to say that this whole thing, this whole mess that got created that he had to fix was all done for the sake of saving them, of making their lives better, then he has to be willing to recognize and see in this moment that these two are actually happy without him. They are okay without him. And maybe it's not what they would choose and we'll find and they will give him crap for it later, I guarantee you. But what he's identifying in this moment is they don't need me. So if I tell them who I am and I try to make them remember I'm doing that for my benefit, not for theirs. And so if they are fine, if their futures are secure and out of harm's way by not knowing who Peter Parker is and not being associated with Peter Parker, let's keep it that way. And I will commit to being on my own where the people who knew me and loved me still are not going to be able to know me and love me. And I will remain forgotten and I will just continue to go out and do the right thing as Spider-Man. Yeah, this was a... This this was way more impactful than I than I thought. And it, what's nice about this is that there's there's no rules of how if they if, how they can remember, you know. And it's it's interesting um, how that will turn out. But it was very impactful to see them talk and have that chemistry even without her knowing who he was and. And again, Peter doing, I mean, at that moment, like going, no, the time is not right right now. Just, he just, you know, he couldn't do it. And it, it felt like a very Peter moment to me. And again, nothing, this is not really like what's in the comic books necessarily, but it doesn't need to be. And, but it still felt like a very Peter Parker moment, moment for me. And it mm. felt accurate. And it was a, 
it was a gut punch, but it was a very Peter moment. And I'm glad that this version of Peter Parker is learning what he needs or is kind of learning right at this moment, what he needs to do and is doing it. Yeah. I, I thought it was really wonderful. And it's just the spirit of the sacrifice that if you say it's about other people, then, then really live that. And I think he yeah. was in that moment by deciding that sure it, well, it's, it's that question that Aunt May asked him about uh, about the villains from the other universes, right? Is it mm-hmm. about what's best for them or what's best for you? What's best for Peter might be to get his girlfriend and his best friend back, for sure, because that's it's a lot easier to get through life that way with people who know you and love you, for sure, no doubt about it. But is it in this instance, with everything that's happened to them by knowing Spider-Man, it's easy enough to see why Peter would decide... Well, what's best for them may not be the same as what's best for me. And what really matters is what's best for them. And what's best for them is to be able to continue on in their lives without necessarily being uh, dragged into the messes that ultimately are made by me being Spider-Man, whether I mean for them to happen or not. And generally it's not. So for him to decide to go that different direction and off on his own, that really cements the sacrifice for me because it, it, it takes it to... You can think about it in the in the biggest possible terms for everybody forgetting that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, but where it really matters the most for him and where it really is the, the biggest sacrifice are the people who love him most and know him best and who he loves the most and knows best, because that's what's going to ultimately keep them out of his life and him out of theirs. And that's the sacrifice uh, that he's uh, that he's really making there. And it's a beautiful sacrifice. It's very sad that, to think that this is where he's at. I mean, it looks like he's okay at the end of it. Um, and I do think eventually MJ will figure it out on his own, on her own. She did kind of sense something, and, and she will, as I said, I, I totally think that she will She will disagree with me on, on Peter's choice and, and him making the right choice or whatever, and she will definitely... Um, well, I wouldn't even necessarily call it necessarily the right choice. It is the more it is the selfless choice that he's making in that. And she will ultimately feel like he should have let her know. But that's OK. He didn't need to. She'll figure it out on her own. And then she'll make her own choice of whether or not she wants to be associated with Peter Parker uh, and all that that entails. But it was done so incredibly well. And then we see Peter. I. It's not the same universe, but I was really hoping they would get uh, a little bit more of that Sam Raimi feel of uh, yeah. the rent being due. But, you know, you just get a guy saying the rent's going to be due on the first and we see Peter with his crummy apartment. But now he's making his own Spider-Man suits or modifying his previous Spider-Man suit. But uh, gets a new suit. It's much brighter blue, very shiny. And then, of course, you know, everything else, the red and web patterns that we see uh, on the Spider-Man suit. But he's swinging through New York at Christmas time. So maybe this is what syncs it up to Hawkeye, maybe, timeline-wise, after Rogers the Musical, I don't really know. But uh, in any event, yeah, those last shots of uh, Peter in his new suit uh, as Spider-Man were uh, a great way to close out this this just beyond incredible and and so very special story. Yeah, the ending of this movie is something that I could not fathom them doing. I never envisioned what we got what I think was set up to be a soft reboot or a soft kind of like closure, if you will, to the character of everyone not remembering Spider-Man and, and trying to explain things if Marvel and Sony couldn't get a deal together or whatever. And it ended up being the perfect way to end and to begin a new uh, series or saga for this character of Spider-Man where it becomes this character that we that so many of us fans know and love uh, where 
Spider-Man is by himself. He makes his own suit. He makes his own weapon. There's no help from anywhere else out in the, you know, from the Avengers or anything. There's no Stark information. He's, everything is all based on him by himself. And it's such a beautiful way to end the story of the this version of the character, or as far as at this moment, it's beautiful. It really is a, a beautiful thing. The, the costume looks great. I love how bright it is. There's a there is a uh, a picture online that someone got and, and I'm not sure where it's from but it looks beautiful I love it it's uh it, yeah I, I love I love this uh, ending it's it's such a beautiful thing it it really to me it takes all the things that 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 this version of Spider-Man that we got that he again the whole origin of what he learned from the Avengers, from these different versions of the characters to being his own man at the end is just truly a, a, a beautiful, uh, a beautiful ending to this uh, trilogy and a, and a beautiful beginning, I think too, for the character that I, I, I think this movie is, a, 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 no pun intended, is amazing. It's a, it might be my favorite Spider-Man movie ever. It's a celebration of so many different things, but mm-hmm. this ending to me is just a perfect ending. I, I couldn't end this movie. I couldn't think of ending this movie any better than what the way it did. Yeah, I think to have an ending that shows the hero really taking responsibility and accepting accountability for his choices as misguided as some of them may be, but the way that he ultimately went about it and the sacrifice that he makes at the end and and all that that sacrifice means, as I said, when you get it to the, a more isolated level of focusing specifically on the people that he cares about, it's it's a whole other level that this movie reaches. And and I'm not, as I, I tend not to be, I'm not in the business of trying to immediately rank things or say where this is uh, against other Spider-Man movies, live action or animated. Now really isn't the time for that. I mean, I've seen the movie three times, but also need to live with the movie a little bit. But I have uh, a lot of confidence that this movie is going to end up very high on my list of Spider-Man movies, of MCU movies, because it, you can recognize it. I mean, it's it's hard not to, to recognize something special as it's unfolding before your very eyes, and that's what this movie is. It is, well, I'm, I'm like, I'm stopping myself short of, of ranking it or saying anything about it in, in the overall pantheon of, of MCU and superhero movies and Spider-Man, but you can just kind of feel when something comes along that um, that is just connecting on a level that even as much as I tend to love most or all of these movies or a lot of them, you can always tell when something's reaching, uh, connecting on just an, another level. And that's kind of what this feels like after uh, watching it these first few times. And it is a very special story that is very well told, uh, very well written, directed, acted, everything about this. It just feels like everybody pouring their heart and soul into this and it shows in the quality of the storytelling just across the board in this film. And, and I'm very, very, uh, very happy with it and just am happier with it with each passing viewing. And uh, it's great. And I don't know that I've ever seen a movie do a better job of providing a conclusion to one trilogy while also providing the launch point to another trilogy. Because you can totally see where they have wrapped up the story of these previous three films and 
set things up for a brand new beginning and a brand new trilogy that's still this character and still part of this character's story. And I don't even know who's going to direct it because John Watts is going to be busy making a Fantastic Four movie. He's going to go back and forth between Fantastic Four and Spider-Man movies. I don't think so because these movies are so heavily involved and take such a long time for directors that it seems like a new director comes in for a new era with this Tom Holland Spider-Man and you know it's not just going to be Tom Holland by the time we get to the end of it. It's not just going to be Peter Parker, I don't think, by the time we get to the end of it. But so many possibilities here and you know, so much that we could break down. I mean, even though we're over four hours on this show, there's so much that we could break down yeah. as far as what, what does this mean that the world has forgotten Peter Parker? Well, the, the simplest version of those mechanics are because people are still talking about Spider-Man. So Spider-Man still fought in Civil War. He still fought in Infinity War, in Endgame, and all of those experiences. All of that still happened. It's just nobody remembers that it was Peter Parker who was uh, who was Spider-Man at the time. But what does that mean when the world doesn't even... Never mind that the world doesn't know Peter Parker is Spider-Man, but the world doesn't even know Peter Parker exists. What does that mean? That's a status mm. quo that we're not exactly familiar with. And so what does that mean? And when, how, if... Will he ultimately be reunited and at least some people, the people who matter most to Peter, actually get a chance to remember? I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. It feels like the kind of thing that gets resolved by the end of the next trilogy. I don't really know, but I'm glad that Kevin Feige has already confirmed there's not a pending divorce or separation like there was after the last Marvel Studios Spider-Man movie. They're still working together. They're in it for the long haul, building a future together with this character. And I'm so happy that's happening because I definitely want to see where things go from here, but also am so incredibly satisfied by the end point of this trilogy. I really couldn't think of a a better spot to pause and get ready for a new era with this same guy, Tom Holland's Spider-Man in in a brand new set of circumstances and maybe a brand new uh, filmmaker at the helm, but really, really great ending to this. Um, we won't get out of here without addressing the mid credit scene that makes good on and then partially undoes the Venom Let There Be Carnage post credit scene. So we pick up with Eddie in Mexico and he is catching up on the billionaire in the tin suit, the big green guy, Hulk, as the bartender tells him. Also, love that the bartender is Cristo Fernandez, who plays Danny Rojas, Football is Life, on Ted Lasso. It was great to see him there. And so Tom Hardy is uh, going through all this as Eddie Brock. And then just as he's getting and also talking about aliens wanting stones, well, they don't want that. Aliens want to eat brains in Eddie Brock's experience. And then almost as soon as Eddie Brock bursts onto the scene in the MCU, he is taken out of the MCU. He fades away just like everybody else did during the final battle or after the final battle in, uh, in No Way Home. But he leaves a little something behind just a little piece of uh, the symbiote. So, Paul, I don't think they're going to use the symbiote to create a new Venom in the MCU. Maybe they would, but Eddie Brock is Venom, and that's what people want to see is Eddie Brock is, or not Eddie Brock's Venom, Tom Hardy is Eddie Brock is Venom, and I think that's the one that people want to see Tom Holland Spider-Man interacting with, and I think we're all going to get our wish in that respect. But leaving the symbiote behind sets up the opportunity for other characters to be Venom, but it also sets up an opportunity for, I know he just got a brand new shiny suit, but it also sets up Peter Parker to have that black Spider-Man mm-hmm. symbiote costume that he has not yet had in the MCU. So I feel like that's the first step. I feel like that's going to be, they're going to be connected um, in through universes through mm-hmm. the symbiote. Yep. And that's, and that's how they're going to do it and how he'll be, but, but 
how it plays in this universe, I don't know. And maybe they're going to bring Noel into it. I'm not a big Noel guy, but that might be what kind of drives them together potentially. And that could be because obviously Venom is a bad guy and or kind of the anti-hero that is hates Spider-Man in the comic books initially. And then but now that this Venom character, they kind of are. I'm not, I'm not sure how they're going to play that. Like you said, they're going to be two separate Venoms. It might be, that's why I might think that Noel might be that link between the two and they'll team up to fight him or something like that. But I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, I could see it going that I, I could see it going a lot of different directions here, but I do agree with you that the symbiote feels like the thing that can connect them to one another. Cause you have to have the multiverse thing, but you've also, it's such a weird thing because we got to see multiverse of madness really because Dr. Strange kind of closed the door temporarily on the multiverse, at least as far as it relates to Spider-Man things. But let's be real. Uh, the door to the multiverse is never, ever, ever closed, but you still want each, each time you work with the multiverse, you still want it to make sense. And so I think having the symbiote and it is important that the last thing that Eddie Brock was saying before and Venom and Eddie Brock kind of being together on this. But the last thing he was saying before he started disappearing again was that wanted to go meet this Spider-Man character. And so that is the mission of the symbiote that's been left behind because that was the last kind of programmed destination. So I feel like that that little piece of the symbiote is going to go looking for Peter Parker and eventually find him. And once Peter Parker wears that, uh, has that suit, then sure, I think he will become aware because symbiotes have knowledge across the multiverse going back to that venom let there be carnage post credit scene that would be it right there as far as the the connection that could even find a way to have those characters communicating with each other perhaps uh, across the multiverse before they're eventually in the same spot uh, and we see them interact for the very first time but they are absolutely going to pay that off i don't think i don't think the venom let there be carnage post-credit scene and this mid-credit scene, I don't think they're entirely just meant to tease us of something that's never going to happen. We are going to see Tom Hardy and Tom Holland on screen as these characters. It's it's a question of when, not a question of if, but still a cool mid-credit scene. The post-credit scene wasn't really a post-credit scene. It was a trailer. It was a teaser for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and it had a lot of things going on in it. We got a little bit of a scene with Dr. Strange finding Wanda and saying he's not there to talk about Westview. It was still cool to just hear him say Westview, like hear a Marvel movie character acknowledging something that happened on a Marvel TV show. I know that we, that the Disney plus series count and all that stuff, but we're not used to actually seeing it. That stuff always feels like more of a historically, a lot of that has been, it's all connected has been more of a talk track than something that's actually adopted in practice. But we know it's different about the Marvel Studio with the Marvel Studios Disney Plus series. And so anytime we see it actually making good on that, as we see in this little teaser footage, it was cool. But that teaser footage, including Evil Doctor Strange, which looks very different from Evil Doctor Strange in What If, who didn't ultimately turn out to be that evil in the end. So I don't know if that's going to be the same Doctor Strange, but it was cool seeing Sochi Gomez as America Chavez in there. We see Rachel McAdams back. We see Chiwetel Ejiofor as Mordo. And obviously, Wanda, Elizabeth Olsen is Wanda Maximoff, a.k.a. now officially the Scarlet Witch. All of that footage looks cool, Paul. But as I said, it deserves more of its own breakdown, which we will do over on uh, over on Fan Show Plus. I just thought it was interesting to get a teaser, more of a teaser than a post credit scene, because that's not been 
the normal practice. The last time I can remember anything quite like this was at the very end of Captain America, the first Avenger. There was an Avengers teaser, but there was still a scene ahead of that from the Avengers, the punching bag scene uh, with Steve and uh, and Nick Fury. So this was uh, a little different for a post credit scene. Not that I necessarily minded because Multiverse of Madness looks pretty great. Yeah, uh, this was this will be definitely worth talking about by itself. I, I this looks amazing. I love Sam Raimi. Mm-hmm. I love Sam Raimi films. So this looks bonkers and I can't wait. Yep. This, this is the Doctor Strange movie I've been waiting for, essentially. So, yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, this feels like the all out Doctor Strange movie. And, and as we'll talk more about on, on Fan Show Plus, what a great time for it to come along. Right. I mean, yeah. doc, the momentum that Doctor Strange has as a character is just un, unworldly right now, appropriately, appropriately enough for Doctor Strange. But I mean, thinking about how popular he was in Infinity War and then not having as big of a role in Endgame, but still being there. And then in two of the biggest movies of all time with Infinity War and Endgame, and now another one of the biggest movies of all time, certainly one of the biggest openings of all time with Spider-Man No Way Home and carrying all that into Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness in a handful of months or so. I I feel like as as long as that movie delivers, it could be massive. And uh and, and I hope that it is because it, it deserves to be and Doctor Strange deserves that and, and I'm here for it. And yes, we will talk a, a lot more about it, but I, I love what we saw so far in this. But I, I think four and a half hours is, is about enough for a <laughs> for a spoiler review. Jeez. Here we are topping that Avengers Endgame spoiler review. Wow. So anyway. Well, if you listened to all of this, uh, thanks, both of you. I, I really appreciate the the two of you who stuck around and listened wow. to this uh, entire spoiler review. Um, but, yeah, this was uh, a great movie that, that deserved to be covered in full yes. detail. And, and hopefully we, we managed to cover most of uh, what was great about this movie. And whatever we forgot to get to, we'll, we'll cover it at, at some point. But... Thanks for sticking with us through this spoiler review. Make sure you check out Fan Show Plus and then follow us in all those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Twitter and Instagram. Paul, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Herman22 at two ends, aka P Thug. Also follow my YouTube channel, The Comic Binge. Like and subscribe to videos, please. Thank you very much. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thanks for listening all the way through. We'll see you next time.